two, three, four, up go the prices. Four, three, two, one, down go my wages. I can't drive the transit anymore. Well, I thought I got a pretty good education, and now I can't even keep up with inflation. Good time just headed out the door. And it's work, 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 you slave, work till you are done. Don't cry, must be brave, got no time for fun. One, two, three, four, up go the prices Four, three, two, one, down go the wages I ain't gonna take it anymore Go on, girl! Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Hellas. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on February 19th, 2022. The time right now, 9.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We have not been as consistently on in February as we had in January. January actually had five shows. This is only the second show in February, and we are to February 19th, so it looks like we only have three shows in February. But that's the way it goes sometimes, of trying to get us back to a weekend schedule, which is more convenient for me. Yesterday was the planned date for the show, but I ended up taking a last-minute trip with the family to the snow. So I was unable to make that. I was not even home in time to do the show. It was kind of a day trip, but it was an all-day trip. So I delayed it one day, and here we are on Saturday night. And we should be here again on Saturday night next week. So right now, tentatively, the next show will be on February 26th on, of course, Saturday night at around the same time in the evening. We have a free roll right now on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It started at 9.25 p.m., but you have all the way until 9.50 to get in with a full stack. And you need a separate account on that room, of course. Not the same as the forum account. You need a separate account, which needs to be validated and verified. But once you've got that going, then you're good to go, provided you understand and follow the rules of the free roll, which can be found at pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll. 
And the administrator of that room, Belly Buster, sent me a lot of money, about 500 bucks. Actually, I think 450, but somewhere in that neighborhood. I'm forgetting exactly how much, but a lot. And uh, this has been slowly distributed to the free rolls. And this week, we are using that again. So $50 all from Belly Buster, which is going to be distributed in the following fashion, 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. That's 25, 15, and 10, thanks to Belly Buster. And you need to PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff, to claim your prize. I prefer it that way. But alternatively, you can text me. I'll give you the number shortly. Or you can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, to claim your prize. But I really do prefer the PMs because I tend to do them all at once as far as paying out the prizes. And I sometimes have a hard time finding it in my email or my texts after a while. So better to PM me on the forum if you want to be paid as quickly as possible. But I will always pay you. You will get paid. But remember, you have to request the funds within six months of when you win them. Otherwise, I could redistribute them to the prize pool. I'm not saying on the exact day, six months later, it will be dropped and uh, brought back to the pool, but it could be. At any point, I can take from the unclaimed prizes. Now, if you've claimed and I just haven't sent it to you, that's a different story. You just have to claim it. You have to claim it within six months. But if it's been more than six months and I have not taken the prize and reused it yet, which you can see, we have a thread that keeps track of that, then you can still claim it. So there's not a deadline so much, but I'm just giving you a warning. If you don't claim within six months, I may roll it back in the pool. I will never keep that money. It'll either end up back in the pool or it will end up in the pockets of the winners, which can be paid in many ways by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by various forms of cryptocurrency, or other methods you might be able to think of where money can be sent to you online. So tell me what way you'd like to be paid, and I'll tell you if I can pay you that way. But it is real cash money that will be sent to you. Can't send to you ACR funds, though. I sometimes get that request. I do not have ACR funds to send because I don't play on ACR. No real reason. I just don't play there. I'm not saying I wouldn't. I just don't. We have an ACR story tonight, by the way. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is the number. There's also a Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone which sits on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin there and forwards to me wherever I go. That phone number is 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808, and that's a separate line into the show. You can always text the main number, not the Mount Charleston line. That will not receive text, but you can text the main number, 775-372-8355, before, after, or during the show, and if you text me during the show, I may read your text on the air unless you ask me at the beginning of the text not to do so. You really can't text me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not taking calls right now, though. So you, you will have to wait if you're calling in. We're doing the intro here. I will tell you when we're going to take calls. 775-372-8355 is the number you can text me during the show, and I will read your texts. And again, you can text me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I will respond to you. It's never too late or too early to text to me. If you want to chat with people who are listening to the show live, you can go in the chat room 
We don't really have chatting going on when the show's not on, but uh, when the show is on, you can chat with other listeners. I don't chat there while I'm doing the show because it's distracting, but I do look every so often, and I will sometimes comment on things said in the chat room. There's a lot of ways you can listen to the archives of the show. We have iTunes, we have Google Podcasts, we have the TuneIn app, which also you can use to listen live to the show. We have the Stitcher app. We've had that for a very long time. We have Bullhorn, which has a call to listen line, which I'll tell you about our own call to listen line, but it has its call to listen line to listen to the archives. Then there's Spotify. Spotify, I find, is the easiest one to use to listen to the archives. That's my favorite to listen to the show after it's already been on. iHeartMedia, we've got that as well. You can also download or play an MP3 file of the show, which I make available in the Radio Archives forum every week. And that requires no app or external player that will work with any device. You just click on the MP3 and it will work. And you can even download it if you want. So a lot of ways to listen. If there's any other way you want to listen that's not too much trouble or expense for me, you can text me or get a hold of me another way and I'll see if I can add it. The call to listen line is a very simple thing, but it's beautiful because it can be used to listen to the show either live or you can listen to a random rerun that is selected from our more than 400 programs we've done in our 10 plus years. Well, not 10 plus, it's almost 10 years. We're about to have our 10 year anniversary, but almost 10 years on the air, more than 400 shows. It'll pick one randomly, but when we're live, it'll play the live show. You just call up and listen. It does not require an app, does not require a smartphone, does not require a computer or the internet, or even a very strong cell phone signal. You could have like one bar and it'll work because it'll never buffer. It'll never freeze. It doesn't matter how bad your connection is. It will still work. Try it if you don't believe me. 605-313-0736 is the number. 605-313-0736 or the alternate call to this line, 641-741-1095. It's totally free if you can call the U.S. for free, except if you have T-Mobile, it is one cent a minute. And I don't keep that money. I wish I did. I wish it went to me. I wish I could get my greedy hands on your one cent per minute, but I can't. I get none of it. T-Mobile keeps it all and will share none with me. And I have no choice. I cannot tell them to stop charging this. They do it on their own because it's considered a high-volume number, which is kind of a compliment that we get so many calls to it. But it's kind of sad that it costs once in a minute, but only for T-Mobile customers. If you have any other cell phone provider, to my knowledge, they do not charge for it. I will give you our agenda, and then we will get going. Trader Ruski was around. We'll try to find him. Maybe I started a bit too late for him, but uh, he's welcome to join us at any point here. I saw him in the chat room. Here's our agenda. We had a blatant slow roll on Hustler Casino Live this week. And when I say we, I mean the poker room, not me or Poker Fraud Alert, but there was a blatant slow roll. And it was against L.A. cash game legend Garrett Adelstein. He was the victim of this slow roll. So I'm going to play you this slow roll. I'll describe what's going on because it's an audio show, so I'll have to tell you what's happening. But it's pretty short, pretty self-explanatory. And there is some history behind it. So we'll talk about the slow roll heard around the world. Then I have an update about Christopher Mitchell. Remember I told you he lost his channel? After two years, he 
finally lost his channel, gambling coaching scammer Christopher Mitchell? Well, I have two updates. I have an update about what has happened to his replacement channel, and I have an update regarding how much money he has at the moment, because he showed us. And I will give you my analysis as to whether or not I believe it. Then we will have a discussion about something that has been happening on Twitter for the last few days, and that is a small controversy involving Bart Hansen, who is a listener to this show. And I was pulled into it a little bit, though it doesn't mainly involve me. I'm just kind of a side observer who's commenting somewhat. Anyway, Tony Big Charles is a long-time but controversial low-to-mid-stakes poker pro. I'll describe him more when we get to that segment. But Bart made an offer to stake him, a small stake, like $1,000, but he made an offer to stake him if he got a certain number of likes on Twitter. And that ruffled some feathers because some people don't like some of the stuff that Tony Big Charles has said and done. But a little complication. When I say said and done, Tony Big Charles has not scammed anybody. Tony Big Charles has not hurt anyone in poker. And Tony Big Charles has not committed any acts of violence, to my knowledge. So what is the objection to staking Tony Big Charles? I will tell you what the objections are, and I'll tell you how I feel about it. Then we will have Druffy Time Theater. Now, Druffy Time Theater, as of late, has been about various customer service situations I've been in. Though last week we didn't do that. Last week we did the three stories from online poker chat from the 2000s, which I know a number of people enjoyed. I got some good comments about that. But we are back to a customer service story, but not about me. I was involved, but it wasn't something that happened to me. But a car rental place stole, blatantly stole a cell phone from a relative of mine. And the situation was looking pretty hopeless. And then they went to me and I decided I'm going to help out here. I'm going to stick my head into this situation and I'm going to try to get that cell phone back. So I'll tell you about that story and how it ended up working out. Vanessa Cade is no longer an ACR-sponsored pro. She has quit as a sponsored pro for America's Card Room after one year, citing, quote, different values. So I will tell you about that, and I will speculate on the reasons that she left ACR, and they may be more complicated than you think. The GPI, the Global Poker Index Awards ceremony, has been held. It is a real ceremony where people show up in uh, suits and dresses, and you know it looks like a real award ceremony. They've been doing this for years. But they just had the ceremony, and they handed out awards, and there's been a little controversy involving some of the awards that were handed out. So I will list the awards quickly, and then I'll discuss the few that are bringing on some controversy, and I'll tell you what I think. The Love Ranch in Pahrump, Dennis Hoff's Love Ranch, is for sale. Now, Dennis Hoff himself is not selling it because he died. He died in 2018. However, the ranch itself is for sale and not for very much money. In fact, I think some listeners to this show could probably afford to buy it. So I'll tell you what this comes with. I'll tell you a bit about the history of the ranch in case you don't know. I'll tell you the price tag. I have an update about Crystal Cruises. It's gone. 
No more Crystal Cruises. Crystal Cruises has crashed and burned. Crystal Cruises has ceased to operate. They've closed down. They're done. And at least $100 million in fares that were paid for cruises that haven't left yet are due to be refunded, but aren't going to be. So a lot of money is gone from those that reserved cruises coming up. But is there a way for some cruisers to get that money back? I will tell you. And I will give some suggestions if you happen to be one of those people. And we easily could have some listeners who have future reservations on Crystal Cruises. In fact, the two people who've been interviewed the most about the follies of Crystal Cruises recently have been poker players. That would be the Shulmans, Barry and Alan Jeffrey Shulman. They were on one of the cruises that abruptly stopped. Former poker pro Igor Kurganov is going to help distribute a lot of money to charity for Elon Musk. How much? Well, let's just say it's not millions. Not less than millions, but it's not millions. I'll tell you how much it is and why Igor Kurganov is likely the one who has been tasked to do this, of all people. Then we have an NFT fraud alert. There was a nasty phishing scheme that resulted in a ton of stolen NFTs on the NFT trading platform OpenSea. So I'll tell you about that controversy and what you can do to prevent yourself from being a victim. Because this was pretty bad. A lot of people lost their NFTs. And I'll tell you also how I feel about how this sort of thing may prevent the NFT space from really growing beyond where it is today. Because this is a big problem, and it's not really being fully acknowledged. Finally, coronavirus news. A lot of states have lifted their mask and vaccine mandates. So does this mean life is returning to normal? Possibly. I'll tell you why this is happening and what you can expect going forward. Also, as a little bonus, if you're thinking of getting boosted or even a fourth shot, maybe you should wait. I'll tell you why that as well. So that is our agenda. You have four minutes left to get into the free roll. Where's Trader Ruski? I was hoping he'd pop up somewhere. He was in the chat room. He's still in the chat room. He may have fallen asleep. I'm going to try to uh, reach him here. I'm afraid we're not going to get him. I'm afraid I let him go. Go to bed, that is. You got me, Druff, but I'm fading fast. Oh, okay. I had to quickly grab Trader Ruski before he uh, left us and went to Dreamland. But okay, knowing me with these long shows, we may still be on when you wake up. So, all right, let's jump right into the first topic here. Trader Ruski, have you seen... The Hustler Casino live slow roll, which occurred. I sure with the pocket force, I think. Yes, with the pocket force. I sure did. That's that that douchebag. Yeah. So this was a, a pretty offensive slow roll. Now I know we don't have all poker experts listening to this show. There's some people who listen just because they enjoy the show and they don't know poker very well, and they may not understand what a slow roll is. A slow roll is very simple. It is where the winner of the hand does not turn over their hand when they're supposed to 
in a quick fashion because that's what you're supposed to do when it's your turn to turn over the hand if you're the winner of the hand you know if the person shows first and you can beat them you're supposed to turn over your hand quickly you don't sit there talking or messing with them and then turn over the hand that's considered bad etiquette it's not cheating it's not against any rules it's against good etiquette so Slow rolling. Well, Strap, hold on. It was more than that. Didn't he say, like, oh, good call or something? Yeah, well, we'll get into what he did. I'm I'm just giving a a general definition of a slow roll. So that's considered bad etiquette. Again, it's not against any rule, and it's not cheating. It's just something that isn't very nice to do. Even if it's someone you don't like, it's just there's an unwritten code in poker. You just don't slow roll people. It's just not a nice thing to do at the table. It's not a good precedent to set. If it's someone you don't like, you still don't do it. I guess the only way it could be justified is if they did it to you. So, on Hustler Casino Live, which has definitely become the most popular stream, but also always seems to have some controversy springing from it, there is a slow roll that occurred this week, and a lot of people are talking about. And it also involves one of the best-known L.A. cash players on streams, and that would be Garrett Adelstein. And he took a break for a while. Some people don't know this, but you didn't see him on any stream for some time, and it was not because he was broke, and it wasn't because he had any kind of issue with the streams themselves. In fact, he's kind of been Switzerland as far as a little, uh, I shouldn't say war, but rivalry between Live at the Bike and and Hustler Casino Live. He said, hey, I'll play on both. I'm not taking any sides in this one. But Garrett Edelstein has some mental health issues. And he's the one who said this. I'm not speculating. He he hasn't specified what it is. I'm guessing it's depression. But he does have some mental health issues, and he was taking a break from appearing on these streams and maybe from playing poker entirely for some time to kind of get himself together. I don't know what brought this on. I mean, you, you see the guy, he's, he's, he's very well-liked. He's very good at poker. He wins a lot of money. You say, oh, yeah, this guy has a great life. You know, how can he be depressed? But that's, yeah, depression isn't that simple. Depression is, is often something that's chemical that you can't control, and everything in your life can be wonderful, and, and you can still be very depressed if you've got uh, chemical issues that cause you to have that. In fact, I experienced this myself about three and a half years ago, as most of you know. So... He took some time off and disappeared, but he's been back in the games recently. And he was on Hustler Casino Live. This wasn't his first appearance there, or first reappearance, but he was on this episode. And he had a previous issue last week with this person. And at the time, it wasn't that significant because, you know, it was something that was a little bit odd, but it became much more relevant this week when there was this slow roll, which seemed to be an extension of what happened last week. So the other player involved is named Dylan Gang. It's exactly the sound, G-A-N-G. I assume that's his real last name. It's kind of a weird last name, but that's what I hear his name is, is Dylan Gang. So he's been on the stream before as well. And he was the one who got in hot water at Staples Center. There was a broadcast in October that really was pretty notable for a few reasons. First of all, Mickey Moz was on there. You know, the guy we interviewed on here, the one who claims to be crushing the casinos, the guy who said he'll show me his win-loss statements and disappeared. That Mickey, well, 
he was on that stream. That was really the poker world's first introduction to him. Then there was another guy on the stream who it turned out had a horrible history where he was uh, arrested for uh, rape and for cheating women out of a lot of money. Like, this guy really seemed like a bad criminal. I forgot the guy's name. I'm sure he's not being invited back. And then there was Dylan, who didn't do anything wrong on stream, and as far as I know, didn't have any bad history. However, he left the stream early because he said he was going to a Lakers game. And he did. He went to the Lakers game, and he sat courtside. And he ended up getting in an altercation with Lakers player Rajon Rondo and actually slapped Rondo's hand at one point. Now, it's not as bad as it sounds because Rondo was pointing in his face and he slapped his hand like, get your hand out of my face. But still, if you slap an NBA player's hand when they haven't touched you yet, which Rondo hadn't touched him, he he got close to touching him, but he didn't touch him. He was pointing in his face. I don't know what made this all happen. They must have been yelling at each other you know probably dylan was yelling something at rondo that rondo didn't like and rondo you know came up to him and then uh then he then he yelled again he came back up up and pointed in his face and then he slapped rondo's hand so at that point he got ejected and i don't know if he got banned from staples center but i know he got ejected and he may have been banned and obviously if you make any contact with the players even if they've got their hand in their face you know that that's going to be an instant ejection and possibly a ban so that happened that night, too. <laughs> he went to a Lakers game, all right. He got kicked out. In fact, this was covered on a number of mainstream news outlets that a fan got ejected for slapping Rajon Rondo's hand, and it was him. It was this Dylan Gang guy. So that's his history. So that was back in October. So on February 11th, at the 5-hour, 21-minute, 13-second mark, if you go to the stream, which is the one that featured Wesley, Garrett, Dylan, and some guy named Bill Klein. And it's Friday, February 11th. You can find it on the Hustler Casino Live YouTube. There was a weird conversation that took place between Dylan and Garrett that apparently upset Dylan a lot. And it wasn't understood a week ago that Dylan was as upset as he was. So I'm going to play you the incident there which, again, wasn't a major incident, but it was something that now is notable because of what ended up happening. First thing that went through your mind when you lost that hand? Yes. <laughs> What's that? Was reloading the first thing that went through your mind where you just like... I was thinking about I wanted to eat your unborn child. How many hands? How many hands? My unborn child would slap you in your face. <laughs> So this was weird. This was a conversation they were having where basically Dylan was asking Garrett what he was thinking. And Garrett responded back, I was thinking I wanted to eat your unborn child. And then Dylan was kind of shocked by that response and said something like, my my unborn child will slap you in the face. Now, I don't know if Dylan actually has an unborn child. I don't know if there there's a girl that's pregnant and it's his kid and there is an unborn child or if he just talking about a theoretical unborn child. But Garrett did say that. Let's listen again. First thing that went through your mind when you lost that hand? Yes. <laughs> What's that? Was reloading the first thing that went through your mind where you just like... I was thinking about I wanted to eat your unborn child. Okay, so the reason Garrett responded this way was Dylan was asking him, what was on your mind when you lost the hand was reloading the first thing you were thinking about. Now, I'm not sure why 
he asked that. That's, that is kind of an obnoxious question. Like, hey, what were you thinking about as you just busted? What was in your mind then? Like, I can see why Garrett got pissed off by that question. And I didn't see what precipitated this beforehand, so I'm not going to try to speculate. But Garrett said back, well, I was actually thinking about I want to eat your unborn child. Awesome. My unborn child would slap you in your face. <laughs> That's some Mike Tyson shit right there. That's the commentator. My, unbo- my unborn child will not be the first one off the Survivor. <laughs> Guarantee that. Dylan took a little offense to that. Yeah, so the commentator said they were right. Dylan took a little bit of offense to that. And Dylan was kind of needling him to begin with there, asking, what were you thinking when you lost that hand? Were you thinking about reloading? And then Garrett came back with that. Again, I don't know if Dylan really has an unborn child. It's worse if he has an unborn child on the way. If he's just talking about a theoretical unborn child that he may have one day, that's not as bad. If he's actually talking about a real child that is sitting in someone's womb right now and Garrett is saying he wants to eat that child, that's, that's a pretty bad thing to say. It's weird, too. It's weird either way. So that was on February 11th. So then a week later, we had another incident. This is again between Dylan and Garrett. In this hand, Dylan had pocket fours. Garrett had king ten. The flop was three queen three. And I don't know how the action went. But I know that by the end, Garrett wasn't in a good spot. Because by the end, it was three queen three four king. Dylan had pocket fours. Garrett had king ten. So Garrett had rivered the top pair, and Dylan had turned the middle set full. So this was a big pot. This is a big game. This is a 200-400 no limit. It's a very big game. The pot ended up being $131,000. Huge pot. And Dylan obviously had it locked up with the set of fours. And Garrett had to decide does he call this river bet? And what Garrett's trying to figure out here does, what he's trying to figure out is why is Dylan firing the whole way with a three queen, three, four king board? Like the king in most cases is going to win it for Garrett here. So if Dylan has ace queen or if Dylan has jacks or tens, or yeah, he's usually not going to have a three, So Garrett's thinking, well, why is he still firing so much money? It kind of seems to me like he's just trying to buy it. So that's what Garrett was thinking. Of course, he ended up being incorrect and lost the pot. So listen to what happened here. Garrett's having to decide whether to call it or not. This very large bet on the river of uh, 55K. And Garrett's going to call. Good call. Oh. Just kidding. You hear that? Good call. Pause. Just kidding. So Dylan said to Garrett after he threw in the 55K to call that river bit. Good call. So when someone says that, that means you won the hand. That means you made the right decision by calling. So he makes his big bet. Garrett calls 55K. And Dylan says, good call. And Garrett thinks for the moment, okay, great. I made the right decision. Wow. And then waits and then says, just kidding. 
And by the way, he turned over the hand when he said just kidding. So he says, good call, doesn't turn over his cards, then says just kidding and flips over the fours. And Garrett just sat there silently and is counting out the chips to pay him. Wow. That is definitely in poor etiquette, I will say. So the poker world actually praised Garrett for not losing his mind here. That he didn't say a word, he just kept his mouth shut and counted out chips to pay the 55k that he called. And that was it. That Garrett did not go off on him. He didn't mention that it was bad etiquette, that it was a terrible slow roll, that the good call, followed by a pause, followed by just kidding and then turning over the winning hand. He had nothing to say about it. He just counted out his chips and paid. So people are saying, wow, what a professional. What a good guy. Garrett then did comment the following day, February 18th at 11.32 p.m., less than 24 hours ago. Garrett tweeted, regarding the pot I lost with King, with King 10 versus Dylan's pocket fours, we have no history aside from playful banter last week. I have no ill will towards him, and he's welcome to slow roll, needle, or moon me mid-hand. That said, he's got an uphill battle if he thinks I'm affected by anything he does or says. So he's trying to say, you know what, Dylan, you may think you're getting to me, but you're not. You, you can do stupid things like this. You can slow roll me. You can try your little antics. It's, it's not going to tilt me. I am going to not be rattled by anything you do. At first, nobody even realized that there was this history the previous week. Then... A person named Wes Cutshaw responded and said, uh, just, for every, just for everyone that doesn't know, Garrett made a joke that he wanted to eat Dylan's girlfriend's unborn baby last week. So I, I guess there probably is really a baby. Dylan clearly didn't take kindly to it at the time or now. And then the stream and the timestamp were posted, which I played you before. So the question is, would this be justified? If you have a girlfriend who has your child in her womb, and Garrett says to you that he wants to eat that child in response to a needle from you. He doesn't just say it out of nowhere, but you're, you're needling him about what he was thinking when he lost a big pot, and then he comes back that he was thinking of eating your unborn child. Does this justify a week later to slow roll him, to get him back? My answer is no. It does not. Because there really is not a good occasion to slow roll unless you have been slow rolled before. So now if Garrett slow rolls him back next week, then that's fine. I don't think it's good to get in a battle of slow rolling, but if somebody has slow rolled you before and you want to hit them with a slow roll, okay. You know, an eye for an eye, fair is fair. But not just because they said something inappropriate to you on a previous stream. Also, you have to understand, if you're going to trash talk, if you're going to needle, then you have to accept the consequences that someone may come back at you and say something that will offend you. It's not like Garrett punched him. Garrett said, no, I was actually thinking of eating your unborn child, which is a weird comment and I think was inappropriate. I think he could have come back with something that wasn't about an unborn child or eating it, but... That's the risk you take 
when you try to needle someone and get under their skin with things you say to them at the table. They may say something back to try to get under your skin. And that's what Garrett was trying to do last week. And even if he may have gone too far with his comment, that doesn't mean you should graduate to slow rolling him. The vast majority of people were on Garrett's side on this. In fact, he got praised by many people, as I mentioned, for not reacting to this, for not giving Dylan what he wanted. I'm sure he was furious, but he kept his cool. He kept quiet. Probably helped that he had a mask on so you couldn't see the look on his face, but he kept quiet about it. And he only commented the next day on Twitter when people were sharing it all over the place. And of course, they wanted a comment from him. People have also said that they feel that Dylan should be banned from Hustler Casino Live because of what he did. I don't agree with that either. I don't think he should be banned. Now, I could see where they may not invite him back, especially if Garrett says, if you bring this guy back, I'm not playing. Garrett is the bigger draw to that stream, and Ryan Feldman knows it. I'm not saying that happened. I'm saying if it happened, then they would probably take Garrett's side and not invite Dylan back. Other than that, and I haven't heard that Garrett has made such a demand, other than that, if they want to invite him back, that's fine, because he didn't cheat. It's not like the Skills Rocks guy who was looking over that Barry guy's cards and then signaling his buddy under the table by kicking him during the hand that Barry had the nuts. I mean, you see someone doing that, you definitely don't ever bring them back to the game. But this, this was an etiquette issue. This was not a gameplay issue. And nobody was actually harmed. Again, there was not any kind of physical fight. Nothing harmful was done in any way. It was just rude. It was just very rude. It was inappropriate. It sets a bad precedent that you don't want to see this on stream. Like, I guess maybe for drama's sake to get people talking about it. I mean, here we are again talking about Hustler Casino Live. This, this show has almost been a free advertisement for Hustler Casino Live re- recently with all the things that have been happening there. And I don't blame them for this. The, the, the Hustler Casino Live couldn't control this happening. This, this just occurred during a hand between two players who apparently don't like each other. So I don't blame Ryan Feldman or Hustler Casino Live at all. I mentioned with the last incident that maybe there was something more they could have done, but then I heard that it was a longer delay than I had originally believed, so there probably wasn't. But here I have no criticism of Hustler Casino Live because this is just something that happened during a hand between two players and they can't control this. But I also don't think they should punish Dylan and not invite him back. Now, maybe if they don't like the slow roll going on, they can say to Dylan, hey, can you not do that again? We'll, we'll invite you back here, but can you please quit this? If you, if you want to talk trash with Garrett, go ahead, but uh, please don't slow roll anymore. They could say that. I mean, it's their stream. They can advise him of whatever they want, of what they expect of his behavior, and that would be their right to do. They may want to see more slow rolls. Remember, Ryan Feldman is a very clever guy when it comes to marketing when it comes to putting together an interesting game. And we had him on here. I'm sure you got that sense of him when he was here. So he may like all this drama. I don't think he's so much like the cheating thing that happened with Skills Rocks, but I think that with everything else that's occurred there that they can't be blamed for, and that isn't as serious as a matter of someone looking over at someone else's hole cards and then signaling their friend, uh, that they obviously don't want. But I, I think... Anything short of that, which doesn't question the integrity of the game, 
I think they're probably happy to have that because it gets people talking. It gets people wanting to watch to see what happens next. Because I would think this would make people want to tune in again next time Garrett and Dylan are together to see what occurs next. It's it's not nearly as fun to watch a bunch of players who aren't talking and who get along great and just kind of play poker and don't emote very much. But, but here you have two guys who seem to have an issue with one another and seem to be escalating things. So people say, hey, I wonder what's going to go on next, especially because it involves Garrett, who is a favorite of viewers because of how well he has played on these streams. So I have a feeling that Hustler Casino Live doesn't mind that this happened. Any publicity is good publicity for the most part. So I don't think that Dylan should be banned, whether or not Hustler Casino would want to, of course, it's up to them, but I don't think he should be. I don't think that justifies it. I think at worst, they should just tell him, please don't do this again. It kind of seems like Garrett is just taking the position of, I'm just going to play my best poker, and whatever you do is not going to affect me. I may not like you. I may think you're a dick, but it's not going to affect me. It's not going to make me play worse. So if if you want to do it, you can try, but it's not going to matter. I'm going to focus on the game. I'm going to make the moves I think are correct. I think he was underrepresenting what happened the previous week about, quote, playful banter. It didn't seem very playful. That seemed full of tension. First, you had Dylan asking him how he was feeling when he's losing a big hand. And is, is, was he thinking about reloading? And then he comes back saying he wants to eat his unborn child. That's, that's not playful banter. And I think Garrett knows that, especially after that slow roll. I bet he knows that. I bet he knows that this probably was indicative that Dylan had been holding a grudge about this for about a week. And that was his way of getting back at him. So we'll see if we get more fireworks with this. It's not a huge controversy. It's just something people are noticing and talking about. One of the worst slow rolls we've ever seen on a stream. So that was why it was notable. In the grand scheme of things, I mean, it's just one guy slow rolling the other. So it's not like this is an earth shattering thing that occurred. The situation with Skills Rocks looking at Barry's cards, that was much more notable as far as uh, something that you've got to make sure doesn't happen on streams. Now, again, if Hustler Casino Live was on a two-hour delay, then I can understand why they didn't catch it until near the very end. But like that sort of thing can give people pause. That sort of thing can upset people to watch. This This is just drama. This is just two players trying to get under each other's skin. All right, so I'm going to move on to the next topic. We got an update on Christopher Mitchell. Remember last week, we did a long segment about Christopher Mitchell, who, remember, is a gambling coaching scammer. He's a guy who sells the opportunity to learn from him how to beat the casinos. The only problem is he can't beat the casinos, and what he teaches you are negative expectation strategies, losing strategies. This guy is not very bright. This guy couldn't come up with a winning strategy in the casino if his life depended upon it. In fact, the strategies he uses have been around since before he was born, and they didn't work then, and they don't work now. But yet he teaches it, and he postures as if he is a millionaire who made the money from gambling neither of which are true. He's not a millionaire, and he did not make it from gambling. He is a losing gambler. So that makes him a scammer. If somebody 
claims that their strategy won them all kinds of money and you just have to pay them a thousand dollars to learn that strategy but in reality it's a losing strategy and they are supporting themselves on the subscriptions to learn these secret strategies well as you see that's a scam if he came out and told the truth the reason i have any money at all is because you suckers are buying a losing strategy from me then nobody would buy it they're only buying it because they believe him because they think this is the guy who has it all figured out how to beat the casino and quit your job look at a great life he has he doesn't work he's a millionaire he takes nice trips he eats in expensive restaurants Look at how great everything is. Look how happy he is. Look how happy his wife is. Like, he tries to project that. And then people see that and they want it too. They say, hey, just for a $1,000 investment, I want that too. And then all they're taught are losing strategies. And if they dare complain, then they're thrown out of his Facebook group and they're told it was all their fault. Pretty nasty, huh? We've talked about this before. We've talked about Christopher Mitchell over the last two years a number of of different episodes. Last week, he lost his channel. Finally. We're not exactly sure how, but YouTube shut it down for, quote, severe or repeated violations. But he did not have any strikes because strikes fall off after 90 days. So my theory, and I said this last week, was that someone got to YouTube, probably a former victim, probably someone got an attorney who contacted YouTube and YouTube looked into it because it's very hard for YouTube. It's very hard to get YouTube to look at offending channels. The report button is mostly ignored, as I explained last week. So someone got their attention in some way, probably through an attorney. And they looked at the channel and they decided that it looked like a scam and they terminated it. That's what it looks like here because they just killed it outright without any kind of strikes. He had some past strikes but never for scamming, only for like posting gambling affiliate links. So he's never had any scam-related strikes, and he didn't have any active strikes. And then just the channel's just gone. So that really looks like someone complained it was a scam, got their attention, and YouTube finally took action after two years. So the channel was gone. He had to start fresh. Now, you're not allowed to do that on YouTube. On YouTube, after you get banned, you're not supposed to come back. And if you do, they can remove your channel at any time. So he started again with two channels that he already had. One of them was a channel he started in 2019 and never did anything with called Christopher Mitchell. And the other one was a channel that uh, belonged to his wife, technically, but he was kind of in control of it. And he had used that channel before when he had two strikes and he didn't want to get a third strike. So he had been using both channels to post his videos again, which, of course, is very risky because YouTube can catch it pretty quickly, and terminate both those channels. Well, I will give you an update. I mentioned last week that he had done this, but the update is that the Christopher Mitchell channel is no longer. It is gone! They killed it. So, the new channel that was to replace his original channel is gone as well. The only thing left is his wife's channel. And I have a feeling that channel is also not long for this world. In the meantime, as I mentioned, he moved over to Rumble. But as I said, when I did the segment last week, Rumble, which is kind of like a right-wing alternative to YouTube, 
They claim they will not do any kind of ideological censorship. So you can put out conspiracy theories, you can put out information which is determined by YouTube to be misinformation and that they ban people for it. You can post all that at Rumble with no consequence. Rumble says they will allow any ideology on there and they're not going to try to terminate any videos for being, quote, harmful or, quote, misinformation. However, Rumble is not a free-for-all, and Rumble will not allow scams or harassment to take place on there. So I have a feeling that if his Rumble channel gets going at all, if it really gets any kind of traffic, which Rumble has far less traffic than YouTube, but if it does get really going, I have a feeling they will terminate that there as well. Because Rumble does not say, hey, if you're a scammer who gets banned off YouTube, come over here, we won't ban you. They just say, if you got kicked off YouTube because YouTube doesn't like the subject you're talking about, if they don't like that you are spreading what they are claiming is misinformation, come here, all ideologies are welcome. Which I support, by the way. I think that's the right decision on Rumble's part. I wish YouTube was more like that. But Rumble says they're not going to tolerate scams or harassment or anything like that. So I, I have a feeling that channel is going to be gone as well soon enough. He also has a Patreon account, which I mentioned last week. And that was to uh, donate him $50 a month to get access to his, quote, exclusive content. However, the only things we see up on his Patreon right now are videos he's making public on Rumble and on his wife's channel. So I, I don't think they're really getting their money's worth. Also, a recent development is that you can't search for his channel on Patreon anymore. It still exists. I got a number of messages saying, hey, guess what? Uh, Patreon deleted Christopher Mitchell's channel. No, they didn't. Patreon just made it where you can't search for his channel, or he did it himself. Because apparently on Patreon, you cannot search for a channel if it is, quote, adult content. Now, while it's true that Christopher Mitchell was once a gay porn star. Yeah, he really was once a gay porn star back in uh, 2010, and before that as well. I don't think that's the type of adult content that they were talking about, but it's very possible that they made his channel on Patreon an adult channel because it's gambling content. Adult does not always mean sex. Adult does not always mean porn. It can also mean gambling. So it's possible that they have reclassified it as adult because it's gambling content, and that's why you can't search it. Or maybe he even selected gambling as the type of content he is presenting there, and automatically this happened and he doesn't realize it. But he's not gone from there yet. That's where he stands with his channels at the moment. He's got his Patreon, but you can't search it anymore, and he doesn't need to be doing that much with it. He's got his Rumble. He only has his wife's YouTube. So that's where he stands at the moment. But something more interesting happened this week that I wanted to tell you guys about. There is a lot of speculation that goes on regarding how much money Christopher Mitchell actually has. And usually the speculation goes that he's broke or close to broke. Not flat broke, but pretty close. And we've seen evidence at times that he really looks like he is circling the drain. We've seen him doing videos of himself playing on Bet Online for like 50 cents a spin on roulette. Like that, like that pathetic we've seen. Not just once for fun. Like we see every day he, he's playing at very low stakes. And, and then sometimes he's playing at higher stakes. And then sometimes we're seeing him playing at fairly high stakes. Like we'll see him playing at uh, 
putting $1,000 bets, $2,000 bets, uh, $4,000 bets, live and online. And it's because he's a degenerate gambler. Christopher Mitchell is someone who will never be rich for any more than a very short time because he always adjusts his gambling up to whatever money he has at the moment. So even if he does luck into a bunch of money or scams a bunch of money, he will chunk it off in the casino because he's not smart enough to realize that his strategies are a negative expectation. He still believes that his strategies will work if you have a deep enough bankroll. And he's incorrect. His strategies will not work and he will go bust every time. Maybe not right away, but within not too long of a time. So no matter how much money he has, like let's, let's say tomorrow he wins uh, the lottery for $10 million. Uh, he, he won't lose that the next day, but it won't be that long until he's broke again because he'll just adjust his gambling up. And that's why some people, no matter how much money they make, are destined to go broke, and he's one of them. For that reason, and for the reason that he's a big liar and you can't ever believe anything he says, the default is to believe with Christopher Mitchell that he is either broke or very close to broke and is just presenting a fake high-stakes lifestyle to entice people to buy his system and his coaching for $1,000 a pop, he pretty much got that from the multi-level marketing routine because he used to be part of multi-level marketing. And that's what they always tell you because multi-level marketing, you're basically selling the opportunity to sell. the, The product is very, very much secondary. You're really making the money from selling the opportunity to sell to others. So the way you do that is you present that it has been very good to you, that it's made you a ton of money, and that everybody else has to get onto this too if they want to make the money you did. So the only way you can successfully do that is by presenting a lifestyle they want. So you have to always present a carefree and extravagant lifestyle. And that's what he does with these videos. He, he took that lesson from multi-level marketing and is applying it to this uh, gambling coaching scam. So for that reason, it's difficult to ascertain what he really has. But we've seen various hints that he doesn't have much money. For example, he got a new Lexus. He really did. He got a new Lexus last year, and it really is his. However, we found, by doing some research, that the Lexus was co-signed by his wife's father. His wife's father came out from Ohio. All of a sudden, that same week, he has this new... Uh, this new uh, Lexus, which cost about 50 k And then upon researching it, we found that the father-in-law was one of the co-signers of that loan. So it's obvious what happened there. So that right there is indicative of someone who doesn't have much money. If you, if you have enough money to get a 50 k car, you can either buy it outright or you can get financing without co-signing by your father-in-law, which is embarrassing because keep in mind, he's admitted this himself that his in-laws were against them getting married. The in-laws thought that he was a degenerate. They thought that he was no good, that he was just going to lose all the family's money, which, which he has. So they've been very against this whole thing. He's been trying to prove to them that he is worthy, that he really can support their daughter and now their grandchild because they have a kid together. So the last thing he'd ever want to do is go to this guy and say, hey, uh, father-in-law, I, I know you've said I'm no good and that I'm a losing gambler, but uh, can you please co-sign for my car? Like, that must have been a really tough conversation for him to have. So if he could 
find any way to pay for that car or get the car financed on his own, he would have. Getting the father-in-law to sign as a co-signer there had to be very difficult for him to bring himself to do, someone with so much pride. So that's the type of thing that leads us to believe that Christopher Mitchell probably doesn't have much. However, we have seen a few weird things, which shows that at least uh, temporarily he either has or is holding on to some money. Last year, he showed, and I know some people were doubting it and say, oh, it's fake, it's staged. No, it, I, from my analysis, it looked real. I took some time and looked into it. It looked like it was real. That it seemed like he received around one Bitcoin, which was worth around uh, 50K at the time, and then quickly sold the Bitcoin and then transferred the proceeds to his Chase Bank account. And again, some people doubted it and thought this was staged or faked in some way. From everything I could see, it was real. But what I did notice is that he received this Bitcoin and then quickly cashed it out. So this isn't like he was slowly making money gambling and then decided, okay, I'm going to cash out a Bitcoin. No. Bang, his account went from about zero in cryptocurrency to a full Bitcoin. And then bang, next day, or within a day or two, something like a really short period of time, he cashes almost the entire thing out. I don't know who sent that to him or what sent that to him or what that was all about or where that money ended up going. But I do believe that when he showed that video of him cashing out that Bitcoin, that he really was cashing out a Bitcoin to his bank account. Then we saw another video last year, after this, a few months later, towards the end of last year, there was another video where he showed him logging into his bank account, again at Chase, and he had like $107,000 in there. And again, same allegations. Oh, it's fake. It's funny because I even showed this video to Benjamin and Benjamin said, you know what? I know how to do that. <laughs> he was explaining how you can do this and uh, change the display uh, by doing a modification of the HTML page that's displaying in the browser and make it look like that you really have money in your bank account that you don't have. So a number of people thought that as well. But again... I looked at it, and this one I wasn't quite as sure about because I had less to go on, but I believed it was real. I didn't think that Christopher Mitchell faked that bank account. It, it looked pretty authentic to me from everything I could tell. So again, somehow he had more than $100,000, and it was available cash, by the way. It wasn't like he just deposited some check that's going to bounce. It was available cash. So somehow he had more than $100,000 in that account, and it showed available, and I think it was authentic. But he didn't show how he got it. He didn't show what led up to him having this money. He just showed that he had it. And I wondered, hmm, is someone sending him money again? And why? Well, now we got another display. And this was courtesy of the ATM, the Chase ATM. So he staged a reason to go down to the ATM. By staged a reason, meaning that he didn't really need to go down to the ATM that day. He made up a really flimsy reason of why he had to go do it. The point of the video was to flash the balance he had in that account. Now, that doesn't mean the balance is fake. That just means the reason for going down there was staged for YouTube. But then he may have shown a real balance. So he claimed that he had to deposit $600 cash that he had recently made in the casino. 
Now, if you have a million dollars minimum, which he claims to have, if you've just made $600 in the casino and you're a professional gambler, the last thing you're ever doing is running down to the bank to put that 600 in the bank. You're just going to hold that 600 at home till the next time you go to the casino. Now, maybe an old grandma who only gambles once in a while and wins 600 to the casino, yeah, maybe she'll go put that in the bank, even if she has a million dollars in the bank, but, but not someone who's a professional gambler. No, no professional gambler is going to run to the bank and deposit $600 when they already have a ton of money in the bank and when they need a bankroll to gamble with. Because remember, if you're a professional gambler, you need a, a bankroll to bring to the casino. In fact, Christopher Mitchell is the opposite of the person who'd run down and put $600 in the bank. He has admitted before in his videos that he likes to carry around a ton of cash on him so he can feel rich because he grew up poor. He admitted this. He said that he brings way too much money with him for what he really needs because he wants to feel rich because it's something that makes him feel good after growing up in a poor family. That that was what he said. So he's the last one that would have to go run to the bank for this. So, okay, the reason was manufactured why he went to the ATM, but who really cares? What he was trying to do is show us his bankroll and then it became a matter of do we believe it? So I'm not going to bother playing the video to you because it's mainly just something you'd watch. But... I watched the video very closely because the point of the video was for him to deposit this cash and then get this ATM receipt and then put the ATM receipt on his knee and show it on camera where you can see that he has a lot more money than you might expect. How much was on that receipt? $100 billion. No, but almost as surprising, $227,000 was on this receipt, which is the most money we have ever seen that Christopher Mitchell had to his name. And that was quite surprising to a lot of people. Some initially believed it was fake. Some felt that there was no way he had $227,000, that obviously the ATM visit was was not fabricated, but the whole premise was fabricated of going down there and that he must be pulling a trick in some way. So I was interested. I was interested to figure out, does he really have $227,000 available cash in his Chase bank account? And when I say available cash, most of you know this, but I just want to make it clear for everybody. Available cash means that this is money you can withdraw and use now. Banks don't typically let someone just walk in and withdraw 227000 cash simply because they don't have enough cash there at the bank. And what they do have, they don't want to give it all to one person. So you can call ahead and say, can you have that cash delivered to the bank because I want to withdraw it here? You can do that. It's your right, your money, your right to get your money. But you do not have a right to demand they hand $227,000 cash to you without any warning. But what you do have a right to do without any warning is go from branch to branch to branch, like he could go to 20 different Chase branches, or 30, whatever it would take, and eventually get all that money out. It would be his right to do if it is available funds, which it said on that receipt they were. Available means that you can use the funds whatever way you want. You can withdraw it, you can transfer it out, you can spend it, whatever. You can wire it. If it's not available, that means that the bank is still processing some deposit And that while it's technically in your balance and you're earning interest, that you can't touch it yet. But that wasn't the case here. It was all available. All $227,000 was shown as available. So the question was, were we seeing a real receipt? 
So I followed it very closely. And I noticed a few things. First of all, when he was using the ATM, you get to see the last four digits of his account number, and you also get to see his email address. Now, he wasn't pointing these things out. It's not like he's saying, okay, well, here's my account number. Here's my email address. No, he was just using the ATM and going through the motions, and I was pausing it and grabbing these things. He wasn't trying to hide them, but he wasn't trying to show you or even have you notice. In fact, the email address wasn't fully displayed. It only had the first and last letter of the email at gmail.com. But I deduced from the first and last letter that it matched an email address that he was associated with. In fact, the main one he uses. So I don't think Christopher Mitchell is smart enough to think that people are going to look at that on there and put this all together and say, oh, yeah, 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 this is something that is associated with an email address that's associated with him. And that, uh, like, I don't think the level of analysis he really believed was going to happen because he's a simple guy. He thinks just by going down there and showing you a receipt that says 227K that you're going to go, whoa, he's rich. That, that's basically his level of thinking. This is not a sophisticated guy. So I was doing a, I wouldn't say sophisticated, but I'll say a, a semi-sophisticated analysis of this. And, and he's just a simpleton trying to flash this balance at you. So the question is, was it real or fake? So again, I noticed the last four of the account number. I noticed the email address, which is significant because that shows it was probably his account and not somebody else's because some people were theorizing, well, maybe he had a friend let him borrow the card and gave the friend gave him the pin so he could flash it, but it's not really his account. Well, then why does this have what appears to be his email address? Is it impossible that this was a friend's account? No, he could have... They could have swapped email addresses. He could have put his email address on the friend's account. But then he would have said something about it. See, again, he's not that sophisticated. I don't think he would have expected someone like me to pause it and notice the email address, which wasn't even that prominent on the screen, and then realize from the first and last letter that it was a, an email address that he has. Like, I don't think he would have expected people to do this. And if he was, he would have pointed it out. He would have said, okay, well, look, there is the email, and it corresponds with my email, and you can see this is my account. He said nothing like that. So I believe it was his account. And the receipt that came out of the machine, you see the machine printing it, and you see him pulling it out. Now, you couldn't see what's written on the receipt when he's pulling it out because he didn't get close enough to the receipt as he's pulling it out. But I was able to pause it, and I was able to look at the structure of the receipt, meaning I can't see exactly what's written on it, but I can see the way the printing looks from a distance. And then I was able to compare the way that looks to the one that we saw on his knee about seven seconds later. So he pulls it out, and it goes off camera for a second, but it seems like he's not pulling any shenanigans, and, and he puts it on his knee. So again, you, 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 do le you do lose the receipt off camera for a second, but I don't think he pulled a switcheroo. So you see this receipt on his leg, and the account number matches the last four of the account number, which he didn't tell you to look at. It's not like he said, hey, look, here's proof it's the same one. No, he didn't say that. He just said, hey, here's the receipt. So everything looked authentic. The receipt looked authentic. It matched the account number. The time and date matched. Like Everything matched. Every single thing matched. It's slightly possible he pulled a switcheroo when it went off camera for a second as he was moving it to his leg, but I don't think so. I think he really does have $227,000 in his account, or at least he did as of the date of that video a few days ago. Furthermore, he posted on Instagram a picture of himself betting 
$4,500 a hand on Baccarat. Now, we haven't seen him bet that in a long time. Occasionally, he will place a big bet through the Martingale system, which is basically just doubling your bet over and over just because he, he loses like six in a row and the bet just becomes very big very quickly because you're doubling it each time. And that maybe that's what happened here too, but I think that he is just betting a lot bigger. But then you might ask, where did he come up with $227,000? Has the scamming business really been that good? Now, the ways he does have income, it seems, are number one, the people subscribing to his, quote, inner circle, which is basically a Facebook group. And I know he does have people that have paid him for that. And also, he gets up to 35% of losses of people he refers to bid online. So that might be making him some decent money. But however, remember, he does spend a good deal. And remember, he's a degenerate negative expectation gambler. That doesn't mean he's always losing. He could be winning short term as well. So a possible explanation was that he ran it up. But I don't think so because, and I'll tell you why. Remember, he loves cash. He loves to flash cash. He used to show like 50K cash in his videos when he had it. He loves to carry around massive amounts of cash. I don't think he would bring that to the bank. Even if he was running it up, I don't think he'd put it in the bank. I think he would flash it to everybody to show that he has all that cash. In fact, he was caught posting a stolen picture from 2015 from somebody else of a bunch of cash sitting in the windowsill, like 200K cash sitting in a windowsill. He posted that as if it was his, and all it took was a quick Google reverse image search by a guy on Poker Fraud Alert to find that uh, it wasn't really his cash and he just got it from Pinterest. (laughs) So it's kind of weird. The same week, he's posting a fake 200K cash in the windowsill, which he clearly stole from someone else's picture seven years ago. But then he's showing what is probably a real 227K in his account. You may say, why? Like, why, why would he fake 200K in an obvious and stupid fashion if he really has 200K? Well, again, because I think he doesn't have it sitting in cash. And I think the reason he doesn't have it sitting in cash is I think like the other two times, I think he received it from someone or something. But I think it's a someone. I have a feeling, and I have no proof of this. This is just a hunch. But I have a feeling that when he receives this money, what's going on here is he's got some sucker that he is gambling for. He's either gambling for them or investing in cryptocurrency, but he has some sucker who has some decent money to their name convinced that he will make them mega rich. So they send him 225000 he turns it into $5 million. Like It may be a promise like that. He may have someone convinced, all I need is a big bankroll to start, and I'm guaranteed to win. So that picture of him betting 4500 on Baccarat, that, that may be him attempting to gamble the money. Now, what happened the previous times? I don't know. It's possible he lost both those times, and now this is the third try. Maybe it's a different person. Maybe I'm completely wrong on this, but I, I don't think I'm that far off. I think this was sent to him by somebody else for purposes of basically uh, running it up that he is the one gambling for that person by proxy 
and he's going to take a percentage of it. Maybe it's like a 50-50 split. Maybe, hey, we can't lose. I win just about every time. I just need a good bankroll. Okay, send me the bankroll. Okay, thank you. Now I'm going to run it up. I'll keep half, you keep half. Now, this may sound incredibly stupid. You may say, how could someone who has any kind of money to send him be that dumb? But keep in mind, he does appeal to a lot of gullible people. And he does victimize a lot of elderly people. And there are a number of elderly people out there who have money, but don't really have very good judgment anymore because their ability to think has deteriorated as what unfortunately happens to a lot of elderly people. So this could be an elderly person who is trusting him with their life savings or part of their life savings or a lot of their life savings. And they believe that he's going to run it up and they're going to both make millions of dollars. Just a guess. But I think it's got to be something like that. And the reason I think it's something like that, well, there's several reasons, but one of the big reasons is I think that we would have seen if he were on the way up, he would have shown. He loves to show off when he's having success, even small success. There's no way he would keep quiet as he's running it up like this. We would have seen many examples of how much money he has to his name. But no, here it's just boom, 227000 He also likes to show up what he calls the dead broke jealous haters. In fact, that whole video was to, quote, show up the dead broke jealous haters. So if he had 100K, I don't know, a month ago, he would have shown that. He wouldn't have waited till now to show 227. It's like 227 is a million where it's a round number that uh, he's been waiting to be able to show. He, He showed 227. It's kind of a weird number. So believe me, if he had 100 to show when everybody was saying he was broke, he would have. Because we've been watching him for two years, so we see. So when he just suddenly has this money, it must have been sent to him. I don't think it's going to be that long until he chunks it off. I mean, if he's playing that high at Baccarat, maybe every bet wasn't 4,500. But if he's playing that high, it's just a matter of time until it's all gone. The only possible good news that could come from this would be that this is enough money to where if the victim comes forward, and that's a big if, because uh, number one, that would mean that uh, my theory is correct, that someone sent it to him to gamble with. And number two, that if he were to lose, that he couldn't convince the person that it was normal or just very bad luck and, hey, let's try again, like the person would actually have to believe they were victimized and come forward in some way, which may never happen. But if they did, this person could possibly get law enforcement interested enough to really do something about him. Because the reason Christopher's gotten away with it for this long is because it's been small potatoes for the most part. So he sells you a $1,000 gambling coaching package and says that you're guaranteed to win 100% of the time, then you use his losing strategies, and of course you lose, and then you're mad about it and you go report it to the police. The police are probably going to say, look, Gambling is never 100%. You should have known that. So go sue the guy. If you think he's sold you a bunk package, then sue him. Sue him to get the $1,000 back. Uh, we're not getting involved here. Because it's hard for law enforcement to deduce the difference between a gambling scam and a gambling system that just doesn't work as well as the student believes it will or the student just doesn't learn properly. For example, it would be completely legal for me to sell poker coaching And if my student just sucks or has bad luck, even if my coaching is great, it's very possible he could lose. Very possible he could lose all his money. Well, that wouldn't be a crime on my part to have coached him. 
And it wouldn't be a crime on my part to even say that uh, you could take these lessons and you could make a lot of money with it. Because I could truthfully say that I made money with these uh, strategies. I don't do poker coaching, but if I did, it, I could do this and it would be completely legal. In fact, it would be uh, ethical to do that as well, as long as I believe the student really could apply it. But if the student uh, couldn't apply it or just had terrible luck and busted, I'd feel bad for them, but I would not have committed a crime or even anything unethical. In fact, I, I wouldn't even lose in civil court for this. So it's very hard when it comes to gambling strategies for law enforcement, who tends to not know very much about gambling, to really notice the difference between a scam or just an, a dissatisfied customer. So since $1,000 is not that much money, most police departments would just say, you know what, sue him. And that's that. But when it's $227,000, if that is sold on false pretenses that uh, you're giving it to this guy to have a guaranteed win and that he's a millionaire already, from his winning system, and it turns out that's all a lie, and even if he really does gamble it and lose it, that's still a crime. That could be wire fraud. In fact, it is wire fraud. The reason it's wire fraud is because uh, this would be money that was received under false pretenses. You're sending it to someone who makes a false guarantee based upon falsely claimed previous results of what you're going to make with that money if you send it to him, and then he just goes and gambles it. So even if he gambles and you had an agreement that he'd gamble, if you agreed that he'd gamble the money because he promised you returns that he knew were not true, and he promised it based upon a past that he knew was not true, that is a crime. And if that money was sent by wire to his Chase account, that is wire fraud, and law enforcement may... And in fact, I think there's a good chance they would take interest in that amount of money. So a lot of, a lot of times the amount matters. $1,000, they'll say sue them. $227K, eh, they may do something, depending upon how it's presented to them. And a lot of it is how it is presented. A lot of it is about how this is brought to law enforcement and explained to them. I'm not guaranteeing that this would result in an investigation or a prosecution, but there's a much better chance if that person came forward that he would be prosecuted than someone who wasn't happy with the thousand dollars they spent on his coaching. So the only possible silver lining in this is that it could potentially lead to him finally being arrested and prosecuted, which is what he deserves. And if I were in law enforcement, I could put together a very strong case to arrest and prosecute this guy. But unfortunately, I'm not. And it's very hard to convince people in law enforcement to take an interest in what is kind of a, a small potatoes scam and which isn't an obvious scam to those who are not experts or at least semi-experts in gambling. And that's why wow. he's been able to get away with it. So we'll see. I still am going to be following, of course, his exploits and if he continues to bet big and if he continues to flash more of a bankroll. But I, I think I'm on to something here. I think there's a good chance that I've taken a good guess about what's going on. Let's just say that. Don't have verification at all, but I think I'm on the right track if I had to guess here. I got a text about Christopher Mitchell. This is interesting that uh, someone who has a, 
experience with the Bet Online affiliate program, said that he did this on the 14th, this video, and that the 14th is the day they usually pay people on Bet Online for the affiliate, that he may just be making a lot of money in the affiliate program. And that is possible. That is possible. And we've noticed that uh, there have been times that he's, it seems like when he flashes a lot of money, he does seem to be the middle of the month. And this has been suggested on the forum before that maybe he's getting his payments in the middle of the month and he's just making a lot from the affiliate program. I still am leaning towards believing that someone is sending him the money to play. It's just hard for me to believe he made that much on the affiliate program. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I don't think that Christopher Mitchell is killing it on the affiliate program to be getting like a lump sum payment of 200 something thousand dollars on the 14th. And that is because he's not a tremendous YouTube personality. He's not like I would get like a million views. In fact, now he barely gets any views because his channels have been deleted. But even before that, he was not getting massive views. He was someone who was using his channel as a tool to recruit suckers to buy into his inner circle. That's what he was doing. It was a marketing tool. But he wasn't reaching a massive number of people. If he had a very big following and there were a ton of people clicking his affiliate link, then that would make more sense where he could be really making big, big money on his uh, bet online affiliate link. But I don't think he's making that type of money. I, I do think he's made decent money on this bet online affiliate link that he gives to his inner circle, but that's only a finite number of people. So I don't see that he'd be getting that type of money dropped in his account on the 14th, but it, it is interesting that this does seem to happen in the middle of the month. So maybe that's the point. Maybe that's what happened there. I still think it was from somebody else, but who knows? Guess we will see. Or maybe we won't. <laughs> All right, so we're going to go on to another topic. This involves a listener to the show who's also quite known in the poker community, and that would be one Bart Hansen. He's called the show before, and he is a friend of Poker Fraud Alert. And Bart got into some arguments this week on Twitter involving a guy named Tony Big Charles and a plan to stake Tony Big Charles. But to understand this controversy, you need to understand Tony Big Charles. So let me start with Tony, and then I will get to what all the controversy is about. Tony Big Charles is a longtime low-to-mid-stakes poker player and casino advantage player. And he's a very strange guy, to say the least. He's not young. He's older than me. He's at least, like, 55 or something. I don't have his exact age, but... You know, I'm 50, and he's at least several years older than me. He acknowledges he has Asperger's, which I believe. You know, he said it, and I think he does have it. And he doesn't seem to have a permanent home. Instead, he drifts around the U.S., staying in casinos and supporting himself through poker and blackjack. He frequently updates his bankroll on Twitter, which I don't believe has ever eclipsed $50,000, but... He always seems to hang in the low five figures. It's it's not that common, like he's in super dire straits and about to bust, but it, it seems like he can't even break 50K, and last I looked, it was like 17K. Now, that by itself 
isn't super strange. It, it's unusual. It's unconventional. But look, Ari Engel, he does not have a permanent home. He drifts around the world, not just the U.S., to different casinos and stays there and plays poker. And he's not a strange guy at all. Ari Engel is a very normal guy. He just likes that lifestyle. So you, you don't have to be strange or weird to drift around and stay in casinos. It's not something I would want to do, but that's a personal choice. But uh, Tony Big Charles definitely is a weird guy. On the plus side, Tony is known to be honest. He's never scammed or ripped anyone off in poker, to my knowledge, and he's been around for decades. He'd be safe to stake from that standpoint. He's not someone who's going to disappear with the money. He's not someone who's going to violate the terms of the stake. He's not someone who's even going to lie about his cash results. I think that if you give Tony money to play cash, I think he'll probably come back with his real result of his cash sessions. And you have to trust someone a lot to know that they're going to do that because they can always shave some off and keep it for themselves if it's going to be like a 50-50 split. But I think he would probably be honest about it. So no one's ever really said that Tony Big Charles is a liar or no one said he's a scammer. There's been a lot of criticism of him, which we're going to get into, and some of it is very well-deserved. But it's never been from the scamming or lying standpoint. He, he's basically seen as an honest person, even if people don't think he's a good person. So that's on the plus side about Tony. However, he has been known to go on racist and sexist tirades, both on his blog and his Twitter. It's important to understand that's not mainly what he does. He mostly tweets and blogs about poker and gambling and how he's doing. And he's very candid about it. He'll admit if he's on a bad streak or how frustrated he is. Like He pretty much wears his emotions on his sleeve and has no filter, which gets him in trouble, which we'll get to. But occasionally, he will say things which are inappropriate and offensive, especially by modern standards. So he'll write some degrading things about women, not specific women, but you know, women in general or about uh, other races and the type of stuff nobody with any sense would write in 2022, even if they think these things. I'm not saying he's the only one who thinks this way, but I'm saying that Tony will just blatantly say this stuff or write this stuff and uh, not care. He also will sometimes... Uh, go into conspiracy theories. He, he believes that the political left is, is basically uh, ruining his life. So there's a lot of reasons why some people don't like him, and I understand them. I understand why some people don't care for him. He also has had some issues where he's actually gotten in real trouble. In late 2017, he had a meltdown while losing at Blackjack at the Golden Gate Casino in Las Vegas. We even covered it on this show. And a few months later, he was actually arrested for terrorist threats by saying that he wished he could arrange the death of people that he sees around that are more successful and happier than he was. By the way, they ended up dropping those charges. It seems that uh, this basically fell marginally under his First Amendment rights, that he was basically saying he wishes he could do these things, but not that he was going to do these things. So there, because he wasn't making a threat, he was more just saying what's on his mind, he was not prosecuted for it. But he, but he writes this stuff. <laughs> he writes this on his blog and on Twitter, and a normal person would never write that sort of thing. 
even if they think it like if you're walking around let's say you're having a bad day or a bad week or a bad month whatever it is and let's say you think very briefly wow look at that happy person over there wow that person pisses me off i just i hate seeing how happy they are and how carefree they are i wish i wish i could freaking kill them like if you thought that you would never go to twitter and write that you would never go to your blog and write that in fact you'd probably quickly get your cool and say you know what i shouldn't think this way it's not these people's fault that they're happy and i'm not that's uh okay that that wasn't a rational thought on my part but even if you stick to it even if you you still think oh i kind of wish i could kill these people but i i won't because uh i'd get in trouble or whatever like you would never blog this there's a lot of people who think very bad things that they would never write online or communicate to anybody but tony big charles doesn't have this filter he will just type out what he feels and this will get him into trouble so that's what happened there so he was arrested but not charged but to my knowledge Tony has never actually been violent. These things that he writes and says are more in anger than anything else. And in fact, since he's not a young guy, it's likely he would have been arrested and charged and convicted for violent acts by now if he had a propensity for such a thing. Because over time, if you are a violent person, you're usually going to commit acts of violence and you're going to get in trouble for it. So somebody who's gotten well past age 50 without any kind of arrest for actual acts of violence, I don't mean writing on Twitter about violence, I mean actually committing acts of violence. If this hasn't happened yet and you're over 50, it's probably never going to. Now, it occasionally does. Sometimes people just snap at a late age and do something that they wouldn't have done before. But usually it's the opposite. Usually men who have violent tendencies commit acts of violence when they're younger. And as they get older, and there's theories about why, it's thought maybe due to a drop in testosterone, but for whatever reason, as men age, they get less aggressive and less likely to commit violence than before. And that's why you'll see that a high percentage of violent crimes are committed by men under 35. And far more men commit violent crimes than women. I mean, like, uh, tremendously more. But it's mostly men under 35. And the ones over 35 usually have a history of previous violent crimes. So I'm not saying it always dies after 35. I'm saying that it's unusual for someone to start becoming violent after 35, and especially after 50. So for that reason, because people have seen Tony online all this time, he's had a longstanding blog. In fact, his, his blog is on Blogspot, which is a pretty old blogging system. So Anyone who has been online a long time, and and yeah, I mean, he's got a lot of quirks. He says a lot of outrageous and offensive things. He has no filter. I understand why some people are put off by him. I don't agree with a lot of things that he writes. But like a lot of people in poker who have observed him over the years, we've seen him as just kind of like a weird guy who's harmless. He's a weird guy who says things that pisses people off that, that shouldn't say and write a lot of what he does and definitely has a lot of issues, but overall, he doesn't really harm anybody. And that's why a lot of people in poker just kind of say, okay, well, he's a weirdo, but uh, we're not worried about him. Which is kind of weird to say about somebody who was arrested for, quote, terrorist threats. But still, 
you can understand. You, you probably know people like this in your life too. You know, people who who get themselves into trouble with their mouth, but you go, "Oh no, they're really never going to do anything." These are people who were uh, really harmless. They just may not appear harmless to those that don't know them. I'm not saying I know Tony well. I don't. I've never even met him. I, I've communicated with him a little bit online, and he's made a few posts on Poker Fraud Alert, but he's not a regular poster by any means. He registered an account, posts occasionally, usually if it's already about him. He's just someone I more know of and had a, have had a little interaction with him back and forth, but we don't know each other well by any means. But I've seen enough of him to where I would be surprised if he really committed an actual act of violence. So why am I going into all this? Well, Bart Hansen received a suggestion from someone named Mike Sharp. It goes by Iron Mike Sharp, S H. A-R-P-E on Twitter. He said, Bart Hansen, I have an excellent idea for some Crush Live poker content. That is uh, Bart's training site. Stake Tony Big Charles in a live stream game and then do hand analysis of the Hansi plays. So Bart said back, if this tweet gets 500 likes, I will almost certainly do it. Now, why would Bart say that? Why would Bart Hansen agree to stake Tony Big Charles in a game that's live stream, so you can watch the game, and then do an analysis of his play. Why him? Why why not someone who's more stable? Why not someone who doesn't make blatant racist and sexist comments on Twitter? Or why not someone who who doesn't write on his blog and Twitter that he wishes he could kill people? Like, why, why would Bart choose him? Well, it's because Bart and many others who've been around in poker a long time realize that Tony Big Charles is harmless, and that. He thought it would be entertaining for people to watch Tony play and then for Bart to actually analyze his play. And then Tony may actually get mad at Bart over this and, and, and give him a hard time for, for any kind of criticism. But, but either way, Bart was offering to do this, number one, because he's probably not likely to lose much or any money. Because Tony's a decent player. Remember, he supports himself on poker and blackjack. So it's not like he's a losing poker player. And and second, it's only 1K he'd be staking him, I believe. And third, uh, you know, Bart doesn't have to like him to stake him. He doesn't have to agree with everything he writes to stake him. As long as he believes that Tony will really show up and play and try his best, that's really his main concern. And he probably figures that given that Tony Big Charles is a, a kind of a cult figure in, in some poker circles that people may be entertained to see Bart analyze his play because he's not just an average guy. That's the whole point. Is he, he's staking someone who is odd and weird and then analyzing his play. But but actually doing real analysis. This isn't just a joke. This isn't just uh, say, hey, let's, let's watch this weird guy play poker. It's like, let's watch him play poker and Bart Hansen will do serious analysis of his play style. So... That was Bart's plan. So how did it go? Did he get the 500 likes? Yes. In fact, in less than 24 hours, he had gotten the requested 500 likes. Now, keep in mind that Tony had not agreed to this. Tony did not ask for this. Tony didn't say, hey, Bart, can you stake me? It was the opposite. Tony had nothing to do with this. This was some other guy who doesn't even know Tony very well. He said, hey, you know what would be funny? How about you stake Tony Big Charles 
on a live stream and analyze his play. Wouldn't that be hilarious? And Bart's like, you know what? Yeah, that might be entertaining. Okay, hey, I'll do it if I get 500 likes. And they get 500 likes in less than a day. And Bart's like, okay, well, we're going to do it. So Bart tweeted on February 17th, boom, this will happen if Tony is up for it. Now total number of likes uh, divided by 10 in the next two hours is the profit he gets to keep up to 100%. He's at 50.5% right now. So he's doing this like little math problem where in the next two hours, whatever more likes that come in, that he'll Tony will get to keep more profit. And right now it's at a minimum of 50.5%. So he was already going to give Tony more than half the profits. Now, again, Tony still had not agreed to it. And Tony said he was thinking about it. He wasn't even sure if he really wanted to do it because he, he knew he'd have to be here on a live stream and he, he may not have wanted that. For all the offensive and outrageous stuff that Tony puts out on Twitter, believe it or not, it's not for attention. Most people on Twitter who say outrageous things are doing it for attention. Tony actually just uses it as a platform to post his thoughts. He really is not seeking attention. And that is why some of these come off so badly, because he really is just putting out his unfiltered thoughts, which really shouldn't be written sometimes. So Tony's not even sure he wants to do this. But there's a controversy that has sprung from this. Some people feel that it is inappropriate to stake someone with Tony's history. Tony has not cheated anybody or scammed anybody. He hasn't screwed over any stakers. But it is true that Tony has posted a lot of racist things on Twitter. He's posted a lot of very sexist things on Twitter and misogynistic things on Twitter. That's for sure. I've seen it. I agree he has done that. And I don't agree with the things he's written. A lot of times I I read what he writes and I cringe. A lot of this stuff wouldn't have been appropriate to write 40 years ago, let alone today. And you guys know I'm not politically correct. You guys know that I'm not left-wing or a social justice warrior, but I read some of this stuff and go, no, 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 no. (laughs) You don't just not write this. You shouldn't even think these sort of things these days. Like This is really antiquated thinking, very antiquated thinking that really polite society got over a long time ago and he still writes it you know but the question is should this be a factor in nobody staking him if somebody's willing to like uh, i'm not saying that people who don't like him should stake him nobody is owed a stake from anybody but i'm saying that if somebody wants to stake him should they be under pressure not to just because of the stuff that tony has written And should his history with creating the occasional real-life disruption, such as when he got ejected from the Golden Gate Casino for a meltdown, or when he tweeted about how he wanted to uh, kill people that were happier than him, that he wished he could be responsible for their murder or whatever he wrote, that should this be someone who absolutely positively should never be staked? Now, I will say there are some people in poker that I would not like to see get staked. For example, Russ Hamilton. Let's say Russ Hamilton had the opportunity to get staked. Russ Hamilton was a good poker player. I don't know how he'd fare in today's games, but in his day, he was a very good poker player. He even won the main event of the World Series of Poker. So Russ Hamilton may very well still have the skill to beat certain games, but I would be mad at anyone who would stake him 
because he wouldn't deserve it, because he did such awful things to the poker community with his superusing on UB and cheating people directly like that, that this is someone who doesn't deserve an in back to the community if they need a stake to get back in games. In fact, I would love to see all the poker rooms ban him. He does occasionally play, by the way. Not in Las Vegas, but he, he does play sometimes. But imagine if he came to someone for a stake and they staked him, that would look very bad because someone would be enabling him to play when really he doesn't belong in the community anymore. If he has the money to play himself and he's not banned from the room, there's nothing you can do. But we shouldn't have third parties staking someone like Russ Hamilton who has caused such harm to the poker community. The community should all be of one mind not to do anything to enable him to keep playing. However, Tony Big Charles is no Russ Hamilton. Tony Big Charles has never hurt anyone from poker, to my knowledge. Not physically and not financially. So if he hasn't actually hurt anyone, if his worst actions have been words or outrageous behavior, then should this be a reason to tell others not to stake him? It's a fine reason not to stake him if you just don't like him and wouldn't want to do it. So if you say, I hate Tony Big Charles, I would never stake him ever, I'd say, okay, that's your right, that's your money. If you don't want to stake him, that's perfectly understandable. In fact, I will tell you that I wouldn't stake people I don't like. If there was someone I personally disliked, whether they had done something to me or I just uh, didn't like them because of things I've seen them write on Twitter, I wouldn't stake them because I wouldn't want to do them any favors. Even if I felt they could make me money, I'd say, no, I don't want to enable this person to be able to play poker. I don't feel they deserve my money to help them do this because I don't like them. So yeah, it's perfectly reasonable if it's someone you don't like, if you don't want to stake them, don't. But there's a difference between you staking them and and you shaming others for staking them. So the question is, does Bart deserve any kind of shame or criticism for this offer to stake Tony, given Tony's history. So one of the people who raised issue with this was Jennifer Newell. Jennifer Newell is a longtime poker journalist. She's always done a great job in her reporting. I usually agree with her poker-related pieces. In fact, she's written a number of articles regarding Mike Possel. And truthfully, every article I've seen her write has been very good. And I have a lot of respect for her. However, we are completely opposite politically. She is very left-wing. She's very passionate about it. And pretty much every political opinion she has is the opposite of mine. And it's funny reading her poker-related articles because I usually agree with those. So it's funny that if she's writing about poker, then we're usually of a single mind. If it's not about poker, we don't agree. However, I I think she's a decent person. I think she's intelligent. I think she does good research in her articles. I think she has a good feel for the poker community. And I've always treated her with respect. We've had some arguments on Twitter in the past regarding politics. But uh, aside from that, uh, I, I have gotten along with her. And even when we've had our political discussions, you know, I, I've always been respectful toward her. She is one of the people who is objecting to this. And that's not surprising. Because remember, she's left-wing, and she's someone who does get upset when she sees uh, 
behavior like uh, what Tony Big Charles was exhibiting. And I, I don't like a lot of the stuff he writes either, but we have different opinions of what that should mean. I think, okay, this is cringy and this is inappropriate and I don't agree with this. And, and she thinks, wow, he's an awful person and uh, he should be shunned. So it, it's a different interpretation of what you think when you, you read these, uh, these rants of his. So this is what she wrote. She wrote, this person has literally threatened to kill people in casinos. If you want to discount his homophobia, racism, and otherwise hateful statements, go ahead. But you're okay with someone who was literally arrested for making terrorist threats? That was written to Bart. Well, I mean, she's right that he did make a lot of statements on Twitter and on his blog that were homophobic, racist, or hateful in some way. He did, and he was arrested for saying he wanted to kill people, but he wasn't charged. But also, he hasn't ever committed acts of violence, to my knowledge. He doesn't have any kind of record like that. He just writes stupid things. Now, Bart wrote, the left is trying to cancel your stake. He was joking. He was kind of half-joking there. When he wrote, the left is trying to cancel your stake, he was doing this to write it in the same style that Tony does. Tony, Tony's always the left this, the left that, that the left is, is ruining his life in some way. So, so then Bart's saying, oh, well, the left is trying to cancel your stake. Well, Jennifer Newell took some offense to that because she thought that he was referring to her as, quote, the left, which she is on the left, and she'll admit that, but uh, she felt that this was uh, condescending, and she, she didn't get that, that Bart was sort of mocking him with always talking about, quote, the left. And keep in mind, Bart is not on the right. Bart, in fact, has been criticized on Poker Fraud Alert on the forum for being too far left because Bart is a big hater of Trump. Bart is someone who is once a conservative but has been pushed left because of hatred of Trump. And now I'm not sure what he is. I, I've told Bart before, like, uh, you definitely don't seem to be very much like today's Republicans. And I don't just mean like MAGA Trump Republicans. I mean, even Republicans like me that, that aren't of that type. So I, I'm not sure where Bart is politically. He's probably somewhere in the center at this point. Uh, there's a lot of left-wing things I know he doesn't believe in. So I'm not going to say he's a, he's a lefty now. But he's not a righty either. So when Bart's typing, quote, the left, he, he wasn't trying to mock the left. In fact, if you look at Bart's Twitter, there's far more mocking of the right and Trump than there is the left. It's a, Most stuff that Bart tweets tends to be critical of the right when he's getting political these days. So when he wrote to Tony, the left is trying to cancel your stake, it was half-joking. But when I say half-joking, it's because the people who were trying to talk Bart out of it really were on the left. So Jennifer even asked why the tweet about the left trying to cancel, and he said, to Tony, everything is the left. Which is kind of true. He was trying to say Tony just thinks anyone that uh, doesn't agree with him is, quote, the left. So I don't think that Jennifer quite got that he was half-joking there. But still, she stuck to her same point that she didn't feel the stake was appropriate. Whether that was a joke or not, the stake itself is not a joke. The stake itself is real, if Tony wants it. So Jennifer does not like that someone like Tony would get a stake, given his history. She thinks it should go to somebody else who doesn't do these things. She doesn't want to see homophobia, racism, and sexism rewarded. But I don't feel it is being rewarded. 
I just think this is someone who makes these statements but is getting a stake unrelated to all that. So I feel, and you you probably have an idea how I feel by now, but I, I feel it's fine to stake someone like Tony. When you stake someone, you don't have to personally like them or agree with their politics or agree with what they tweet. Staking is a business arrangement. And if the person is honest, which he is, and good enough to win, which he probably is, that should be enough. It's understandable if you don't want to stake scammers or others who actually harmed the poker community like Russ Hamilton. So it's understandable if you want to give someone a hard time for enabling those who have hurt the community to come back into it. That's fine. That's fine to shame those people who stake bad actors from our community who've actually harmed poker. But that's not Tony. He's just been offensive. I don't believe he's ever actually harmed anyone in poker in any way. Has he offended people? Oh, yeah. Is he a weirdo? Yep. Does he have some outlandish and antiquated views on the world? Definitely. But I don't think that should stop him from being staked if people want to stake him. When it comes down to it, I don't think he's ever ripped anybody off or ever committed any acts of violence. So I don't think the erratic and offensive behavior is enough to justify telling someone they shouldn't stake him. You you can give your opinion and say, I, I, I think this guy isn't really deserving of any favors because of all this stuff he writes. But I think it should be left at that. I think everybody should be able to express their opinion. So if Jennifer is so put off by the way Tony behaves and wants Bart to know that she would really rather he stake somebody else, yeah, she should go ahead and say that because that's her opinion. But I think it should end there. I think that uh, there shouldn't really be any shaming. It wasn't just Jennifer, by the way. She was the, uh, of the people who were criticizing it, I would think she was the best known. But uh, there, there were others that were joining in and saying the same thing, that Bart shouldn't do this. But honestly, there's a number of scammers and past cheaters who are presently being staked in some way in poker. And their stakers are not receiving any heat for this. I'm not going to bother to name them, but think of all the people who have been involved in cheating or scamming in the past who are now staked today. There's a number of them, right? I bet you can think of them. They're getting the money from somewhere. How come those stakers are not taking heat? And that's a lot worse to stake someone like that. I will take someone like Tony all day and all night in poker over cheaters and scammers. Because cheaters and scammers actually hurt people, and Tony does not. I understand why people don't like Tony. I understand why they don't want to see anyone doing any favors for him or giving him any additional opportunities because they find him so off-putting, and that's fine. Everybody can have their opinion on that. And not only can they have their opinion, I can understand their opinion. Sometimes people have wacky opinions I can't understand at all. I can totally understand where Jennifer Newell and the others are coming from. I can totally get it. So I'm not saying they're crazy, because they're not. They, they, they have a point. It's just a point I don't really agree with. I see where they're coming from, but I don't really agree with it. So if Bart wants to stake him for entertainment purposes, it's no big deal. And in fact, notice Bart got 500 likes in less than a day. He said, hey, I need 500 likes to stake him. He gets this in less than 24 hours. That should say something. That should say that a lot of people in poker want to see this. 
they actually want to see him on a stream and they don't think he's so terrible. He's kind of just this weird guy that we've gotten used to that is harmless. Can be off-putting and kind of... Like, you look at him and go, oh, I wonder if this guy's dangerous. <laughs> you can, you know, this, it can appear that way at first, but then you get to watch him more and you go, okay, okay, he's just... This guy just has no filter, but he's harmless. That's really Tony Big Charles from everything I've seen. So if Bart wants to stake him, no big deal. And I don't think it means that Bart supports the stuff he says... And I don't think it means that those who support Bart's being able to stake him without giving him a hard time, like me, agree with the stuff that Tony has written. I can say that a lot of the stuff he's written is reprehensible. A lot of the stuff he's written is inappropriate. And I could understand uh, people questioning if Bart were to make him the uh, new face of Crush Live Poker, or if he were to make him a, uh, a Crush Live Poker pro... But just staking him and say, hey, we're going to give this guy some money to play and then we're going to analyze his play and you guys can learn from it. I think that's fine. So you can let me know. 775-372-8355. You can text me how you feel about that and we will go from there. Okay, so let me read you some other texts here. This text from the 505. The unborn child thing, referring to what Garrett Adelstein said to Dylan Gang on Hustler Casino Live is the Mike Tyson line that he used. I doubt Garrett knew his girlfriend is pregnant. That That's an interesting theory. That's interesting that it could have been a coincidence that Dylan's girlfriend was pregnant and that Garrett just thought he was being funny using a Mike Tyson line. Hmm. It, it's kind of like when you make like a your mom joke to somebody and then they go, hey, you know, my mom just died and then you feel really bad. <laughs> Your mama is so fat, blah, 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 that he's like, hey, my, you know, my mom, she she was overweight and she just died of a heart attack. You go, oh, shit, I'm sorry, man, I didn't know. Like, uh, you know, it's, sometimes these things just happen to match up in a way to where it's unfortunate. So it may have been something like that. I don't think Garrett's a bad guy. Like, I don't think he's being like like a super callous dick here. I, I I could believe that he was trying to get under Dylan's skin. So maybe he did know that the kid, that Dylan had uh, a pregnant girlfriend. I don't know. But it's a decent theory. From the 530, do a Prahlad update and impression been too long? Okay. I haven't really been watching Prahlad recently, but all right. Let me just do an impromptu thing here. We're going we're gonna to try to take a look at uh, Prahlad Friedman's Twitter. See what we can come up with. I can't get over this picture that he uses. His profile picture is so weird. It's, it's him without a shirt on. And he's got this weird bleach blonde hair, which totally doesn't really fit him. And he's kind of got like this young hairstyle, but he's not young. You know, the guy's well over 40. It's a really weird looking picture. And he has these other weird pics of himself. Like one looks like a mugshot. The other one is him lying in bed. looks like he's sleeping in black and white. Very, very weird photos here. Okay, let me see if some things he's written here. Okay, th- this is a good one. This was on February 13th. I-, I don't know why this is funny to me, but it is. February 13th, he pictured 
he posts on February thirteenth. He posted a picture of an owl, and he wrote, "Owls are so dope." <laughs> That's it. Owls are so dope. It's the tweet. <laughs> yeah, them, them owls—they're so dope, man. They dope. I love them owls. The dope. <laughs> owls are so dope. Where does that come from? Like, a, he's just sitting there on February thirteenth. He just tweets out of nowhere that owls are so dope and puts a picture of an owl. Like, did he see one? Did he see an owl and then, and then put it up there? I I don't know. I actually get some owls in my backyard sometimes. I I, sh- I should have been putting a tweet out. Owls are so dope. Let's see what else? February twelfth, day before that, day before the owl tweet. There are people in prison still for weed. Yet McDonald's gets corporate welfare checks. Ah, I see. Okay, so there's another. This is him back on the bash the corporations train, which he really doesn't get to be on that train anymore because he represented one of the most evil and fraudulent corporations there was, which was UB. He represented them after the cheating scandal because he needed money. He admitted that he represented them because he needed money. He didn't admit that until recently. It's not like at the time he did. It took like. Uh, what, like 10 years for him to admit it, but he finally admitted that he did it because he needed the money, and he was more like saying, hey, you know, I'm not the first one to do this, which is true, but you don't get to bash McDonald's for being an evil corporation when you knowingly represented an evil corporation to keep in action. That's it. Your, Your hippie card has been revoked. It was revoked a long time ago, Prilad. I'm not even saying that all of his criticism of corporations is wrong. There's Some of the stuff he says is true, but he's not the one who should be saying it. When you knowingly represent a scam corporation, then you can no longer get on your soapbox and complain about corporations. You can't. It's over. Okay, February 11th. Everyone always saying the NFT community is super nice, and I agree, but it's still filled with humans. I already had this guy steal my idea and put it out secretly behind my back and had an artist charge 75% up front and hasn't done anything for six months and won't respond. Hmm. That's actually interesting. I want to know more about that. So he's saying here that he mostly likes people in the NFT community, but that some artist that he hired to do an NFT for him, he paid the guy a bunch of money up front and then the guy just ran off with the money and didn't do any art for him, which sucks if true. Of course, you shouldn't pay the guy so much up front. See, let me give you guys some advice. If you want to hire an artist to do NFTs for you, which, by the way, I've considered doing. So I'm not even saying that's a bad thing to do. I've considered getting an artist to make NFTs for me and making my own NFT. I suck at art. I couldn't do my own art. But hiring an artist to do it, the way I would hire him, though, is I'd give him a piece of the profit, him or her. It wouldn't have to be a him. But whoever it was, like, I would give them a piece of it. I would not pay them up front unless it was very little money because that's what can happen. Now, I guess if it was an artist I knew very well and wouldn't screw me, I, I would pay them up front if that's what they wanted. But if you just find some guy who's an artist or some girl who's an artist, you, you don't pay them up front uh, maybe a little up front, but you don't pay most of the money up front before they've done any work or they can just run off on you. And he said he had someone steal his idea and put it out secretly behind his back. Hmm. I mean, who knows what the real story is with this stuff, but it's possible he 
got rolled here. There are a bunch of scumbags in these type of communities. Yeah, just like there are in poker. February 9th. Don't you people realize there's always been a cancel culture? What do you think boycotting and protesting is about? Been around forever. Well, no, not really. See, yes, there's been boycotting around for a long time. And yes, there's been protesting around for a long time. But it's not the same as cancel culture. Cancel culture means that uh, you're going after people for stating their opinions. Boycotting is more about uh, something major that a company does that people don't agree with, whether it's about the company's product and services or something that uh, the company might support. But not that one person says something that you don't agree with their opinion, you try to get them fired, or you try to make it to where they, they don't ever appear on TV again, or don't ever get any more jobs in movies, or or, uh, or that pressuring their uh, the team to let them go, whatever it is. That, that's cancel culture, where cancel culture is where people are not allowed to give their opinions without facing consequences for it, even if the opinions are fairly mainstream and held by a large percentage of the population. That's what cancel culture is. So that's not the same as boycotting and protesting. But good try. February 7th. Joe Rogan once told a guest that anti-trans attacks are okay on his show. You can say anything we're on Spotify. No. Like, okay. I, I will admit I don't listen that much to Joe Rogan. But I doubt he said that anti-trans attacks are okay on his show. I think he was probably saying that you can feel free to give your opinion and we're on Spotify, and Spotify is okay with this show being used to present all kinds of viewpoints. So I think what Joe Rogo is probably saying is go ahead and give your opinion, even if it's going to be unpopular. And that's fine. That doesn't mean Joe is anti-trans or wants anti-trans attacks. It means that he has someone on his show at the moment who is going to express a controversial opinion that some people may not like regarding trans people. That's not framing that in a very honest way. Okay, I've had enough of Prahlad. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> this is not scheduled here. Let's see. What time is it? What time is it right now? Trying to find the time. What time is it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Hello. Ken and Ija Fabersham here. Welcome to Druffy Time Theater. Yes, it's that time again. I know you're going to be shocked, but... Dan Druff is going to talk about an issue he had with customer service. I know this never happens. You know, if Dan Druff gets a product or service, it always goes swimmingly. It's never any issue, never any personality conflicts. He never feels like he's being cheated in any way. It's just always, he's such an easy customer. Like, look at his split. Everything just works out splendidly. I know you're shocked he's going to tell you another story about this, but um, that's what's coming this week. On with it. Thank you, Colonel Famershab. This is Druffy Time Theater, where I tell you stories, usually from my past. Doesn't have any relevance, typically, to poker and gambling. Just personal stories of my own that you might find entertaining. I got some good remarks about the ones we had on last show. In general, people like Druffy Time Theater, so we've been bringing it back every week. Eventually, I will run out, or at least come close to running out of stories, and this will end. But for the moment... I keep finding more. I keep digging into my brain to get more things to tell you guys about. 
And just when I think there's not much more to dig out of that well, I find more. I actually sat there for a while today thinking, what's it going to be this week? Because I, I still didn't have one coming into today. I, I thought we may have to skip it this week because I couldn't come up with one. But I came up with one. I came up with a pretty good one. This is about a car rental company again. But before you turn it off or skip the segment, before you say, oh, no, I don't want to hear another thing about uh, a car rental company trying to uh, charge you for damage to the car. I don't want to hear it. No, 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 no. Nothing like that. It's actually not about cars at all. It just happens to be involving a car rental company. And it didn't happen to me. I just got involved. So let me tell you what happened. A certain relative of mine, I'm not going to tell you who or how they're related to me, but a certain relative of mine had an unfortunate occurrence at a car rental place. And they tried to handle it themselves, and it didn't work. They were left very unsatisfied with the resolution of the entire situation. And I understood why they were so unsatisfied and frustrated. So this is what happened. You know when you rent a car, you usually have to take a shuttle because you don't have a car. You're renting a car because you don't have a car. So you will take a shuttle to or from the airport where you're getting between the airport and the car rental place. So a certain car rental place in a certain city, and I'm not going to tell you which city and which car rental place, but I will say it involves a relative, it involves a car rental place that is near an airport, and they took a shuttle, and it was actually on the way back. So they had just returned the car, and everything was fine with the car. They returned the car, there was no damage, no surprise charges, everything was cool with the rental, and they were on the shuttle back to the airport. So it seemed like there was not going to be any issue with that company, right? Little problem, though, that this relative accidentally left their cell phone on the shuttle. I'd say this is about 10 years ago, and the cell phone was fairly new, and even 10 years ago, they were expensive. And this person was very upset about it. They were not upset at the car rental company that they left their own phone on the shuttle. And they knew there was a good chance that another person who had rented a car would see that phone and quietly pocket it and sell it. So they figured that the chance of getting back the phone was low, and it was their own fault. So just to make sure everybody understands, this relative of mine was not blaming anyone but themselves for what happened. They understood it was their own carelessness and that they probably weren't getting the phone back and probably another customer saw it and stole it. That was their guess of what would be the ultimate story from this whole thing. But of course, they took a shot to see if they could find it, especially because they realized pretty quickly that they didn't have it anymore. They called from the airport using somebody else's phone, and they said that they left their phone on the shuttle and that they're hoping that it's still there and has it been turned in. So the person at the front desk of the rental place said, hang on, I'll check. And they heard the person get on the radio and ask the driver, was a cell phone found here? So the driver said, there wasn't, but let me go look if I can find one. So the driver got up and walked around the shuttle. And guess what? The phone was sitting there right on the seat and fortunately had not been taken by anybody. Good news, right? 
And the driver came back on the radio and said, yep, I found it. I found the phone. It was on the seat. I'll bring it back. So how is this a story? Shouldn't this be a happy ending? No, because something very weird happened. So this relative got on the plane and expected when they landed that they would call back to the rental place and arrange for the phone to be shipped to them. And they, they were willing to pay for the shipping. They were not going to make the rental place eat any money out of this whole thing. They were very happy to get it back. So they landed. They called the rental place and said, OK, let's arrange for you to mail the phone back to me. And the person at the rental place said, oh, um, I have some bad news for you. The driver didn't actually find your phone. That was a mistake. What? A mistake? How can you mistakenly find a phone? How can you mistakenly think that a phone was sitting somewhere in the shuttle? (laughs) This is an empty shuttle. The driver was asked to go look around the shuttle, see if there's a phone there. And the driver came back and on the radio said back to the person at the front desk, yes, I found the phone here. It was sitting on a seat. Somehow that's a mistake now. Sorry, we don't have your phone. We never found it. So this relative said, wait a minute. (laughs) I heard it. I heard it on the radio. I heard the driver said they found it on the seat. Yeah, that was an error. He didn't really find anything. Well, I'm sure it doesn't take a genius to figure out what happened. That initially they said, yeah, we found the phone. And then before getting the call a few hours later about arranging the shipping, they thought better of it and said, oh, crap, why did we say we found the phone? We should have said we didn't find the phone and that we don't know what happened to it. And then we could either keep it or sell it. Ah, we're so stupid. Well, we can still fix this one. Why don't we just say it was a mistake? So obviously they were trying to steal this person's phone. The problem was they had already given away that they found it, and there was no logical explanation for what happened there. So how did they explain it? How did they explain what the mistake was? Well, they wouldn't. They just said, sorry, it's a mistake. There's nothing we can do. We don't have your phone. We have nothing to ship to you. I'm sorry. It's just gone. You shouldn't have left it here. So this relative asked for the manager. The manager basically said the same thing. The manager said, look, I'm sorry you left your phone here. I'm sorry you got the wrong information, but that's what it was, the wrong information. Your phone wasn't actually found. I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do for you. Can you imagine how frustrating that is? It's one thing to lose your phone and to suspect that maybe an employee found it and took it, but you never know. It it could easily have been taken by another customer, right? But when the employee says that they found it and you hear them say that, and then later you're told that even though they said that, they actually didn't find it, but won't explain how that could have possibly happened, And just tough luck on you, you get nothing back. Imagine how pissed you'd be. And you're nowhere near that location anymore. So you've flown back home. And they know they're going to get away with it. This person told me the story. And I was very angry. I was very angry on their behalf. Because I care about my family. And this made me very angry. That this place was blatantly stealing from my family member like that. So I said, do you mind if I have a crack at solving this? And they said, go right ahead. So I called up the rental place. This was on a Sunday, Sunday morning. I'll tell you in a second why I remember that. Good morning, Sunday morning. 
And I said to them, I'd like to speak to the manager. So I put the manager on. The manager was this very like laid back guy. And I kind of got the impression that he just didn't want to do work. I kind of got the impression right away that he wasn't going to solve the problem, but it wasn't so much out of being malicious, but more just he was lazy and did not want to help. But, you know, of course, I was making him answer for this. So I explained who I was. I explained my relation to this person. And I explained why I was calling. I explained that uh, they were very upset and that I've decided to take over and assist in this matter because it's making me very upset to hear about. So the manager said, yeah, well, I'm sorry about this, but uh, we already explained it. Uh, This was a mistake. It's an unfortunate mistake, but nothing was actually found. And there's nothing we can do. We wish we could find the phone, but we can't. Someone else probably took it. So I said to this manager, I said, okay, can you explain to me what was found? What caused the driver to say they had found the phone when they really had not found the phone? What did they find? Uh, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? You're the manager. Weren't you curious what they found? Because this person admits that they said they found it, right? He said, yeah. I said, okay. So this person who works under you said that they found the phone. And then they come back and they say, actually, I didn't find the phone. You don't find that suspicious? Well, yeah, kind of. I said, okay, so you found it suspicious... And so, don't you want an explanation for what they found and how this could have possibly happened? How does someone imagine that they found a phone? (laughs) I'm not really sure, but there was some kind of mistake that happened. And, like, I don't know. Uh, I don't really totally get it myself, and I understand the way you're thinking, but they're insisting they didn't really find it. It was just a mistake. It was like a a miscommunication. It's a miscommunication? They heard it right there on the radio being said. And this person even admits they said it. It's not even like they said they didn't find the phone. And my relative here thinks they heard that they did find it. This person admits they said they found it, right? Well, uh, yeah, but there is some confusion. Okay, so what was the confusion? It was it was a crazy conversation. <laughs> because How do you explain? How do you explain not just someone who says they found a phone and then did not really find the phone, but how do you explain being the manager and not trying to get to the bottom of what happened there? And I'm telling you from talking to the guy, he sounded like a pothead. He sounded like someone who was lazy. He sounded like someone who just didn't want to deal with this. I, I, I don't even think this guy was in on stealing the phone. I think he didn't like this being dropped in his lap because he knew he would have to fire people and pressure people. And like, he just wanted it all to go away. That was my impression. But I was not going to let that happen. So I said, look, you've got to understand this here. This is going to have to make sense to me. I'm not going to go away until this actually makes sense. So you telling me that they thought they found the phone, radio that they found the phone, but they didn't really find the phone makes no sense to me. I have to know what they found, how it could have possibly been confused as a phone, and what happened in between there. I have to have something that adds up. And not something you make up, but something that adds up that I believe. And I would think you would want that as the manager of the place. And until I have that, I'm not going to go away. Oh, yeah, yeah, I I understand. You know, I understand why it bothers you. And, yeah, I mean, I I, kind of think it's weird, too. But, you know, we we just don't have your phone. I'm sorry. Those just just don't have your phone. I asked him, how many people were involved here? We have the driver. But what about the person at the front desk? Oh, yeah, yeah, they, uh, 
they they said that they also don't know what happened and uh you know they they admitted he said that but they they they, they don't know what happened uh, i guess the driver came back and and they, they both they both agreed it was a mistake so i said well to me it sounds like that these two got together and decided to keep the phone and change their story you you can see how it really looks that way to me right like could you explain any other thing that could have occurred well it could have been a mistake well what kind of mistake well you know I, I don't know. This is someone thought they found it and they didn't. It's kind of unfortunate. <laughs> I said, okay, you know, this is really frustrating. What are we going to do here? What's the next step here? How, how are we going to solve this? Well, I, as, I, as I told the, the relative that this happened to, uh, we, we just don't have the phone. I, I wish we did, but we don't have it. So there's, there's really nothing further to do. I, I wish we had it. I'm really sorry about the miscommunication. But, but there's nothing further we can do. I'm sorry, sorry. So I decided it was time to up the stakes. This guy just wanted it to go away. So I said, all right, I, I think you're not understanding this here. I think you believe that repeating to me over and over that you just don't know what happened and you can't explain it, but there's just no phone and what can we do? I, I think you believe that is going to make it end. And it is not. All it's doing is making me angry. All it's doing is convincing me that this place is dirty and that you have stolen this phone and you are trying as hard as you can to cover up the fact that this phone was stolen. So let me tell you what I'm going to do now because I'm, I'm not going to be the conventional angry customer. I'm not going to just go to the manager who you report to. No, 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 no. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I am a computer programmer. And what I am going to do is I am going to program my computer to reserve every car that you guys have in your system every single day to where nobody will be able to rent any cars from your location until you guys do a real investigation and tell me what really happened. I said, do you understand that? Do you understand I could reserve every single car you have because it does not require a credit card or any kind of real identity to reserve a car. Anyone can reserve a car, and I can easily reserve every car on your system every morning to where no one will be able to rent any cars. Do you understand I could do that? And he said, well, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it could. Uh, he started to get nervous. I said, well, I'm telling you that is going to happen unless a real investigation is done. And to be clear, I'm not demanding you give me anything. I'm not demanding any money. I'm not demanding a new phone. I'm only demanding a real investigation about what happened here. I am demanding that I'm truthfully dealt with. That's all I'm demanding here. Well, he got very nervous. <laughs> now, you may wonder, would I have actually done that? Well, I'll get to that. I'll get to whether I did it, and if I didn't, whether I would have. Well, surprisingly, he, he still kept his calm. <laughs> he, he, he was calm. He, he wasn't, like, nothing would rattle this guy. So he says, well, you know, I, I don't want you to do that. Uh, I know you could. It would be very bad for us here. Um, let, let, me, let me figure out what to do, and, and, and I'll get back to you, okay? <laughs> so I said, okay, but keep in mind, you know, you, you're not going to have any cars for rent tomorrow. If you don't take this seriously, no, no, I, I understand. I'll, I'll call you back soon. So he sounded a little nervous, but he, 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 he never raised his voice or got pissed at me or like 
threaten any consequences back to me for doing it. Now, I hadn't done it. I was just saying I would do it. Well, I will reveal right now that it was a bluff. I was not actually going to do that because that's illegal to do when I could get in trouble. I could get in, I don't know exactly how much trouble, but I I know that doing that sort of thing would be illegal, even if I had a legitimate gripe with them for stealing the phone. That that doesn't give me the right to clog up their system to where they can't rent any cars. So I wasn't going to actually do that and risk getting arrested. But I wanted them to think I might if they didn't deal with me in a fair and rational and honest manner. Because they were definitely trying to cover up the fact that they had stolen this phone. And I wasn't going to have it. They had committed theft from my relative of that phone after already saying that they had found it. So it was 100% they committed this theft and they were trying to cover it up and I wasn't going to let it happen. So I didn't feel bad for saying I was going to do this, but I wasn't actually going to. I just wanted them to think that I would. So they would spring into action and, and take this seriously. Now, had they not done this, then the next day they would have seen I didn't do it, but I, you know, I would have claimed I'm giving them a little more time or whatever. I, I, I wasn't actually ever going to do it. I also wanted to make sure that they understood that I was only demanding that they take it seriously and really look into it. So I, I didn't want this to be seen like I'm making some kind of demands for money, you know, you know send me this or, or uh, I'm going to do such and such to your system because that would be something uh, very illegal as well. I wanted them to understand that this would be just a response I would be taking to them just refusing to investigate their own theft, their own blatant theft of this phone. But again, I wasn't going to actually do it. This guy sat there for a moment and then he got very worried. For once, the guy finally got rattled. It, it shook him out of his uh, pot-induced stupor. And he thought, you know what? This is getting pretty bad. It's getting pretty intense. Um, I, I, I think I better handle this. This isn't going to go away on its own. And I'm going to... And oh, by the way, I, I told him... <laughs> before I hung up, I told him that I'm going to call his manager and corporate... And tell them why I was filling the reservation system. It wasn't just going to happen. I was going to tell them it was because of him and covering up the theft. I I told them that as well. So that sprung him into action. Because he didn't want to be the one responsible for this happening. Because he covered up a theft of a phone. So here we were on Sunday morning. And he had a little bit of a problem though. Not just me. It was that the general manager was the one he reported to. Was a church going lady. And she was very serious about her church going, and she did not like to be bothered during her church services. So he had to decide, does he wait for her to get out of church, or does he interrupt the church service and have her get out of church and deal with this? Well, he decided that heaven can wait. And he called her during church and said, you need to get out of church and talk to me right now. So she walked out of church. And she said, what is it? And he said, well, yeah, the, the, something kind of happened here. Um, we have a very angry relative of a customer. And uh, I, I think that maybe you know, a few of the employees here stole their phone. And he realizes it. And, and they won't admit they stole the phone. But I, I think maybe they did. And now this guy is saying he's going to clog our whole reservation system unless we do something about it. 
And she's like, what? <laughs> she, she's like, Why you, uh, what's happening now? So he told her the story. He told her the, the whole thing about them saying that they had found the phone and then saying they didn't find the phone and no one knowing from anything and, and just trying to make my relative go away and forget about the whole thing. And then this crazy guy calls up saying that uh, their reservation system is going to get clogged up unless they deal with this. So she asked him, she said, well, okay, well, this guy who's saying he's going to do this, so you think he's right? You think we really did steal the phone? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I think that there's a good chance we did, yeah. So she was she was furious. She doesn't like this going on. She's this nice church-going lady. She doesn't want phones being stolen by her employees. So she was furious about this, and now she was worried that they're going to be facing this consequence from this angry relative of the, of the victim who's going to fuck with him in return. So she left church and went straight down to the rental place. And she got to the bottom of this quickly. So she questioned the driver. The driver could not explain to her what happened. He tried, but he just didn't have a coherent story. She asked him, well, what, what happened with the phone? Like, how do, you, how do you say you found a phone and then you didn't find a phone? Well, uh, I don't really know. It just kind of, I just kind of got confused. Well, what did you find? I, 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 I just thought I saw it, but I didn't really see it. And I, like, but you said you found it and you had it, right? Um, yeah, but I, I you know, I, I didn't actually have it yet. And she's like, okay, that, that doesn't sound right. So she went and asked the person at the front desk. Person at the front desk also didn't have a coherent answer. And also seemed very shifty and seemed like that they were in on it as well. She then talked to the manager again and said, why didn't you handle this? And he was like, well, you know, I, I, I just didn't know what to do. You know, they, they, they said it was a mistake and I, I just believed him. You know, they, they, they hadn't done anything like this before. I just, I just kind of gave him credit. I'm sorry. You know, like I just, it didn't totally make sense, but if there was just no phone. I thought maybe there's just a mistake. So she fired both the person at the front desk and the driver. Neither of them could explain this well. Neither of them seemed to be taking this seriously. Neither of them admitted that this looked very really bad. It was very clear from both of their responses that they were both in on it. Also, apparently she had asked them where the phone is. She said, you know, you're, you're going to need to return this. I, I know both of you had something to do with this. Where is it? And they, they kind of implied to her it's just not around anymore, that it, it's gone. So not only did she fire them, but she knew that either they were just outright refusing to return it or more likely had already sold it and couldn't get it back. I don't know exactly the way the conversation went, but it was along those lines, that the, the phone seemed to just be gone and wasn't recoverable, but that they both did it, that they both decided together they're going to change the story. The manager did not get fired. He was just disciplined and told he was an idiot. But what happened with us? Well, the general manager called me up. Because even though I was talking about filling the reservation system, I was not hiding who I was. I wasn't coming at them anonymously and saying, I'm going to do this. I, I told them who I am. And I got a call back from the general manager. The general manager said to me, I'm very sorry about this whole thing. I've looked into it. And you were right. The phone was stolen. Unfortunately, we can't recover it. 
Those two employees are no longer with us, but they swear that they can't get the phone and that it's gone. But we feel very bad what happened here. This is not what we're about. And we understand why you were so angry. So I'm really sorry that the phone itself is gone and whatever data itself was was on the phone is gone and there's nothing we can do about that. But uh, what can we do for you? I said, well, this is really frustrating about the data, but can you buy a new phone for my relative who had that stolen? And she said, yes. I said, okay, how do we go about this? And she said, well, have that person order a phone and send the receipt to me and I will send them the money. And I said, okay. And just to be clear, you're doing this because you investigated the situation and it is your belief that you guys really stole the phone. It was not that you're doing this to uh, prevent anything that I was saying I'm going to do. She said, no, 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 I understand why you were so angry. This has nothing to do with anything you said. I had no idea any of this was going on. Had I known, then I I would have uh, put a stop to this a long time ago, and I would have solved this a long time ago, but uh, um, they weren't telling me uh, until you called up and... (laughs) escalated it somewhat, but they were trying to keep this from me. And uh, once I heard about it, I investigated, and I believe you're correct. I believe the phone was stolen by our employees. And I apologize for that, and that's never something that I would allow in our location to occur. So I said, okay. So I just wanted to make sure they were doing this because they believed it was stolen. Again, because I wasn't hiding who I was. And I wasn't trying to uh, do any kind of blackmail or anything. I, I just, I wanted, all I wanted was a real investigation, which is exactly what they finally did. That's all I wanted. I wanted a honest investigation that made sense. And one got done and they concluded correctly that the phone was stolen and probably sold. And that's why it wasn't recoverable. So they did it. And that was that. So crisis was over. And this relative was quite happy that I got them their phone back. They lost some data, but they were thrilled they got the device. And not only the device, they got a new device. And the one they lost was fairly new, so that wasn't that big of a win. But they thought they lost the whole thing and we had to buy a whole new phone, and they no longer had to. Now they got a new phone, which was covered by this rental place. But can you imagine that? Can you imagine that they actually had the nerve to say they didn't find the phone after they found the phone? But I didn't feel the slightest bit guilty coming at them that aggressively because this was so blatant and so obnoxious what they did. It's not like I just suspected they took it, you know? Like, had they just said, hey, we didn't find it, I would suspect there's a good chance an employee stole it, but there's nothing you can do at that point because maybe an employee didn't steal it. But here, I mean, it was obvious, 100% obvious. And they couldn't even give an explanation. They admitted they said they found it. (laughs) We found it, but no, we actually didn't find it. Well, what did you find? I don't know. You don't know? No, I just thought I found a phone, but I didn't find a phone. Yeah. So when someone does that, you know, sometimes you got to play hardball. And what I learned as a poker player is sometimes you've got to run the big bluff. So I ran the big bluff. I ran the big bluff about the reservation system. Because... I had to get them to do a real investigation of what happened. That's all I wanted was a real and honest investigation. And fortunately, 
we had a nice church-going lady who was in charge of the whole place, who I think honestly did it because she was disturbed of the, about the story, not about the whole thing with the reservation system. I think that's what made the guy get a hold of her quickly, but I think that she jumped into action because she was legitimately bothered that this occurred. I mean, if I if I were the GM, I'd be furious if I heard this story, <laughs> that they tell someone they found their phone, and then they say, oh, you know, we didn't, actually, we didn't find it. We, we were just kidding. We, we, you know how it happens. You, you find a phone, you didn't find a phone, you know, it, 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 you know, these, these mistakes occur. <laughs> Sometimes when you're being treated very unethically, sometimes when you're being dealt with extremely dishonestly, sometimes when thieves are throwing in your face that they're stealing from you, sometimes one must escalate the stakes a bit to get justice. What would I have done if it didn't go this way? What would I have done if the general manager was as uncooperative or lazy as the regular manager. Well, then I would have gone to corporate. I would have pressed this pretty hard. I would have been a big pain in the ass for them in every way possible. Wouldn't have done any flooding of the reservation system or anything illegal, but I would have done a lot of things that would have made things unpleasant for them that were legal. That would have been my next move. But I wanted to try to shake him into doing an honest investigation first, and it worked. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Druffy Time Theater with a happy ending. Gotta love that. Well, here's an ending that was not so happy. Vanessa Cade, who was an ACR pro, America's card room, that is. If you remember the history... She had a blow-up Dan Bilzerian in December of 2020. This is when people didn't really know her very well. She was kind of an unknown in poker. But Dan Bilzerian called her a hoe. He said, shut up, hoe. Nobody knows who you are. And the poker world overwhelmingly supported her regarding how Dan had uh, spoken to her on Twitter. And that got her some positive attention. Then she milked it somewhat, and she got some negative attention for something else that was unrelated. But anyway, um, she got enough positive attention to where America's Card Room CEO Phil Nagy decided to jump on the opportunity with the press she was receiving and signed her as an ACR-sponsored pro. And, And basically... The message was, America's card room does respect women, even though Dan Bilzerian, who is the new rep for GG Poker, does not respect women. So Dan Bilzerian may call women hoes, but we're going to sign the woman that he called the hoe and stood up to him and has been advocating for better treatment of women in poker. So smart move by Phil Nagy, at least appeared so at the time. And I imagine she didn't sign for a lot of money because she wasn't a big name. You may say, wait a minute. No, she was a big name because she won that big tournament on PokerStars. No, not yet. She had not won the big tournament on PokerStars yet. In fact, she hadn't had that much success in poker yet. She had some moderate success. She was able to support herself, but she had not really kicked ass in poker yet until about a week or two after she signed with ACR, 
she was playing on Poker Stars, and she won this massive tournament for $1.25 million. And we talked about this before when it happened. And boy, that was when her stock was at its peak, because not only did she win all that money, and this wasn't like a high-stakes tournament either. She beat a massive field, and she was even offered to make deals, and she refused. She said, no, I have faith in my ability. I'm going to try to win this thing. And she did. And credit to her. I mean, she won a, a tough tournament with a huge field and never flinched and never wanted to make a deal and outright won the whole thing. Okay? So I have respect for that. That was a great performance. And she won life-changing money. And all of a sudden, everyone loved Vanessa Cade. Even people that were critical of her before for over-milking the Bulzarian thing and for writing some other things on Twitter that were irritating people. Uh, all of a sudden, all that was forgotten. And uh, she was the new darling of poker. So, wow. ACR really got a score there because here she was signed for probably not very much money just based upon her going against Dan Bilzerian. And then here she wins this huge Poker Stars tournament and gets all kinds of press for it. And she's a pretty girl in her mid-30s. So, I mean, they really hit the jackpot on that one, so it seemed. The problem was that Vanessa Cade was a drama magnet. That's, that's the best way to say it. She was a drama magnet. There, there was always something happening where she was involved in some kind of Twitter drama. And the stories kept on coming. And none of these were like huge scandals. Like it, she didn't cheat anybody. She didn't do anything horrible. But there was just drama surrounding her constantly. Uh, one of the things that came out, so she kept going after Gigi Poker and bashing Gigi Poker for not firing Dan Bilzerian, for, for standing behind him and, and keeping him as a sponsored pro. And she just kept kind of needling them over and over about this. And and then it came out, and actually from her, she was the one who uh, who put this out there, that all that time that she had been receiving money from GG Poker as an affiliate for people she had signed up there two years prior. People are like, wait a minute. So while you're saying they're so evil, you're, you're cashing $2,000 a month checks from them? Well, yeah, but these are people I signed up years ago. I, I, I don't uh, still sign people up there because I don't believe in them anymore. <laughs> people are like, wait a minute. No, you like if you're going to be receiving affiliate checks from them, then that is you still being associated with them. So how can you bash them as, as an affiliate, even if you're not actively recruiting people? If if you really have that conviction, you should have told them stuff your two hundred your two thousand a month up your ass. I don't want any money from you guys anymore. I don't believe in you guys anymore. But no, she was quietly cashing those checks and didn't tell anyone until they terminated those payments because she was bashing them. And they were actually right about that. They they were actually right at GG because when you are an affiliate, when you are drawing affiliate revenue, you are expected to at the very least not criticize the site. That's something you give up. You give up your free speech about the site as an affiliate of the site. Notice, by the way, I'm not an affiliate for anybody because I do not want to have to hold back my opinions about sites that don't do the right thing. Like, look at the whole thing that happened recently. We just had uh, that story about uh, Mighty Mao 5 or Mighty Mouse, uh, a.k.a. Eddie Town 23 who had 
almost uh, 11K confiscated by ACR and they wouldn't give him a reason for it. And then I helped him get that money back. And we did a story on the show about it too. And while it had a happy ending, uh, I couldn't have done this as an ACR affiliate because I had a lot of critical things to say about ACR and their behavior in this matter. I, I think Chris Moneymaker has done a great job as their lead pro and he helped the guy get it back. Basically, I went to Moneymaker and, and advocated for... Uh, Eddie Town 23 and uh, uh, Moneymaker convinced them to give the money back. But I had a lot of criticism for ACR's procedure in this whole thing and the fact that they wouldn't explain what, why they were confiscating his money or what he did. But I couldn't have done this if I were an affiliate. So I'm not an affiliate, so I can be honest about my feelings about these sites when they engage in what I believe is wrongdoing. But if you are an affiliate, yeah, you have to keep your mouth shut or you you risk that they're going to take away your affiliate money and take away your affiliate deal. And that's what they did. And uh, it makes sense. If you are a rep for the site in any way, if you're drawing an in income to promote them or for having promoted them, then you cannot bash them because that's the opposite of promoting them. So I actually agreed with what they did. I agreed that someone who's bashing the site should not be drawing affiliate checks. I think it would have been fine if she resigned from getting the affiliate checks and bashed them. I felt she beat a dead horse too much, but if she wanted to continue bashing them, that's her right. But you can't expect to keep bashing a site and get checks for them, for, for, for past promotion of them, that ongoing checks. They can't take back the money they already paid her, but they, they can say, we're not paying you anymore to keep bashing us. They can definitely say that. And that's what I said at the time. And a number of other people said that too. So she didn't look the best regarding that whole thing. There are a number of people who were critical of her, but there were others on her side. There were others saying, look, this is independent. She referred people years ago. The agreement was that she gets a percentage of the rake they generate, and they're still playing on there, so she should get the rake, and that they're violating the agreement by terminating her. I didn't agree, but that's what some people said. But that was kind of forgotten about, and yeah, it wasn't a huge scandal or anything. In fact, she's the one who brought it all up on Twitter that they stopped these payments, otherwise no one had a way to know about it. So this was not a secret that I got exposed. She exposed it herself. But anyway, once everybody got past that, once that story died down, the next thing that happened was kind of like a sex scandal involving ACR, which put Vanessa in a very awkward position. Now, I actually felt this, quote, sex scandal was a nothing burger, and I covered it extensively on this show. And I said that every single person involved in that whole thing, commenting on both sides of the issue, had an agenda. It was very interesting, actually. And I wasn't one of them. I, like, I didn't have an agenda here. I was actually kind of in the middle. But you had these people who were just bashing ACR and Vanessa super hard, saying that she was a hypocrite to stay with ACR, given that they were having their own sexual harassment-related scandal involving their CEO. But then these people all had their own agenda. Some of them were friends of Blazarian. Some of them represented other sites. They, they, they all had different reasons to have their opinions, either pro-ACR slash pro-Vanessa or anti-ACR slash anti-Vanessa. I found like everybody had an agenda on both sides. So it was funny because both sides were accusing each other of having an agenda, and both sides were right. So I wasn't even like anti-Vanessa in this whole thing. In fact... I did believe that this sex scandal was kind of a nothing burger. Basically, I'm not going to rehash the whole thing again, but there was a streamer 
who went by WePro83, and she yeah, is a, a female streamer for ACR called the, the ACR Stormers, where these, these uh, streamers who would stream their play on ACR. So they had this show that uh, they would do, and uh, WePro was on there, and her boyfriend, uh, Ruben, who goes by Wug, 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 Wug on Twitter, he was on there a lot, and Phil Nagy would get on there a lot, and it was a very raunchy show. They'd always be making sexual jokes and stuff like that, and people enjoyed it. And they had a thing they called the slut pull instead of a slot pull. It was like a slot pull, but they called it a slut pull. And so it's a lot of like raunchy, sexually charged humor on there. And then Ruben, who is uh, WePro's boyfriend, who who had been part of the whole thing, all the raunchiness on there all that time, he just decided one day he was offended by a sexual comment that Phil Nagy made to WePro, his girlfriend. And I'm like, what? You're objecting now after all this time? Like, you, you guys have been doing this together all this time. Now suddenly you're offended? Like, it made no sense. It made no, no sense why now was the time to say this is inappropriate when you've been a willing participant, when all of you have been a willing participant in this type of talk back and forth. It's not like they had just like a regular uh, Twitch stream or a regular broadcast and Phil Nagy made some kind of off-color comment about his girlfriend. They've been doing this for months and all been having a good time with it. So it made no sense to me. It didn't seem like a scandal. But in the defense of those who were criticizing Phil Nagy, a number of other women came forward, some of whom didn't really have a history of any kind of uh, questionable accusations, and were claiming that Phil Nagy had uh, made inappropriate comments to them before, and they felt uncomfortable around him, and that he was uh, inappropriate with them all the time. And so uh, there may have been something to allegations that he didn't behave respectfully around women. And I'm not talking about that we pro who was definitely engaging in it very willingly, and I don't know why they're suddenly so offended, but would I believe that Phil Nagy may have engaged in some questionable behavior regarding how he would talk to women? Yes. But do I think this was like a major scandal? No. And the main part of the scandal was a nothing burger. So Vanessa took a lot of heat over this, because remember, her whole identity was based upon being this big defender of women and how women are treated in poker, and she supposedly uh, was making this her main cause, and yet she was signed with ACR, where the CEO was accused of these things. So they're saying, how are you going off on GG for having Bilzerian as a site pro when your CEO of the company you represent is sexually harassing women? And... She kind of danced around it, but she had a hard time really articulating how this was okay, how she wasn't a hypocrite. And and that's the whole problem here, is when you set such a high standard of behavior, and when everything you are saying is always through the lens of, uh, um, oh, women are so persecuted in poker, oh, women are mistreated so much in poker, oh, you know, look at all these bad things that are being done and said to women in poker— if you're going to set a super high standard for all of that, and I do think women should be treated respectfully in poker, and I always have treated women respectfully in poker, by the way. I've, I've never made uh, sexual comments to women in poker. I've never talked down to women in poker. Like, I don't, I don't believe in behaving that way. I think women should be treated with respect at the poker table and away from the poker table. And that's how I have always treated women and, and uh, people who have uh, been with me in person or online, will vouch for that. And I've been in poker for two decades. You've never heard of anything with me uh, sexually harassing women. So I, I'm, 
I'm practicing what I preach here. And I agree with Vanessa that women should be treated respectfully in poker, at the poker table and away from the poker table. But if you're going to constantly hassle a site for having a pro who you perceive has not been always respectful towards women, and you're going to harp on this for months, you better be sure that the site you represent doesn't have some of the same valid complaints. And it did. Phil Nagy was the subject of a number of sexual harassment complaints. And I don't know how many are true. Maybe some are true. Maybe all are true. Maybe none are true. Who knows? But what I'm saying here is that their house wasn't totally clean. And this became tough for Vanessa. This is what can happen if you attach yourself too much to a cause and set a super high standard. And really, the only way you can have that type of standard is if you don't associate yourself with any company. That's the problem. If you expect 100% pristine behavior from all employees of every company and you rake them over the coals when you don't get that, when you don't see that, then the company you're associated with, then they better never make a mistake. Otherwise, you're going to look bad if you don't leave. That's the problem. So that's what happened here. And I understood why people were giving Vanessa a hard time. How come you give such a hard time to GG, but when it happens at ACR, you look the other way? So basically, her only response was, the only response she could have given, aside from just leaving, was, no, I'm not giving ACR a pass either. I'm going to be watching, and if anything happens here, I'm going to speak up. That's, that's basically what she said. And she was in a tough spot there, no question. It's a lot easier said than done to just break your contract and walk away. But that was the dilemma she got herself into. And she didn't even need, need to do this. That's what's so stupid. Uh, she handled the initial Bilzerian thing very well. She handled it with a combination of humor and seriousness, but kind of like a perfect combination of both. So she made her profile picture a hoe, like a garden hoe, but at the same time was was calling out Dan for the way he was talking to her and saying this isn't all right to talk to women this way. And people backed her. People backed her big time. But then what you do is you, you say your piece about that, and then you drop it. You move on. You, you don't keep harping on it. You, you don't keep hassling GG. Oh, why haven't you fired Dan yet? It's been a few months. Why haven't you fired him yet? Like, it's not like anything new was happening. So she pushed it too far. And she didn't need this. She didn't need to attach this to her identity. She had plenty going for her already. She handled the initial thing well. She's an attractive female in her 30s, which you know there aren't that many of in poker. And then she even had that big win on poker stars that validated her ability at the table. So, all right, she's got everything now. She's got the look. She's got the big win. She she handled the being called a hoe by Bilzerian well at first. So, okay, let it go. You don't have to be an activist anymore. Now, if you see women blatantly being mistreated, then yeah, say something. If you want to stand up for uh, obvious mistreatments of women that you hear about or, or witness or whatever, yeah, I mean, go, go ahead and do that. But uh, you don't have to make it define you at that point. Otherwise, you're just introducing drama where it doesn't need to be. And, and you can speak up for women in poker 
without doing that. You don't have to constantly be in everyone's face about it. You, you can wait till things happen and then speak up. Her time at ACR was coming to an end contractually in early February because they, they signed her early last year. So the year was up and she had to decide what to do. She had to decide, does she stay there? Because remember, she was signed for not very much money. I don't know how much. I'm just guessing. But uh, I can't imagine she was given a huge contract. Like like Chris Moneymaker, he must have been given something pretty good because he's Chris Moneymaker. But Vanessa Cade, who hadn't had her Poker Stars win yet and really was only known for standing up to Dan Bilzerian, she's not going to get big money. That's just common sense. So when it came time to renew her, she was... I, I believe she must have thought she was worth more than what she was worth the year before. Now, in some ways, she was, because she had that big Poker Stars win from that point and became much more known in poker than she had been when she signed with ACR. However, she also had drama that had been following her all the time. And that can sometimes be a detriment to one's value. I don't know the way ACR saw it, but it, it's very possible that they saw it this way. So... When it came time to renew her, I don't know if she entered into any negotiations or if she just decided she didn't want to. But what I do know for sure is that Vanessa Cade is no longer a sponsored pro for ACR. And she announced this. Here's what she wrote on Twitter. This is on uh, February 9th. I've made a difficult decision to step down from ACR. Now, I believe this was a year from when she signed. She didn't say that, but I, I think step down really means not renewing, but whatever. While they've kept the promise to stop the behavior we saw back in June, that's referring to the WePro thing, unfortunately, there have been similar ongoing issues behind the scenes that I've spent considerable energy trying to get them to address. Attempting to move the needle on this is exhausting. I've always wanted to be an ambassador for the game and remember how happy I was the day it finally happened, but I've gotten to the point where I feel proportionately disappointed and frustrated. Though there are many good people at ACR, it's clear we have different values and it's not where I belong. Hmm. I appreciate my time there and wish them the best. All right, let's break this down. This is an interesting statement. First of all, you don't have to do this. You can just leave and not bash the company on the way out. You can just say, I, I've decided not to renew at ACR. I thank them for giving me the opportunity to represent them. I've decided to go a different direction. That's it. You don't have to go on about the different values, and you don't have to go on about the ongoing issues behind the scenes. I mean, she can. It's, it's her free speech. She can say it. But you don't have to. It, it's usually better when you're leaving a company to just keep your mouth shut. Because the problem is the next company is going to say, hey, wait a minute. I don't know if we want to sign this person because when they leave, if they're dissatisfied with something, they're going to bash us. So unless you're convinced you're not going to sign with anywhere else again and you just want to go off, then sometimes this can hurt your future value. So you don't want to go out bashing them. Unless it's something like really major. If it's something you feel is so important you have to say, then say it. But you don't have to do this usually. And here, I, I don't think anything so terrible happened that she had to say it, and nor did she really get specific anyway. 
So she said they've kept the promise to stop the behavior we saw back in June, referring again to that WePro situation, which which was nothing. And I think she knew it was nothing, but she, she couldn't say it was nothing because she's been on this whole, you never make any kind of uh, degrading comment towards women bandwagon. And even though the woman that it was made to had been willing, willingly participating in it, she couldn't explain that. So she just had to say, oh, no, sorry, this, is, this isn't appropriate. And she kind of said that because she felt forced to, I believe. But... Uh, Again, there were allegations about Phil Nagy from other people that may have really been ones that were about behavior he should not have engaged in. Now, there's two sides to every story, so who knows, but maybe that's what she's referring to as the ongoing issues behind the scenes that she spent considerable energy trying to get them to address. Now, what she may have done is she she may have been furious about all the stuff that came out during that WePro situation in June. And she may have gone to Phil Nagy and said, look, this is really hard for me here because here I've been bashing GG all this time for their association with Dan Bilzerian, and now there's all this stuff coming out about you. And you're the CEO. It's worse than just a sponsored pro like Bilzerian. You're the damn CEO, and you have these women coming out of nowhere and saying that you, you were sexually harassing them online. And they, they feel uncomfortable talking to you. So, like, what do we do here? <laughs> Uh, how are we going to handle this? And she may not have loved his response. You know, she may have only gotten half commitments from him, or or maybe she felt he was still doing it, or maybe she felt that he didn't ever address the other allegations and only addressed the easy one with WePro. Who knows? But she said she spent considerable energy trying to get them to address. I actually believe that. I, I think she probably did try to get them to come out with a mea culpa, and have Phil Nagy say, okay, I was a bad, bad sexual harasser. I'm never going to do it again. And, and he never quite did that. He, he apologized for the way he talked to WePro, which, again, I didn't feel he had to do. But I think he didn't own up to as much as she probably wanted him to. And she probably felt this was a bad reflection upon her that she's associated with him. It makes her look like a hypocrite. So when she said attempting to move the needle on this is exhausting, I think what she's saying that is uh, that she wants to have her cause. She wants to have her whole gimmick of being the super advocate for women in poker, and it's very hard to be that when Phil Nagy is the CEO of the company you're representing. I think that's what she's trying to say. It probably is exhausting. She's probably not kidding. But she says she's feeling proportionately disappointed and frustrated. Yeah, I mean, she probably is because she doesn't want to look like a hypocrite. However, this is somewhat her fault for setting this standard that is so hard for every company to keep to. And that every time something is alleged that a guy says something to a girl which is inappropriate and you're associated with that company, now it looks bad on you. Like it's, That's the problem. So she said, we have different values. It's not where I belong. So what else could be going on here? Well... Where is Vanessa Cade from? I don't know where she lives right now. I know she spent some time in Las Vegas playing cash. I even saw her at the next table over at Bellagio when I was playing there the last time I played uh, live poker at Bellagio. But she's Canadian. I don't know if she still lives there, but she is Canadian. Canadians can play on Poker Stars. Of course they can. In fact, that's where she had her big win early last year. Now, what's a better site to represent? America's card room with the CEO or may who may or may not be engaging in uh, 
questionable behavior towards women or poker stars? Hmm. Which one would you rather represent? So I have a feeling that she is hoping poker stars signs her. Will they sign her? I don't know. There are some reasons why they would sign her. She won that big tournament on their site. She is an attractive female in her 30s. She is Canadian, and they are trying to appeal to the Canadian market. These are all good reasons to sign Vanessa Cade to a contract for fairly good money. But there are some reasons not to sign Vanessa Cade and to stay away from her, such as all of this drama she seems to bring, such as the fact that she will criticize companies that she previously represented on the way out, such as that if there's any kind of allegations about uh, other pros on Poker Stars or management in Poker Stars and how they have uh, spoken to or acted towards women, that she may bash them. So they may feel that she is potentially going to be a problem and that they don't want to sign anyone who is potentially going to be a problem. They have not said this. I haven't communicated with poker stars about this, and I don't plan to. I haven't communicated with anyone about this. These are all my observations. But it doesn't take a genius to look at this and say, look, she's, she's been a lot of drama. <laughs> she has been. And a lot of this has been her own doing. A lot of this has been her throwing herself into the drama, which she can do. And look, I'll throw myself into drama sometimes. I won't say I'm drama-free. But when you throw yourself into the drama, then sometimes poker sites do not want you representing them. Poker sites like having reps who tow the company line, who promote them, and who don't turn people off and who don't make statements that can make the company look bad. And if poker stars feels that she will put her causes on a higher priority than their site, they may not want her, despite the positive she brings to the table. So, I don't know what's going to happen. Now, she's currently unsigned as I speak. Right now on February 20th at 12.42 a.m., she's currently unsigned. She may remain unsigned. She may feel she doesn't need to sign with anybody because she's got money now. So maybe she feels if Star signs me, great. If they don't, oh well. I'd rather be with nobody than have to continue getting these allegations of being a hypocrite by being an ACR pro. That may be her attitude about this whole thing. And that's actually understandable. If her being an ACR pro makes her look bad and it makes her look hypocritical and she wants to shed that, yeah, I do the same thing in her shoes. Though I, I wouldn't bash them on the way out, but I, if, if this was becoming a problem, as it looks like it has been, even if the allegations against Phil Nagy aren't true, if people are taking them seriously enough and it's making you look bad, yeah, I can see wanting to separate yourself. I, I totally can. 
But I am just saying she gets involved in a lot of drama, and that makes you less appealing as someone who wants to be signed to a site. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. I am somebody, as you guys know, who speaks my mind about things. And there's no doubt that even if I was more of a tournament player, you guys know I'm more of a cash player, so that makes me less likely to be signed anywhere. Even like if we go back 15 years and more people are getting signed, uh, there's factors working against me, such as the fact that I'm a dude. Now I'm an older dude. 15 years ago, I wasn't that old, but now I am. So I'm an older dude, and I don't play tournaments much. So these are reasons sites would not sign me. But even if this was different, even if I were younger and I played tournaments more, one factor that would work against me is that people know that I will speak out when I feel sites are not behaving well, and that I wouldn't keep my mouth shut if I felt a site that I was representing was acting unethically. And I don't mean I would jump on them for every little thing. You know, I, I would have loyalty to the company that signed me. I wouldn't bite the hand that fed me, but I, I wouldn't want to watch a company I was representing acting unethically and being unable to say anything. But these companies would know that too. So that would be a reason that they may not want to sign me even if everything else was good. Fortunately, I don't have to worry about this. I guess fortunately or unfortunately. I mean, it is nice to get the free money to represent these sites. And I I have been signed for little short-term things before, like at a final table or whatever. Yeah, I've told you guys about that before. But I've never been on any kind of even medium-term deal with any poker site ever to represent them. And would it have been nice to get the money? Yeah, it would have. But I do like being able to say what I want to say. I always talk about poker fraud running at a loss. And part of that reason is because I have not attempted to become an affiliate. And I also have not solicited sponsors here. So I actually run it at a loss voluntarily because I want to be able to say what I have to say. I want to express my opinion at all times. That doesn't mean I'll turn down all money. It doesn't mean I'll turn down all ads. I I will take ads if they come to me. And I, I will do things off the poker felt that can make me extra money if, if the opportunity comes up, but a lot of things I won't. And I could have had some more opportunities if I was less outspoken. Now, I'm not going to be delusional. It's not like I'm a pretty 25-year-old girl who everyone's begging to sign. At this point, I'm not that marketable. Just not being much of a tournament player anymore, or really not ever, and being 50 years old, <laughs> so, and being a guy. I mean, these things work against me. That's fine. And I know Vanessa's in a different spot. She's a mid-30s, fairly attractive female who just had a big tournament win on PokerStars last year. So yeah, that's different. I understand why she wants to have some value as a site ambassador, I can respect someone who is sticking to their principles, but I also feel she creates a lot of unnecessary drama. And there's one other issue, and that is that sometimes by making too much noise, you can actually hurt the cause. And that's what I feel she was doing. You you can be supportive of the way women are treated in poker without 
constantly harping on it, without constantly jumping on everyone, without constantly being in everyone's face because some guy got signed as a sponsored pro who has shown some attitudes that don't respect women. You can express your frustration with it, but uh, if you harp on it too much, it starts to get on people's nerves. It's, It's like the... You know, pick your battle sort of thing. If there's too much noise, then they tune you out entirely. That's the problem. You have to make sure to speak out when people are going to want to listen to you. And if you speak out about one thing too much, eventually it all becomes noise. And that's the worst thing, because then if you have an important message, it doesn't get out. Then you become the boy who cried wolf. You don't want to become the boy who cried wolf. So you can advocate you can advocate for the way women should be treated in poker without being too in your face about it. And I'm not saying this from a sexist standpoint like oh you know women need to shut up and sit down and not say much if they're mistreated. That's not what I'm saying. If you're mistreated, definitely speak up. If you notice people actually being mistreated, go ahead and speak up. But you shouldn't harp on minor or fairly minor issues for too long or otherwise it all becomes noise that's all i'm saying and this is coming from someone who has always treated women with respect in poker and wants to see women treated with respect in poker i'm someone who doesn't like that some men don't treat women well in poker though truthfully there are some women who don't treat other women well in poker and there's some women who don't treat men well in poker there's that too all women in poker are not angels. I, I can tell you that for sure. But definitely there is something. There is uh, a valid complaint that some men don't treat women well at the table and that some women or some men sexually harass women at the table. I mean, I, I've, I've seen that. Not as often as people claim it happens, but I, I've seen some instances of that. So I can see the challenges of being a female in poker. There also are some advantages of being a female in poker, which aren't discussed enough, especially an attractive female. But you can make it your cause without beating people over the head with it too much. Okay, so moving on to the next topic. The Global Poker Index Awards were held this past week. And this is a real awards ceremony. This is not something online. It's not done over Zoom. People actually get together for a real award show and they dress up and actual physical awards are given in the different categories that the GPI has put together. And there's a number of categories and we've talked about this on a recent episode. I'm going to quickly read to you who won each award, and then we'll go back and talk about a few of them. So the GPI Poker Player of the Year was Ali Imservic. He also won the Poker Go Tour Player of the Year. The GPI Female Poker Player of the Year was Nadia Magnus. The GPI Mid-Major Player of the Year was David Mazarilov. The Best Tournament Director was Paul Campbell of the Aria. That one actually we'll go back to. The 
Charitable Initiative Award went to Veronica Brill. We will talk about that one as well. The Best Final Table Performance was Adam Friedman. Best Twitter Personality, Jamie Kerstetter. We're definitely going to talk about that one. Best Media Content Photo went to Enrique Malvavon for Poker Go. The Stupid Fans' Choice Best Trophy Award went to Mike Sexton's WPT Championship Cup. That's a stupid category, the best trophy. The Services to Poker Award went to Kevin Mathers, who listens to this show. We will talk about that. Best Live Reporter went to Christian Zetsky. Best Media Content Written Form went to Lance Bradley of Pocket Fives. Best Vlogger, Brad Owen. Best Event, the World Series of Poker main event. That's a stupid award also, by the way. The GPI Award of Merit went to Maria Konnikova. The GPI Breakout Player went to Johan Gilbert. The Fans Choice Best Hand was a hand that Doug Polk played where he folded uh, against Phil Helmuth and was correct in a tough spot. Best Podcast, Poker Fraudulent Radio. No, I wish. Poker in the Ears with James Hardigan and Joe Stapleton for Poker Stars. Best Industry Person, Matt Savage. Player's Choice for Toughest Opponent, Ali Imsrovic. Best Media Content Video Form was to Remco Rimkeva from uh, a Stephanie Unger piece on Poker Go. Fans' Choice Poker Personality, PFA listener Jonathan Little was up for that, but he did not win. It went to Masato Yokosawa. Best Streamer went to Spraggy, a.k.a. Ben Sprague. Mr. Marley Cordero, by the way. And Best Broadcaster went to Jeff Platt. Okay, so I'm not going to talk about most of these. Just wanted to run down the list. And a lot of these people are actually there to physically receive the award. Let's talk about some of these categories. First, I want to talk about two categories where there were no nominees and they just gave an award. One of them was the Charitable Initiative Award. And that was just one they decided they're going to give out rather than have nominees, and that went to Veronica Brill. And I have no problem with this one. I just wanted to mention it. If you remember, we did a segment on the show about it. She raised money for quadriplegic player Kale Cleeton to get a van so he could uh, go to the World Series of Poker. So it's a special van that accommodates his uh, wheelchair. Obviously, he can't drive it, but uh, it makes it a lot easier for him to get around. Uh, He is well-liked, and the poker community got together, and she was the one who put the fundraiser together for this van and raised the money for this van for him. And it was a nice thing for the community to do. And from everything I know of the guy, he deserves it. I don't really know him personally, but I know of him. And that was nice of Veronica to do this. They they are friends, but this was nice of her to put together. And yeah, that's a nice award that she got for that. So I have no issue with that award. I had no idea that they would be doing this, nor did I have any idea that they would be doing this other award that was just given with no nominees. And that was to Kevin Mathers, who listens to this show, Kev Math. 
He got the Services to Poker Award. It's kind of a weird name of an award, but it is pretty accurate in how it describes what he does. Services to Poker. Kev Math is a guy who you just ask a question about something going on, especially in the poker tournament scene, and he just brings the answer to you. For years before he was working for the World Series as a contractor, he was the best one to go to for World Series information, not any of their employees, which is crazy. That He knew more than the employees did. So he's done this for many, many years, and he doesn't get anything out of it. I mean, he's gotten some jobs related to the fact that he had done this, but he started doing this just to be helpful, and he still does it to, do, to be helpful. Like he, he, His main presence on poker Twitter is just being helpful. He doesn't express many opinions. He's never controversial. He's just a nice guy who likes helping people and likes being there with the answers. So people have really appreciated this over the years. And he got a GPI award for that. And I think that's great. It's great they got recognized for that. So very good. So neither of those two awards do I have any problem with. Now, let's get to some of the controversial awards. Neither of these were controversial, by the way. I just wanted to mention them. But here's some that were controversial. Some people felt that the Best Industry Person Award should have gone to Jack Effel and not Matt Savage. And when I say people, one of the people that was really making a big deal about this was Alan Kessler. Now, Kessler has an axe to grind with Matt Savage. They don't get along. And whenever Kessler can criticize Matt Savage, he does. Sometimes Kessler has a point in his criticism in where I agree with him. And sometimes I think he's just unnecessarily picking on Matt Savage because he doesn't like him. So I'll tell you shortly what I think about this. And by the way, whether or not Matt Savage was the one to deserve this award, this is no fault to him because this isn't his choice. This is the GPI's choice. But the four to choose from here were Tony Burns, Jack Effel, Maury Escondani, and Matt Savage. Matt Savage ended up being the winner. Kessler felt that Jack Effel should have been the best industry person for 2021 because the World Series ran pretty smoothly, even though they had a lot to deal with given the whole COVID situation. Now, I will say that Effel lucked out somewhat in that there were no COVID outbreaks until the very end, mainly the main event and some of the events after that. But for the most of the series, there was not any kind of COVID problem, except for a few cases here and there. So that really made it much easier to manage the series during COVID when, for whatever reason, just the outbreaks weren't happening. And then they kicked into higher gear during the main event. Still, I will admit that Jack Effel did a good job overall with the World Series in 2021, given the challenges that were present. So had he won Best Industry Person for that, I would say, okay, you know, I, I can understand that. That's a deserved award. Alan Kessler was complaining that Matt Savage just didn't do much in 2021. 
and that of all people, he just didn't deserve it. But again, Kessler is looking for any reason to criticize Savage. He always had to take anything he says about Matt Savage with a grain of salt. Kessler tweeted, Last night, Matt Savage realized he didn't deserve the GPI Industry Person Award. What he should have done is walk up to the podium, say how challenging a year it was with the pandemic, say he was basically out of the industry that year, and offer the award to the second-place finisher. Well, you know, if you get the award, you get the award. You may think you didn't deserve it, but you got it, that's it. I, I don't really agree with that. Kessler does raise a point that it does seem like this wasn't really the year to give it to Matt Savage. That due to the reduced schedule in 2021 from COVID, that he didn't do much work. It's not really his fault, but he didn't do that much work. That you really should give this to someone who was very impactful in 2021. And that while Matt Savage has been very impactful other years, I think 2021 wasn't really a year he was. I think Ethel was more impactful in 2021. Kessler said... This proves the GPI awards are a total sham. Matt basically didn't work in 2021, while the other nominees in the industry person category all had a major impact. Well, I guess he did play some golf and did commentary on some online WPT events, if that counts. (laughs) So, all right. I mean, I kind of agree with Kessler here. Nothing against Matt Savage, who I've always had a good relationship with. I just think it wasn't this year that he deserved that award. I think other years you could make a good case for this, but twenty twenty one really not through his fault. Uh, he just didn't have as much of an impact. So Kessler has a point there. However, let's go over to the next category I wanted to talk about, and that was the best poker photo, the best media photo. Kessler felt that the quote iconic end of an era photo by Haley Hotchdelter should have won the award when it did not. So Haley took a picture of the empty Rio just after they had emptied it out when the World Series was over, and it was called End of an Era because the World Series is moving to Horseshoe and Paris, Horseshoe being the former Bally's. So it's going to be at Horseshoe and Paris in 2022, so there's going to be no more Rio World Series of Poker. So she took a picture of the empty room signifying that. And some people felt this was a powerful photo and Kessler felt that. And Kessler felt that she should have won it. The winner was Enrique Malavon and his picture was of the main event bubble, which personally makes me depressed to see because I was so close to being there. I was like 50 spots away. There was a pretty good picture taken by this Enrique Malfavon of the excitement of seeing the main event bubble finally burst. And I can understand why he won that. And most people seem to agree that that was the best photo of the ones that they put up there for nomination. In fact, Atari Robbie, who tweets a lot about poker, said that the empty room picture by Haley wasn't even one of her best photos of the year. That if they're going to pick a Haley photo, there were many other ones to take. I don't know which ones he was referring to, but he's probably right. While it was kind of interesting to see the empty room, okay, this is the last time we're going to see that room, 
and here it is all empty and wow, it's over for the Rio for the World Series of Poker. I don't think that it's like an iconic photo. It really is just a picture of an empty room. There's a reason she took it, and I understand, but it's not an iconic photo, nor did that photo require a lot of skill as a photographer. Whereas a lot of the other photos that are shown in poker media, including many taken by Haley herself, do require the skill to take the right shot at the right moment from the right angle. That's that's why this Enrique guy won, because he took an interesting photo of right as the main event bubble was bursting and everyone's reaction and the, w- the way he positioned the camera and everything like that. And this is something that's not as easy to do as an amateur as you might think. So it's not just the moment you take the photo, it's how you position the photo, how you frame the photo. Like There's, there's a lot of art that goes into that that people don't realize. But it doesn't really go into taking a picture of an empty room. You may say, wow, this is the last time we're going to see the Amazon room, so let's take a picture of the empty Amazon room and post it. Yeah, that's, that's worth doing, but that one actually does not require much skill as a photographer. I could have taken a picture just as good as the one Haley took of the empty Amazon room, whereas some of the other photographic work she did, I could not have done as good of a job as she did. So I think this Atari Robbie was right, that it's not even her best photo. So she didn't win, so I'm not saying that she should have won. And I know she was actually present because they don't know who's winning. You know, the nominees don't know who's who's going to actually get it. So it's kind of like the Academy Awards that a lot of the nominees show up. And then, of course, only one person wins in each category. So she showed up there. I saw a picture of her at the GPI Awards. But this Enrique guy won it. But I think that's fine. Kessler doesn't like it, but... I don't agree with him there. Okay, so moving on to the uh, next thing I want to talk about here in in the GPI Awards. The best Twitter personality, Jamie Kerstetter. Now, I want to start off by saying that I have nothing against Jamie Kerstetter. I have nothing against Jamie Kerstetter on Twitter. I think her tweets are fine. I think that she did a good job as a broadcaster standing in for Norman Chad when he had COVID. And I generally think positive things about Jamie Kerstetter. So there's nothing against her. And this is nothing against her Twitter. But I don't see how she is the best Twitter personality. Why? Because I don't really notice that much of what she tweets. It's not like everyone's constantly sharing Jamie Kerstetter tweets and she's just always dropping epic tweets on the poker world. She isn't. You know, she, she tweets things. And sometimes it's inter- interesting. Sometimes it's uh, mundane. Kind of just like most people. She's just another well-known poker player who is tweeting. I don't see her as a best Twitter personality. She's just someone on Twitter who, who tweets. Who's from poker. That, that's Really, the way I see her, and I think the way most people see her. So, like, the typical person who's on poker Twitter, and you say the name Jamie Kerstetter to them, very few are going to say, oh, man, do you see her tweets? Man, I love following her. I can't wait to see the next thing she writes. Like, no one thinks that. Just about nobody thinks that. 
I've never even heard that about Jamie Kerstetter. Like, you've got to see her Twitter. You've got to see all the stuff she drops on Twitter. You've got to see her hot takes. Like, no, nobody says that. Nobody thinks that about her. And she isn't really controversial. She'll sometimes put out controversial opinions, but not all that often. So there's nothing wrong with her Twitter. I'm just saying it's not the best. It's, it's not something notable. It's just there. And again, it's nothing against her. I'm saying there's a lot of people on poker Twitter that could be deserving of that award. I just don't think she's one of them. And some people have accused the GPI awards of just being awards where people give trophies out to their friends. And I think some of that is unfair to say, but I have to admit that this one does look a little bit like that. And by the way, she was an she was nominated in another category. She was also nominated for Best Broadcaster. So she didn't win it. Jeff Platt won that. But I would actually rather see her win Best Broadcaster than Best Twitter Personality. I don't think she should have won that either. But it was almost like they wanted to give her an award for something. So they nominated her in two places and gave her an award for one. I just don't think best Twitter personality fits. It kind of just looks like they picked someone they like who is on poker Twitter and then just gave her an award. Now, who were the other people who were nominated for best poker ter- uh, personality? We had Will Jaffe. We had Kitty Quo. And we have Kedmath. So, Kevmath, he was given this separate award. He was given this uh, service to poker award. So, okay. I actually kind of agree he's not the best Twitter personality because Kevmath doesn't really put personality into his tweets. He puts information into his tweets. He's basically an informational Twitter account. He's a very good and thorough one, but he's not like a Twitter personality. He's a guy you go to on Twitter if you want to know things. So I see why he didn't win that and why they gave him a separate award for what he does do. I think that's why they did it. I think they realized when they made this, number one, they probably wanted to give it to Jamie, but also they realized this kind of wasn't the right spot for him, Twitter personality. He does a lot of good stuff on Twitter, but it's not, not so much about being a personality. It's more about being like helpful and informative. So they, they made a service to poker award, and we talked about that, and that's great. And he deserved it. But I think, really, if you're going to select from these four... It should have either gone to Will Jaffe or Kitty Quo. Kitty Quo is funny. She's entertaining. She's uh, like the stereotypical Asian girl. But like she's herself. It's, it's funny. She's herself, but yet she's also like the stereotype of an Asian girl to the point where it would be considered offensive if someone who wasn't Asian was doing it. <laughs> it's like someone meeting the stereotype. But, but but it's entertaining the way she goes about it. And I, I see why people enjoy her Twitter. I enjoy her Twitter. And Will Jaffe, he did a number of these tough conversation tweets where he did these little videos of himself having a, quote, tough conversation with various people that he felt were uh, either acting inappropriately or were not quite getting it on Twitter. In fact, one of them was Vanessa Cade. He did one, too, back in January of 2021. And I agreed with him, by the way. But I would totally 
understand giving it to him. People love those tough conversation tweets. He didn't do all that many of them. So that's the one argument against him is that aside from those, he wasn't all that notable on Twitter. But those were very well liked. So I could totally see giving that to him. And he, he kind of like invented them in 2021. So that'd be a good reason to give it to him for 2021. But yeah, both of Will Jaffe and Kitty Quo, I would totally describe as Twitter personalities. These are people on Twitter with big personalities that people notice. They're not just poker players with a Twitter. Jamie is a poker player with a Twitter. And there was some quiet criticism of this. Like there, People weren't really, really coming hard about the whole Jamie Kerstetter winning thing, but I, I've seen some statements from people that this doesn't make a lot of sense, and I totally agree. The best final table performance went to Adam Friedman for winning for the third time in a row the 10K Dealer's Choice Six Max Championship, which is a tough event, and to win that three times in a row is amazing. So I totally agree with him getting that. One of the nominees that really bothered me was Jungle Man for winning the 50K Poker Players Championship because he only won because of someone else's mistake. He should have been out third. Ryan Lang made just a boneheaded mistake that he admits was a boneheaded mistake. And that allowed Jungle Man to win a pot he shouldn't have won. He should have busted that hand. And Ryan Lang will be the first one to tell you that. I think Jungle Man will, would admit that if you asked him. So how is it the best performance when he only avoided busting third because someone just had a complete brain fart and made a boneheaded mistake? <laughs> he didn't even induce the mistake. It just He, he actually did an all-in that didn't really make that much sense. So he kind of made a mistake himself, but it benefited him. It kind of confused Ryan Lang into talking himself into folding. But he didn't do it for that reason. He did it because he thought he had the best hand, and he didn't. So the funny thing was, Jungle Man made a move because he, he raised all in believing he had the best hand when he didn't have the best hand, and he should have been snap-called and been out. And instead, he got a, an amazing fold that should never have happened, amazingly bad fold. I mean, great for him that he came back and won after that. But that's not the best final table performance. I'm glad he didn't win that. And let's see, anything else I want to mention here? I think that's it. All right, so we're going to move on. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 if you want to call or text me. The next topic is about Dennis Hoff's Love Ranch, and it's for sale. Now, what is Dennis Hoff's Love Ranch? Well, Dennis Hoff is not alive anymore. He died in 2018. In fact, he died at the ranch. He was 72 years old. Kind of a controversial guy. The Love Ranch was a legal brothel in Pahrump, Nevada, and it has been closed since he died, since De Dennis Hoff, the owner, died. So it's been closed for about three and a half years. And now it is for sale. Why it took so long to sell, I don't know. But now it is for sale. The interesting thing about this sale is that it's for an amount of money you wouldn't expect. 
you can buy this Love Ranch, which has a pretty large building on it, and you get a bunch of other stuff with the purchase. A lot of other stuff that would seem valuable. And you can have all of that for... One million dollars. One point two million dollars. Pretty close. And like Dr. Evil saying one million dollars as if it's a huge sum of money and then everyone laughing at him. That's kind of similar here because you're really getting a whole lot for your money. And it made me wonder why are they only asking for one point two million dollars? So what do you get for your one point two million? Well, first of all, the Love Ranch itself, the building, has 15 rooms. There's 15 rooms in this building. And you also get the entire property it sits on. In addition, you would get a backhoe. And this is not a hoe like a prostitute. Though I guess they had backhoes there too of a different type. But you get a backhoe, a track hoe, an advertising truck, and a limousine. You also get... A newly remodeled bar, I'm not sure if that's in there or elsewhere on the property, two manufactured homes, and another 21 developed lots ready to build on in Crystal, Nevada, and Pahrump, Nevada. Now, how do you get all this 1.2 million? 21 developed lots? A 15-room, uh... Uh, it doesn't have to be a brothel anymore. It is currently, but uh, or was before it shut down, but it's uh, like a 15-room hotel with 15 fairly large rooms and two new kitchens and a new bar and then two manufactured homes as well. How do you get all this for $1.2 Even in Pahrump, the Love Ranch is 75 acres. You get that too. How do you get all this for $1.2 In L.A., million would buy you a a mediocre home. In San Jose or Palo Alto, this would get you a crappy home. Here you get all of this stuff. Now, I realize that LA or San Jose are far more expensive than Pahrump, which is in the middle of the desert. But still, look at all this you're getting. 15 one-bedroom suites, 75 acres, two kitchens, a backhoe, a track hoe, I don't know what a track hoe is. Still, you get it. An advertising truck, a limousine, a new bar, two manufactured homes, 21 developed lots in two different cities? All for $1.2 million. Hmm. Well, I have some information on that and why it's so cheap, but I'll hold off for the moment. Let me tell you about some history of Dennis Hoff's Love Ranch. So, in case you don't know... Prostitution is not illegal at the state level in Nevada, but that doesn't mean it's legal throughout all of Nevada. It means it's up to the locality to decide. So Clark County, where Las Vegas is located, has decided to make prostitution illegal. So all those escorts that can come to your room, you know, you can pick up your phone there and dial 6969696 in the 702 area code, that billboard they drag around the strip. Those girls that come to your room and have sex with you for money, that's actually illegal. No one seems to clamp down on it, but it is illegal to sell sexual services in Clark County. In other Nevada counties, including Nye County, where Pahrump is located, it is legal. 
So this ranch was a legal brothel. It had its share of controversy. A lot of people first became aware of it in 2015 when Lamar Odom, a former basketball player, had a very bad overdose there, and it was thought he was going to die. He ended up surviving. But he actually had 12 strokes and 6 heart attacks after an overdose at the ranch in 2015. Odom actually later claimed that Dennis Hoff was trying to kill him. He had cocaine in his system and insisted that he had not done cocaine. That somehow this was put into his body without his knowledge. Odom had brought two very expensive prostitutes that he spent $75,000 on. Not ones who worked for the Love Ranch, but I guess he brought them there to, quote, party with them. And was found uh, with foam coming out of his mouth. And looked like he was almost dead. And they wheeled him out. And he was in very bad shape. And a lot of people believed he was going to die. But he ended up uh, surviving. He was found with herbal Viagra and cocaine in his system. He said, I think Dennis Hoff... I don't know what he had against me, but I didn't do drugs that night, to be honest with you. So I don't know if he tried to poison me, or I don't know what he had against me. He tried to kill me. Hoff denied that and said that Lamar Odom was just trying to get away from all the pressure and have fun there, and he doesn't understand why he's being accused of trying to kill him. Interestingly enough, Dennis Hoff died in the same room where Lamar Odom almost died, and of all people to find Dennis Hoff dead... It was Ron Jeremy, the infamous porn star, who is now accused of rape and may be going to prison for a long time. These these uh, charges are still going forward, and the trial will be soon. But in 2018, Ron Jeremy was there and found that Dennis Hoff had died in his sleep. He actually had a magic wand vibrator next to him. <laughs> I don't know what he was doing with it, but it was it was sitting there on the bed with him, and he was dead. Jer- Ron Jeremy came in and just found Dennis Hoff dead. I don't know if he died of natural causes or if he uh, had done drugs. I, I don't know what ended up killing him, but he was 72. But since then, it's been shut down. Pahrump is... 80 miles from Las Vegas to the west. You may pass through it if you go from Death Valley to Las Vegas, depending on which way you go. Why is it so cheap? Why would you get all this for $1.2 million? I'm not, I'm not sure why there's three and a half years that passed since uh, Hoff died before they're trying to sell it. And I'm not sure who inherited it that would be selling it. But why is it so cheap? Now, you might think one reason could be that not everybody wants to own a brothel or a former brothel. Maybe potential buyers are turned off by this, that this has a stigma to it, that what are you going to do with it? Like, okay, cool, I got all this stuff, but all right, how do you convince people if you don't want to run a brothel? How do you convince people to stay at a hotel that was once a brothel, even if it doesn't operate that way anymore? How, How do you make this viable? But still, there's a lot of stuff you're getting here. You could even sell off parts of this if you don't want to keep all of it. Maybe you just want the 21 
ready to build lots, these 21 developed lots, you could just get those and sell everything else. Maybe sell everything else for more than you paid to get the whole package. And you basically get all the lots for free or even get them for better than free. So why doesn't someone do that? Why wouldn't someone want 21 developed lots and this ranch and all that land and the backhoe and the track hoe and the limousine? Even if they're going to sell some of it, why wouldn't someone jump at this? Well, people are jumping at this. And according to information I was texted by Desert Runner, there are a lot of offers and that a sale is going to happen soon. In fact, it may even happen this week. And it'll be, quote, for much higher than $1.2 million. Hmm. So why would they have priced it so low if so many people are willing to pay so much more? Well, you see, that's a trick. And I've seen that trick. Not with brothels, but I have seen with houses. I've seen impossibly cheap houses come on the market. And then when you inquire about the houses, then they say, well, there's a lot of interest here. So I just want to let you know, if if you bid asking price, you're probably not going to get it. So then they create a bidding war. So this is a way to rope people in. You don't price it at what you really want to sell it for. You price it at much, much lower, get people interested, get people all ready to buy it. And then there's all these people competing with one another. And then it keeps getting bid up and up and up and up. And all of a sudden it goes for way, way more than the original price. And the buyer doesn't really realize what happened. Or if they do, it's too late. And the trick kind of works. I've seen it. I've seen it on the real estate market where houses that are put on the market for way too cheap end up selling for way more than they're worth. So when I see deals like that, I go, oh, no, oh, no, this this isn't what it appears to be. This is going to be crap. This is going to be something where they're creating a bidding war. Or sometimes this is a way to do something shady. Sometimes there is an intention to sell it for that low of a price. But what they're trying to do is sell it to someone who's associated with them, maybe a relative maybe a friend, and they want to avoid any scrutiny from the IRS that they're giving something away cheap and not paying any kind of gift tax on it. So it's a way to sell something at way too low of a price and not attract unwanted attention by putting it on the open market and then just conveniently selecting the person to buy it who you want to have buy it. And what you do to get that accomplished is you make yourself very inaccessible. You make yourself very difficult for people to access who are interested to where they finally give up. And I've seen that too. I've also seen that in the real estate market where you you try to show interest in the property and then just no one gets back to you and they act really weird about it and, uh, you start to notice like it seems like they don't want to sell it. And the truth is they don't. They don't want to sell it to you. The, the whole open market sale is just a sham. Now, that's not what's going on here, I believe. I, I think this is probably the bidding war situation. So that's why it was priced so low. 
is so people will start making offers on it. You may wonder, what if the offers just don't push it up enough to the price they're looking to sell it? Well, then they don't have to accept any of them. They can just say, oh, you know what? Uh, with all this interest on it, we think we may have mispriced it. So uh, I think we're going to take it off the market. I think we may put it back on later or put it at a higher price. But yeah, we, we don't really want to sell it after all. We, we didn't know there'd be that much interest. We didn't know there's that many people who would like this. I think we misjudged the value. You can do that. You're, you're not required to sell it. It's, it's not uh, a situation where the second you put the thing on the market that if you don't sell it to someone, you're getting in some kind of trouble. It's, it's not like that. You can pull it off at any time. You don't have to sell it to anybody. So that's what seems to be happening. And I think Desert Runner is probably correct. I think it probably will sell for a lot more than $1.2 million. And if it does go through this week, I will report it on next week's radio and we'll see how much higher than $1.2 million it really was. Since we're on the topic of legalized brothels, you may wonder what an experience is like at a legalized brothel compared to just getting a hooker the normal way, the illegal way. Well, I have never gotten a hooker either at a legalized brothel or through the traditional way. I have not done it at all, but I do know about it. After the years I lived in Las Vegas, I learned a number of things. And I'll tell you this. The legalized brothels are not the way to go. I actually toured one. And before you think I was touring it because I was uh, looking for some action there, I actually toured it with a girl I was dating at the time. And no, she wasn't looking for a threesome or anything like that. We were just, it it wasn't this one. It was one in Reno or near Reno. But uh, we we happened to be passing by and we saw there were tours. And he's like, oh, you want want to do a tour here? So we actually did a tour. There's actually another dude with us too. So it was not a, sexual thing at all from our standpoint but they do these free tours or like what the hell might as well see one of these places but i can tell you from being at this place and looking at the girls there and also from what i've heard from people that have been to them and even documentaries i've seen on it i mean i i've gotten to learn about it with even without ever using the services or attempting to use the services i can tell you that the women who work at these places are not nearly as attractive as the ones you could get through traditional means of just answering ads or whatever on the internet to get hookers the normal way. And it's not particularly cheap either. Now, there's some advantages to it. You're not going to get robbed. You're not going to get scammed. You're not going to have pimps beating you up. You're not going to have shady upcharges, and there's all kinds of horror stories, some worse than others, involving prostitutes that people get off of ads. And I've told many stories on this show about prostitutes that have uh, robbed guys before and drugged them, and even some where uh, people get hurt or killed. So that won't happen at these legalized brothels, unless you're Lamar Odom, you might get drugged. The problem is that you're really not getting very good value for your money, and the women are not very attractive. In fact, the one giving us the tour in the Reno area brothel was like in her late 40s and was not even like an attractive late 40s woman. She was like a very average-looking late 40s 
kind of trashy looking woman. Kind of picture a 47 year old woman living in small town Nevada. And that's what she looked like. And, and, and like she's selling her body there. You, you'd be paying for her. And I, I'm thinking to myself, I mean, she was nice, but I'm thinking to myself, who would hire her? Like, can't you get a woman like that without paying for it? <laughs> I would think it wouldn't be that hard. I would think if you're going to pay for it, you're going to pay for a girl you couldn't normally get, or at least one that would require a lot of effort. But apparently not. Apparently some guys were paying for a late 40s, not very attractive woman there. She wasn't typical there. I mean, most of the girls there were younger, but they just, like, none of them, even the best-looking one, wasn't all that attractive. They're kind of, like, okay at best. The hookers that people hire in Vegas... There's a big range. There's some that are just nasty and not attractive at all, all the way up to some ones that are really hot. And the ones that are really hot tend to be a whole lot of money. They tend to be uh, four figures. But at least that's available. And on average, you'll you'll do a lot better, looks-wise at least, with the ones that are in Vegas and and even value-wise as long as you are careful the way you go about it. This is one of these things that if you're going to do it, you've, you've got to research it. And that may sound like the least sexy thing possible to be researching how to get value out of Vegas hookers. But uh, if you don't, you're going to get ripped off. Like a common complaint from guys who get ripped off by hookers in Vegas. And I'm not talking about the brothels, of course. I'm talking about the illegal ones that. The girl shows up, and either she's a completely different girl from the picture, and they were told the girl from the picture is going to show up, or, or as shall I say, and or, the girl shows up, talks a little bit, or does some stupid dance or something, and then says, okay, well, um, are you going to give me any tips? And what she's basically asking for is more money if she's going to have sex with you. So she, she, you're basically just paying an appearance fee. And of course, it's not sold to you that way. So you're thinking you're, you're paying to have sex with her. She shows up, does a little dance and says, okay, you're going to give me any tips. And if you don't give any tips, she just leaves. <laughs> and, and so you're expected to give like a lot more money to actually have sex. So it's, it's really, really a bait and switch. That, that's a common scam that goes on there. So there, there's all kinds of things that happen. So there's, there's like hooker review sites and, uh, um, the more you know of what you're looking for and what you ask, like, for example, I would recommend that if you're going to do this, that whoever you call, that you say, are you the one in the picture? And I'm just letting you know if, if someone who's not in this picture shows up, I'm not even going to open the door. Then they won't even bother to pull this on you because they, they know they're going to be wasting their time if they come to the door and you don't open it. So if it's important to you that the person in the picture is who shows up, then you should say so. So there's a lot of little things like that. I'm not going to go into a whole tutorial about hookers. I probably know more about this than just about any guy who's never gotten a hooker. (laughs) Just because I was kind of fascinated by the whole thing, like not from the standpoint of of getting hookers, but from the standpoint of just the the way the whole thing works and all the scams and and all that. Like it was was interesting to me. So I, I learned, even though I never had any desire to do it, and the reason I didn't have a desire to do it is it just uh, it just didn't have appeal to me, given the number of guys that these girls had been with in such a short time and 
the disease factor and the fact that I know she won't really be into it and she's just doing it strictly for money and she has absolutely no desire to really be with me, which is kind of a turnoff. Like they, all those things together just made it unappealing. But the but the whole scene, the whole all the things that can go wrong and like all that stuff was kind of fascinating to just learn about. It's all part of the Vegas culture. It doesn't just happen in Vegas, but Vegas is a big place for that, as I'm sure you know. So I learned about it. Anyway, I will report whatever the sale price ends up being, and thank you to Desert Runner for that piece of information. Okay, I'm going to give you an update on Crystal Cruises. So while this is not normally a cruise show, we don't talk that much about cruising on here. There are some poker cruises, but Crystal is not a poker cruise and never has been. But we talked about it partially because it was associated with Genting, who owns Resorts World, but is no longer associated with them. Genting pretty much let them go. And also because the couple that was most interviewed on one of these aborted long cruises was the Shulmans of Card Player Magazine, Barry and Alan. So that was why I covered it last time. But we have an update for you. I told you I'd give you an update. We have a big update. The update is that Crystal Cruises has shut down. And if you have paid for a cruise with them and you haven't taken the cruise yet, you're screwed. So that's it. Crystal's done. Not only won't there be any Crystal Cruises for the next few months, as they had announced, but there's not going to be any Crystal Cruises at all. The The whole thing has completely fallen apart. It looked like it might be going that direction because they aborted cruises simply to avoid having their ships seized over uh, unpaid fuel that they had bought from American companies. So the U.S. Marshal had the uh, authority to actually seize the ships. So for a few million bucks, they were avoiding the port of Miami. And I'm going, how could they be changing the entire itinerary and avoiding the U.S. just over a few million bucks? This is a huge company. So I knew they were in huge trouble. And uh, so when they stopped these cruises and let people off in the Bahamas. They claim they're shutting down until April, but now they're shutting down permanently. So it's no longer just April. To review, I'm not going to go into the whole speech again about Crystal Cruises because uh, I did that last time. Crystal Cruises was a special cruise line that was aimed at a higher-end and much older clientele. It was very expensive. They would never dump cabins at the end like other lines would to make sure the ship sails full. Often the ship would sail half full or 40% full. They would not discount the room, so if they just didn't sell, they didn't sell, which is very unusual in the cruise industry. While it was more expensive, the service was way better. And they tried to take care of your every need. And the customer service was very, very good. 
and they were aiming their service at very old people who had a lot of money. They also didn't have a big fleet. They didn't have huge ships. But these ships would go on some very long cruises. In fact, the one the Shulmans were on, that was a a three-and-a-half-month cruise, would you believe? And they paid, quote, six figures to get one of the better suites on the ship. There are a lot of people on Crystal Cruises in their 80s and 90s. I'm talking about the passengers. If you were under 80, you're one of the young ones as far as the Crystal passengers go. And there's barely anyone on Crystal Cruises as a passenger who's around my age, 50. So that shows you how old the crowd is there. I'd be like a baby on a Crystal Cruise. The people on Crystal Cruises were very old people who figured, hey, might as well spend our money. We don't have much time left. I'm not even talking about ones with terminal illnesses necessarily, but just ones that know they're very old and that they could go any time and that they've got a lot of money and they want to enjoy themselves and they want to be taken care of. And that traveling can be a pain in the ass, especially when you're old and maybe not all that mobile and maybe need a lot of help and traveling can seem pretty daunting then. And they want to have an experience where everything's taken care of for them. So that's who it was catering to. And it seemed to be doing very well until something happened. COVID. And as soon as COVID happened, I knew the cruise industry was going to have a big problem, not just short term, but also long term. And I was especially worried for Crystal because of how old their clientele was. And who does COVID kill? Mostly old people. It very disproportionately kills very old people. The rate of death from COVID, if you're over 80, is tremendously higher than even people who are middle-aged. The rate of death goes up from young to old. So rate of death is much higher for my age than a 10-year-old. But it's also way higher for an 80-year-old than my age. So I figured that if your entire clientele is old and COVID is killing old people, you're going to have a lot of old people saying, nope, not going to do it. (laughs) No interest. It's one thing for middle-aged people to say, you know what, I'll take a chance. Some of us die, but not that many. So we'll say, screw it and take the cruise anyway. It's another thing to be really old and knowing that your chance of dying from COVID isn't that small. So Crystal never recovered. Crystal was, uh, they continued to run once they reopened again. There was a period where they were all shut down, but once they reopened again, they continued to run, and that's how the Shulmans were on a cruise. But they just weren't able to recover from the beatdown they took from COVID. So they were kind of covering this up, and that's why they sailed on this cruise, a three-and-a-half-month cruise, despite knowing that uh, they couldn't even pay their, their back fuel bill of a few million bucks. And then had to abort the whole thing. I I don't know what they thought they were going to do. I don't know. Maybe maybe they're trying to raise money from elsewhere. I don't know what they were doing. Uh, They claim that Genting kind of left them high and dry. Uh, When they were having issues, Genting was claiming that uh, they're going to back Crystal and they'll be fine. Now, Genting's been having a lot of its own problems. That may be why they washed their hands of it. But uh, 
the president of Crystal Cruises, who isn't president any longer, he was through February 11th, Jack Anderson, said Genting Hong Kong officially, effectively washed their hands of Crystal when they filed liquidation in Bermuda. At that point, our relationship with Genting was effectively severed, and we were cut loose to fend for ourselves. Not only was uh, Crystal Cruises having trouble, but uh, Genting itself was having trouble. And uh, they basically kicked that asset loose, and that was that. So even though Genting was maintaining that Crystal Cruises was going to be fine, it turned out it did not. Apparently, Crystal Cruises owes a lot of money to people who had booked cruises, but will not ever be able to take them because they've shut down. How much money is owed? $100 billion. Yeah. Okay, not that much. $100 million, though. $100 million or so is owed to future cruisers of Crystal that will not be able to take the cruises. What's going to happen to that money? I mean, it's gone, but do they have a way to get it back? Well, according to Jack Anderson, the deposits are held by credit card companies in, quote, secured accounts and are eligible for refunds. He said a significant majority of customer money is being held in trust by Visa, MasterCard, American Express, well over $100 million. The court-appointed Michael Moker and Associates will be working with the credit card companies to approve refunds. And he estimates that 75 to 80% of customers paid by credit card. However, those who paid with cash or wire transfer or EFT or with future cruise credits, that is where you get some kind of uh, credit from Crystal for... Uh, either buying credit in advance at a discount or getting credit because you had a canceled cruise that got moved to uh, a cruise you booked in the future, that tough luck. You're not going to get any refunds for that. The Crystal website is actually still running, and they claim they are going to soon post information on how to start the refund process, but I doubt they're ever going to really refund anything. You probably would have to just start a chargeback with your credit card. Now, let me tell you a few things about chargebacks and cruises, because I looked into this two years ago when all of these cruises were being canceled due to the beginning of COVID. And I did not have any booked myself, but I was posting on a forum where some people did have them booked and I was giving them advice because I wanted to help these people because I felt bad for them. And I was telling these people, you need to charge back. And some of them said, oh, no, 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 I can't charge back. The chargeback time frame is only 60 days. And I booked this last year. And I said, it doesn't matter. Because the chargeback time starts ticking when you are expected to receive the product or service, not when you pay for it. And there's a reason for that. It is so services or goods that you buy to be delivered in advance that you have an ability to charge it back. Otherwise, if you're buying something that's going to be delivered to you months from now, then the chargeback window would be over. And if you got screwed, you'd have no recourse. So in order to address this, 
the credit card companies allow you to charge back starting from when you were expected to receive the goods or service, not when you paid for it. So that's a big difference. So even if you paid last year or the year before, if you were paying for something that was to take place, say, tomorrow, then tomorrow is when the clock starts ticking, not when you paid. So that gives you the ability to charge back. And I told people this two years ago regarding Norwegian. Laughably, I had people saying that they want to go through the normal process of a refund by Norwegian. They felt it was unethical to charge back. (laughs) The reason that was so stupid was because Norwegian was saying, oh, you know, we'll get to this in 12 weeks. And people are like, oh, okay, I'll wait the 12 weeks. I'm like, are you crazy? Are you allowed to pay 12 weeks late? No. Well, then then why are you letting them uh, get back to you in 12 weeks if they're going to refund you? If they're broke, what's going to happen? I said, you need to charge back now. (laughs) You need to think about yourself, not Norwegian. People there that were saying, oh, you know, I'll just take the future cruise credits and and the 20% discount. I'm like, no, you don't want to do that because you don't know if they're ever going to run again. And the future cruise credits are not worth what you think they are because they're just marking up future cruises knowing that tons of people have future cruise credits and want to spend them. So they just mark up the cruises. You're not really getting a discount. I was trying to explain this to people. and Some understood and charged back and others were saying, no, it's unethical. I'm not going to do it, which is crazy. If you pay for something and it's not going to be delivered to you, and you can't get an instant refund from the company, instant meaning within a short period of time, very short period of time, then charge it back. That's what you should do. You need to protect yourself. And people saying, oh, no, you, you got to understand the position the cruise lines are in and uh, you got to feel bad for them and the, how COVID's affecting them, blah, blah, blah. I said, do you think they would care about you if something happened to you? I, I brought up an example. I said, let's say... You had a cruise booked, and then uh, your mom died. And, of course, that takes priority over taking a cruise. And you you have to arrange your mom's funeral, and you're going to miss the cruise. You think if you call up and say, hey, my mom died, give me my money back, you think they're going to give me your money back? No. You're not going to get your money back. They're going to say you should have bought cruise insurance since you didn't. Tough luck. Sorry about your mom, but no, you get nothing. Why? Because it's a cold business. They don't care about you, and you shouldn't care about them. It's a cold business arrangement with a large corporation. And when you have those arrangements, you need to look out for yourself just as it will look out for itself and not care about you. So before you ever worry about what your actions are going to affect in the corporation, you need to think, is the corporation going to ever care about me? If I were in trouble or in some dire straits, Would they make allowances for me, or would they give me a big fat middle finger? And if it's the latter, which usually is the latter, then you need to think about yourself. So some people did, and some people were stupid and didn't. But anyway, back to Crystal. If you booked a Crystal Cruise, and you have not taken it because they've shut down, what should you do? Well, if you paid by wire or EFT or cash, you're probably screwed unless you got some kind of insurance. But otherwise, you're not going to get that money back. 
there's a small chance Crystal's still going to be bought by someone else, and that party may honor previous reservations, or at least transfer the money over to future reservations. But there's a good chance it won't. It's a good chance the money's just gone. If you paid on a credit card in any way, you should charge back immediately. And I don't care what way you paid by credit card. I don't care if you paid for a different cruise and this got transferred to your new cruise or or eventually it became future, future cruise credit and you, you booked with that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you booked a Crystal Cruise and if you paid by credit card and you did not receive that cruise, charge back and there's a good chance you'll get your money back. Because as the former president of Crystal said, there's a lot of money sitting in a fund, maybe even more than the amount of money that they owe back that's held in trust by Visa, MasterCard, and American Express. I'm not sure how it is held in trust. Like, I'm not sure how that money was held in the first place. Like, why? I know a certain percentage of money is held back on these credit cards for the purpose of chargebacks, but I didn't think it was that high of a percentage, but who knows, whatever. I do believe there is a lot of money being held in trust by Visa, American Express, and MasterCard. And that a court-appointed company, this Michael Moker and Associates, will be administering this through the credit card companies to give refunds. So I think pretty much as long as you can show that you bought a Crystal Cruise and that you did not receive a cruise from Crystal, that you're going to get your money back. I believe that's really all that's going to be checked on here. So if you paid by credit card, you need to do a chargeback. It's that simple. I think there's a chance some of our listeners may have had a Crystal Cruise booked because we do have a lot of older listeners. That's, That's why I'm bothering to say this, that if you booked on a credit card and you didn't get your cruise, don't wait for a refund process. Don't wait for what Crystal might do for you or maybe they're going to get bought. No, 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 no. Call up tomorrow and say, I want to start a chargeback. And explain, you booked a cruise. I don't care if you paid a year ago, two years ago, whatever. You booked a cruise. You paid on this date. The cruise was supposed to take place on such and such date in 2022 or 2023 or whatever it was going to be. And they've shut down and you want your money back. It's that simple. And if that's the truth, then they're going to give you your money back, most likely. You might as well. You have nothing to lose. You really have nothing to lose. You're you're not even if they deny it for some reason, it's a free roll. You're not going to lose anything back. There's no advantage to not charging back at this point. Crystal has said, "We have shut down. You are not getting your cruise." So you can charge back now or you can sit there like a chump and see if they're going to do anything for you. So if you've paid by a credit card, 100% charge back and charge back now. The reason I say now is because they claim there's more than $100 million in this fund, and they claim there's about $100 million in guest uh, payments that need to be refunded. So you would think there's more in that fund than what they owe, but who knows? You want to get to it as fast as you can before it gets depleted. 
So think of yourself. Think of the fact that you paid for a cruise you didn't get, and the money is owed back to you 100%. So claim it. And keep it simple. Just keep it simple. I paid. I didn't get the cruise. The cruise is supposed to be on this date. It's not going to happen. They've shut down. Done. By the way, I'm curious if, if any of you do have a Crystal Cruise booked, you can text me, 775-372-8355. I can give you advice and what to say and how to go about it. Or just, I'm just curious if any of you have one booked. I really think with the number of listeners we have and the age demographic we have, that it is likely that we must have a few listeners who have one booked. I mean, I, I hope we don't, because that means you guys are probably out money, at least for the moment. But I think there's a good chance we do. So I don't want to see you guys get ripped off. Charge back right now. Don't make the same mistake that people made with uh, Norwegian two years ago. Now, they're not out of business, but uh, some of these people screwed themselves by accepting these cruise credits and then booking at an inflated rate and thinking they're getting a good deal. And I, I was trying to say, no, 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 guys, you're, you're being stupid. Just get your money back now and... If you want to book later, you can get cruises for cheap, I'm sure. But some did not listen. But yeah, you can charge back. Don't don't worry how long it's been since you booked. If you booked and you didn't get your cruise, charge back now. Now, what about the Shulmans? They took a cruise, but they got it aborted. They had a three and a half month cruise they paid six figures for. And they only got like a week or a week or so of the whole thing. And then they got booted off in the Bahamas. So shouldn't they get a refund? Well, I believe they would get a prorated refund, but since the vast majority of the cruise was never taken, they should get most of their money back. But I say should because I don't know how they paid. I don't know if they paid by credit card or by bank wire. If they paid by bank wire, they're screwed. But if they paid by credit card, yes, the Shulmans should charge back right now. They also should not wait to see what crystals doing for them in fact if i were the shulmans i would charge the whole damn thing back because they didn't get the product or shall i say the service that they were signing up for they signed up for a three and a half month cruise and they got a week cruise and got booted off and had to make their own arrangements from there so they didn't get what they paid for they shouldn't have to pay for whatever percentage of the cruise they got, that shouldn't be how it worked. Now, it'd be one thing if they got like 95% and were kicked off in the final 5%, then they wouldn't be entitled to a full refund. But if I were them, I would apply for the full refund because they got so little of that cruise and there was so much inconvenience that they, they basically didn't get what they paid for. And they paid, quote, six figures. So I would charge back the full amount if I were them. I would not wait until Crystal Cruises decides what they're going to do, which is probably nothing because they're gone. I mean, I don't even know who'd be deciding. Looks like they're just dropping this in the hands of a third-party company that was appointed by the court to handle the credit card chargebacks, and that's it. But you should charge back the max amount. That's the other thing. If you happen to have been on one of these aborted cruises, I would just charge back the whole damn thing. All right, let's move on here. Former poker pro Igor Kurganov is going to be handling a lot of money. He apparently has been appointed by Elon Musk to donate a very large sum of money to charity. 
and he's going to be in charge of it. Kind of weird to see a poker pro, well, I guess it's now a former poker pro, distributing this type of money for Elon Musk, but apparently that's what's happening. Igor Kurganov has about $18 million in live tournament caches. I don't know how profitable he was. He did win one bracelet with girlfriend Liv Bori in a tag team event. In that event, by the way, there was some criticism that Igor did most of the playing and that Liv's bracelet was unjustified. I've always felt that tag team event is kind of bullshit. They really need to have some sort of minimum play time. And in fact, uh, I've heard about certain pros that were approached by rich guys who'd say, hey, you know, I've always wanted a World Series bracelet. So how about I pay the entire buy-in and you play almost the entire time and I'll play a tiny bit and maybe we can win a bracelet. That's that's kind of crappy that that was being done or at least being offered. How can you win a bracelet when you've barely played? So that criticism was being thrown around about Liv Bori. I I didn't look how much he actually played, but that's what I was hearing, that Igor did more of the playing. Anyway, we're not really talking about that now. We're talking about the charity money. So would you believe that Igor Kurganov is said to be in charge of a very, very large charity fund for Elon Musk, which totals... No, but $5.7 billion. $5.7 billion he's going to be distributing. Now, this is not totally confirmed, but it's looking like that's what is going to happen. So here's how it's all working. Igor Kurganov founded a charitable organization called REG, R-E-G in all caps. And REG does what's called effective altruism. Effective altruism is a form of charitable donation where you're maximizing the value of the dollars that you are donating. Because a lot of criticism about charities is that too much money is getting wasted on overhead and that not enough is going to the cause itself. So effective altruism is a form of giving where you're aiming at giving charitable donations where it will have the most effect. That's why it's called effective. REG stands for Raising for Effective Giving. And this was actually started by Igor Kurganov and his girlfriend Liv Bori. So this has existed for quite some time. I believe it began in 2014. You can look at their website, this REG. It's reg-charity.org. And you can see they have uh, recommended charities. And you can see they explain the way the whole thing operates. It says uh, giving to the right charities means you can save hundreds of lives. We help you find them. Why do we do it? Because we strive for a world where the worst problems are solved as soon as possible. And so basically, 
they're claiming here at REG, and by the way, I've seen poker pros wearing these REG patches at the table, like uh, Martin Jacobson was one. And supposedly what they're doing is they're doing all the research for you. So you say, I've got a bunch of money I want to donate to charity, but I don't want to donate it to an organization that's going to waste a lot of it. So if only someone could have researched this and have found the charities that are making the best use of the money and also could maybe guide me of which would be the best one for me to give to given the causes I care about. So that's what REG claims to do. They claim that they put together an effective giving guide that they can give you donation advice. They said, we have examined the growing body of research around cost effectiveness and distill this information into donation advice for individuals and organization. And they give charity recommendations. We provide a public list of outstanding charities for donors to support. We strongly believe that any contribution to these organizations will make a significant positive difference in the world. The list is updated regularly to reflect new developments and evidence. Now, I have not looked into how effective the effective giving has been. I don't know much about this REG aside from the fact that it exists and has been around for some years. I didn't even pay attention to it until recently. If it does what they claim it's doing, then I support it. I think that is something that is very needed. Where you say, I want to donate to such and such cause, but I want to make sure that the dollars are being used right. I want to make sure it's not corrupt, because there are a lot of charities that are scams or semi-scams. I want to make sure the money is really going where I think it is. I want to make sure that it's not doing things it's not supposed to be doing. Like An example of an organization that was doing things that people didn't expect was the bail fund, the Minnesota Freedom Fund, that people were donating to in 2020. And what they thought they were doing was paying for the bail of peaceful protesters who were demonstrating at the BLM protests after the uh, George Floyd murder. And they felt that they were helping these protesters get bailed out when they were hit with bogus arrests because they were trying to protest. That's, That's what they thought they were doing. In reality, what they were doing is, number one, They were paying for actual criminals, actual violent criminals who were rioting to be bailed out. And even worse, there were people being bailed out who had nothing to do with these protests, such as serial rapists and child molesters. So that's where a lot of that money was going. So the charity, yeah, it was bailing people out, but not who people thought were going to be bailed out. When people donated to the Minnesota Freedom Fund which Kamala Harris tweeted about and encouraged donation to it in the summer of 2020. People donating did not believe that this is going to be getting serial rapists and child molesters out of jail, but it did. So REG claims that they have vetted these charities to make sure that these type of things don't happen. They don't mention the Minnesota Freedom Fund, but I'm saying that they're claiming that this is what you don't have to worry about, that you are you don't have to worry you're going to be donating to something that's going to either be uh, using the funds in a different way than people believed it would. It's not going to be stealing the funds. It's not going to be bogged down in bureaucracy. It's going to be effective 
and honest and transparent and straightforward. So if that's what they're really accomplishing, great. I support that. But what does this have to do with Elon Musk and $5.7 billion? Well, Liv Boree somehow got to know Elon Musk. Not sure how, but she did. And she became friendly with him. And she has been with Igor Kurganov, who is from Russia, by the way. But she became, uh, she was with Igor for a long time. So she probably introduced Igor to Elon. Elon gave $5.7 billion worth of Tesla shares to charity in November 2021. But it's not totally clear the exact way this was done. Like, it's not known exactly who received that stock. He gifted $5.7 billion of Tesla stock to go charity between November 19th and November 29th, 2021, which is one of the biggest charity donations in history. And even though he did uh, do an SEC filing related to that last week, it still doesn't name the recipient. And there's some weird trust that has to do with the transaction. However, it is believed that this is not some sort of shenanigans thing, that this isn't Elon donating to himself or anything like that. It does appear this really is money that is being donated to charity by Elon. And it was found that his past charitable donations, which were large, were through the Musk Foundation. And, for example, they've, uh, they've made eight-figure grants to school systems in Texas and also millions of dollars to COVID-19 research. And Bloomberg reported that every single organization that received these grants has worked with Igor Kurganov as their main point of contact. So if you're going to get charity from Elon Musk, it goes through Igor. So given that Igor seems to be the one in charge of managing this charity money that comes from Elon Musk, it's believed that he is going to be managing this $5.7 billion that was recently donated in November. That's what Bloomberg said. They believe that, uh, while it's not 100%, their theory is that Igor is going to continue to be the one who is in charge of distributing the funds for Elon. So supposedly, uh, Igor is going to be receiving proposals, and uh, he's going to be deciding through REG who gets the money. If I had to guess... Liv got to be friends with Elon Musk and then introduced him to Igor and said, look, I I know you want to give to charity. Look at all the great work that Igor has done with looking into these charities and deciding which ones are best. Like, hey, Elon, you don't want to waste your money with crap charities, do you? You've got so much to give away. Let's do it right. Uh, My boyfriend, he's got this all figured out already. He's done exactly what you probably want to do yourself. He's already done the work. And Elon's probably like, okay, cool. You know what? 
This is exactly what I need. So have at it. Igor doesn't play poker anymore as far as I know. At least he's not a professional poker player now. I have to imagine that he gets compensated pretty well to be the one who's uh, managing this fund for Elon Musk. I mean, especially here, $5.7 billion. Like, he's not doing this for free. So I have to imagine he's being paid pretty well. So that's a really nice thing to back into, probably through your girlfriend, that here you're setting up this thing back in 2014 to figure out which charities uh, are most deserving of the money, and then uh, your girlfriend puts you in touch with the richest man in the world who is donating a significant amount of charity and is like, hey, you manage this for me. You're doing a good job. They're like, oh, good. Okay. I'm in the right place at the right time. Thank you. So I have to imagine he's making a good deal here. And as long as Elon is happy with where the money's going in general and thinks it's going to worthy charities, then I have to imagine he'll continue. Like, why would Elon change that? You, you don't change what's working. So again, this is not totally confirmed. This is a theory by Bloomberg, which seems to make sense because all the recent donations that Elon has made has, has gone through Igor. He seems to have a lot of faith in this REG. That is interesting. Had people who uh, sent this to me, this story, who don't really follow poker, but read this in the general news, and they're like, hey, do you know this guy? And I said, no, I know of him, but we've never met. We've never spoken. But interesting. Last topic before we get to the coronavirus stuff. I have a NFT fraud alert story for you. Apparently, there was a big phishing scheme through NFT sales and trading site OpenSea that netted a lot of stolen NFTs for the scammer. And there's a lot of talk about this on Twitter for the last few days. And it's pretty bad. And I'm going to tell you about it and let you know how you can prevent this happening to you. So there has been a big issue with NFTs that aren't, it's not being discussed that much or as much as it should. And that is that uh, keeping your NFTs secure is fairly complicated. It's a lot more complicated than with cryptocurrency. Not to say there aren't cryptocurrency thefts and scandals because there's been many of these over the years. But I will say that NFTs, especially for the average person who doesn't know a whole lot about the technical part of what uh, goes into the ownership and transfer of them, uh, it's, it's very easy to be exploited. It especially becomes easy to be exploited because you're constantly signing your... Uh, wallet to various transactions and uh, people sometimes don't know what they should and shouldn't sign for and sometimes what you think you're signing for is not really what you're signing for and uh, to put it simply for those that don't really understand it it's it's almost like uh, 
in real life, someone just walking up to you with a blank sheet of paper with a line for your signature, and they say, hey, sign this. And then you sign it, and they walk away. And then they can do anything with it. So, unfortunately, that's kind of what has been happening with these NFTs. And there's also just other ways that NFTs are just outright stolen, where the victims don't even know what happened, can't even figure out how it happened. And that's even more scary, where somehow they get just taken from you where you can't figure out what you did wrong. Now, there's always an explanation for it. They don't disappear. But, uh, for example, and this has nothing to do with this particular scandal, but you may have noticed if you have an OpenSea account that you're constantly getting airdropped a bunch of NFTs that you're not aware even exist. You just find them. You, you've been dropped a bunch of uh, NFTs, and you go, oh, well, okay, I don't know what this is, but, you know, it's free, right? Cool. Okay, great, thanks. I don't know who gave this to me or why, but I'll take it. Free stuff's always good. Well, not as far as NFTs go. Because if you interact with these NFTs, sometimes even if you attempt to uh, remove them, then malicious code can be executed to steal your actual NFTs. So the advice when you get airdrop things is just to hide them to where you can't see them anymore and can't interact with them. You don't even want to delete them. And that's very counterintuitive. What would be intuitive would be either to say, okay, sweet, I have this now. I'll I'll just treat it like one of my possessions. Or I don't want this, I'm deleting it. But neither of those is the proper advice. So that's the type of thing which is not obvious to people, except for those that are aware that you don't interact with these things that you don't recognize, and why it's going to be hard for this space to grow when it's too complicated even for semi-technical people to know how to keep their assets secure. So I'll tell you now about this particular scheme, which happened on OpenSea. And a lot of people got screwed by it. And once you do get screwed by it, there's really no recourse. That's another thing that's frustrating, is the stuff's just gone and you can't get it back. About a month ago, this uh, hacker who whose goal was to steal as many NFTs as possible uploaded something called a smart contract. And uh, he was trying to get as many signatures on this smart contract as possible. So how does he do this? How does he get uh, as many signatures? And I'm talking about uh, signatures through uh, the wallets with the NFTs. And uh, you know, how does he get people to sign transactions for him? How does he get these uh, signatures? So the way he does it, the way he finds people to give him these signatures is by sending out tons of phishing emails claiming that people need to migrate to the new OpenSea smart contract and that this is something you you need to do. And uh, in reality, what you're doing is you're giving this person your signature. Not your physical signature, but your uh 
digital signature that's controlling your NFTs. So there is this thing called the Wyvern Exchange Contract, which was blasted out to a ton of people. And they were told in these phishing emails to sign it. And they were told that this is just something they need to do to migrate to these new smart contracts in OpenSea. And people fell for it because they had heard something about this. They'd heard something about these uh, new OpenSea smart contracts. So they said, okay, I, I heard about this. Yeah, all right, so I'll do it. So they'd get these phishing emails. And then they would get the signature request to sign for this Wyvern exchange contract. And it all seemed to make sense. And they, they hit sign. So did he steal right away? No, he did not. He created this smart contract a month ago. And then he immediately fired out these phishing emails. But he waited to collect as many signatures as he could before jumping. Because if once he used it to steal, then the jig would be up. Then the word would get out. They watch out for this wyvern thing. It's going to screw you. But he didn't screw anyone for about a month. So nobody was suspicious. Or if anybody was, it didn't really get out because nothing had happened. Well... Then on uh, February 19th, I believe is when it happened, either the 18th or 19th, I think it was on the 19th, then he executed the function to steal the NFTs from those that had given their signatures of their accounts. He had all those signatures stored on his server, so... Basically, these people were had signed and did realize a private sale of all of their NFTs to the hacker for the price of zero point zero. Yep. Zero Ethereum. You're selling all your NFTs to him for zero point zero Ethereum. Great deal for you, huh? So that's really what you were signing a month ago. And you didn't realize it. But he, he needed to collect as many signatures as possible. He didn't want to just jump on this right away, or otherwise the word would get around and nobody would fall for this phishing scheme. Because remember, he, he, he has to collect these signatures, and the only way he can collect these signatures is by sending out these phishing emails, pretending it's from OpenSea, and getting people to keep signing for him. And if the word gets around about it, then they're not going to sign for him anymore. So he wants to collect as many signatures and then pounce all at the same time on everybody. So it's believed that's what happened, and people noticed that their NFTs were gone. And they're like, what the hell did I do? And they, and this was from a month ago, so they didn't even think about it at first. It's not like you just signed something yesterday and then all your NFTs are gone and you know who did it. So here, people signed this a month ago, nothing happened, and then they forget about it, and then their NFTs are gone. And, and some of these NFTs are worth a lot of money. So it's very upsetting to people. It's ruining to people. I mean, it's really horrible that this is happening. Someone else explained the Wyvern protocol is actually the protocol that OpenSea is using and that the new OpenSea contracts require this uh, complex signature. And so what this person actually did is that they used the old OpenSea contract to steal these NFTs because it's a lot less secure and they just basically called it the Wyvern exchange contract, so it all made sense. So Wyvern wasn't just a name they pulled out of their ass. They they were actually uh, 
imitating what OpenSea was really doing. And that's why people bought it. And also nothing bad happened right, right when they signed. They just gave this guy their signature and he sat on it for a month. Someone else wrote on Twitter, I got this message to sign two days ago when trying to add a new item for sale on OpenSea. I did not click on any link in any emails. I did not click the sign. Instead, I got my on my MetaMask and added to OpenSea and the signature request did not appear. So then someone responded, there was a theory last night about this that they didn't interact with anything in email. And this, this may have been done through some... Uh, a, a new AFT and a new NFT called Azuki. That there was some of this going on with that as well, but that's not confirmed. Someone else said they signed it, but they never clicked on any phishing emails. Someone else said that it appeared to them when they listed one of their NFTs in OpenSea. While there definitely was a lot of phishing involved, there is some suspicion that some NFTs like Azuki, which I'm not familiar with and others had this embedded in it somehow. Or that maybe someone found an exploit in OpenSea to get people to sign this when they would add certain NFTs. A lot of people tweeted things like, I signed a pop-up like this, but I didn't click on a phishing link. A lot of people are saying that. So I, I think it wasn't just the phishing link. Someone posted a copy of the email they received... It said, migrate your Ethereum listing starting today from, quote, OpenSea team, team at OpenSea.io. Now, you may say, how could they have done that? How could they have sent that, which is a real OpenSea address? Anyone can fake an email from anybody else. It's very easy to do. In fact, this has been very easy to do for decades on the Internet. That's something a lot of people don't know, is that you, you can send emails from others and... It's not impossible to detect, but it's uh, most email clients don't detect it, and it, it can appear to be from someone that isn't. So you always have to watch out for that, that uh, if you get an email that seems weird or non-standard, just because it says it's from a certain address, it doesn't necessarily have to be from that certain address. So the email said, Hi there, you can now migrate your Ethereum listings to the new smart contract today gas-free. Gas is the charge for the transactions. You have until 2 p.m. Eastern on Friday, February 25th to migrate your listings. After that time, any listings you, you haven't migrated will expire. All existing offers will also expire at that time. If you don't migrate your listings by February 25th, you'll still be able to relist your expired listings after that period without incurring any additional fees, including gas fees. For more on why we're upgrading to this contract and how to get help migrating your listings, visit the Help Center. Thank you. So it sounds real, right? So it wasn't even that urgent. Like, notice it wasn't saying that you better do this, you're losing your NFTs, or you won't be able to sell anything. Like, they're saying, hey, you know, you just got to do this before February 25th. If you don't, you you can just uh, relist everything when it expires. But hey, if you don't want everything to expire, then uh, do this. So people are like, oh, I don't want all my listings to expire. So yeah, it's a pain in the ass. All right, I'll I'll just uh, I'll just do this here. And then they heard something about this wyvern that uh, that's what they're migrating to. So all right, all sounds good. OpenSea claims that they would never actually send an email like this. And it's not suspected they did send that email, but they're warning people that if you ever get an email telling you to 
click on links that they're never going to send you an email like that. They wrote on February 19th, we're actively investigating rumors of an exploit associated with OpenSea-related smart contracts. This appears to be a phishing attack originating outside of OpenSea's website. Do not click on links outside of OpenSea. At the moment, there's no further information on who did this or whether this was purely a phishing attack or if there was something that was also happening within OpenSea. OpenSea in general has a number of problems. In addition to all of the thefts that are occurring and the scams that are occurring, also there's the hassle of all these offers that people get for their NFTs that are way, way, way lowball, that are just a nuisance. You're constantly getting these nuisance offers by bots. It's full of bots making nuisance super low offers, hoping that you either misclick or just some percentage of people don't understand the value of what they're holding and will sell it for way too low. And as far as I have seen, maybe they've changed something, but as far as I've seen, you can't even shut these out. You can't even set a floor for the lowest offer you will consider or just shut these off entirely that you just don't want any offers. So these are a pain in the ass for people. OpenSea is really uh, crapping the bed here. And they're, I don't think they're really adjusting to all the different threats out there. But the big problem is that a lot of people who are collecting NFTs don't really understand the, the tech behind it. They, they don't really understand how to keep everything secure. And it's easy to fall for things when you're not understanding the way everything works. The best advice I can give you is simple. It's simple, but it will protect you a lot. And that is anything that you don't expect in the NFT space, ignore. No matter how tempting or good it looks or how much it makes sense, ignore it. That means emails with links to click on, even if it appears to be from OpenSea. Signing things that you wouldn't expect you'd have to sign for or that you don't know if you can trust. Or NFTs you receive out of nowhere that you think might be pennies from heaven. Just ignore anything that you don't expect. Anything that you can't fully explain, ignore. That's the best advice I can give you to keep your NFTs secure. The way most people get in trouble is they get involved with things which they don't totally understand or think is probably okay, but they're not 100% sure. Now, there was a guy on Zed Run, a player on Zed Run, I talked to some, who had all of his horses stolen, or his good horses stolen. They, He had his really valuable horses stolen from him, worth, like, combined, I don't know, $50,000 or something. So it was pretty devastating. And I don't know if Zed ended up helping him. I was giving him some suggestions on how to get Zed Run involved, because at least with Zed Run, there's some utility with the NFTs there. You know, Zed Run, it is an NFT game, but it's not just collecting things. It's mostly utility with the horses you're collecting. 
So Zed Run could get involved and at least uh, inval- basically invalidate the stolen horses on their system and then return them to the rightful owners in a different way. Like There's ways they can handle it. I don't know if they did it for this guy. But anyway, this guy was really scratching his head because he couldn't figure out how it happened. And I felt very bad for him. But he was saying to me that something that happened to him was that he was interacting with another NFT and that he was hearing some rumors that that one may have had something malicious in it and that he was afraid that that was what allowed someone to access his stuff and steal his best Zed horses. Now, he was never able to prove this, but that was his only theory. He said that was the only thing he did. He never clicked any links. He never signed anything else. Like he, he thought it was this other NFT he got involved with that may have been responsible. I should ask this guy for an update. This is about a month ago now. But he said that they stole his best horses along with some other NFTs, and they transferred a lot of things out of his wallet, but mainly the big-ticket items, and that he was suspecting that maybe the looks rare NFTs could be the culprit because he got involved with that and he thinks that somehow something there gave them access to steal everything from him. And he said they uh, emptied his looks rare account and that's the only thing else he did with his OpenSea except for Zed. But I never found out if there was others who had this problem with looks rare. And I don't really know much about looks rare. But, you know, this this guy, he was going crazy because he wasn't like a, a noob or anything. You know, he was uh, at least semi-familiar with what to do and not what not to do. And that's what was bothering him so much because he, this guy wasn't uh, someone who just learned it yesterday. And he thought everything was fine. He thought he was careful. And then he just wakes up and it's all gone. Or everything valuable was gone. I felt very bad for him. I had a conversation with him about this. This could be a killer for the whole space if this keeps happening. It's it's hard enough to get people to keep everything secure if it's just a matter of not falling for phishing scams that are obvious. But there's so many different ways you can get your stuff stolen to where you can have people like this guy who still don't even know how, to, how it happened. And also people getting these phishing emails that appear to be from OpenSea that look authentic and have a smart contract with the same name as OpenSea's new smart contract. And then the guy sits on it for a month and then steals from everybody. I mean, it's a very bad look. It, it, all this is going to do is make people not want to get involved with this space. And then, of course, things are going to crash. They may crash anyway. The more this goes on, the more people are going to stay away from NFTs. But yeah, just don't interact with anything that you don't understand. And maybe also don't don't get involved with NFTs that you can't trust. Like this guy's claiming this looks rare thing could be what did it to him. So try only to get involved with trusted projects as well. What a mess. Our final topic is about COVID. There's a pretty big development with COVID in the last week and a half or so since we were last on. And that is the laws have been changing. And not just in red states. A lot of blue states 
are now deciding that the mandates, uh, they're not such a good idea after all. So there's a lot of restrictions being lightened or removed in the U.S. Not everywhere, but it's happening more and more. Mask mandates are now largely becoming abandoned and masks are becoming optional in most spaces, even indoors, provided you are vaccinated. And, of course, since they don't check anybody's vaccination status, that basically means nobody has to wear a mask. Technically, those who are unvaccinated do, but people aren't going to walk in and say, hey, I'm unvaccinated, and since they won't ask you, then really nobody's going to be wearing a mask except for those who like wearing masks. There's some spaces where they're still required, even in these states that have eliminated them, like in healthcare settings and in schools, which that really doesn't make sense to me, but that's the way it is, for example, in California, which I I really don't get. Let me stop there for a second. If you're going to say that you don't have to wear a mask anymore if you're vaccinated, and basically that means nobody's going to wear a mask, and that it's safe to operate that way indoors now, why would you say in schools where almost everybody in the room is young and least likely to have bad COVID outcomes, why would you say they have to wear a mask still? Why is why are they forcing the kids who barely ever have hospitalizations from COVID, why are they still forced to mask indoors and adults are not, even older adults, who are the ones actually dying from COVID? How does that make any sense? Does COVID say, oh, hey, um, it's a school, so I'm going to be a lot more dangerous. Oh, wait, this place isn't a school? Okay, never mind. I'm not going to infect people. Like, what? It's either safe to not wear a mask indoors or it's unsafe. It doesn't matter what kind of indoors. If it's indoors and there's a bunch of people, it's either safe or it's unsafe. And if it's unsafe, then the question becomes, Will wearing a mask make it safe, or at least a good deal safer? If the answer is yes, then require a mask. If the answer is no, then don't require a mask. But it should be uniform everywhere. Now, maybe in healthcare settings, there's an argument because a lot of people who are getting healthcare are ones who might be feeling sick from COVID symptoms. So there's probably a disproportionate number of people who are in healthcare settings indoors who have COVID compared to everywhere else indoors. So at least I can understand they're having different rules. But schools, no, especially since it's almost all kids there. It's almost all kids, a few adults, all of whom are vaccinated, the adults at least. So, so why are you making the kids wear the mask? What, because uh, a bunch of kids aren't, aren't vaccinated? But they, these kids are not having bad outcomes. And, and Omicron is less severe by like a factor of nine than Delta was. So what are we doing here? Why why are the kids who have the best COVID outcomes the ones forced to wear masks indoors and adults are not now? Makes no sense. Not every state is like that. But California is like that. And many others are like that. And I think the reason for this is that people are so overly sensitive about their kids possibly being in danger that 
parents can be talked into irrational things to, quote, protect their kids. So instead of saying, hey, let's take the masks off the kids, they're bad for the kids socially, they could be bad for other reasons to be wearing health-wise, it's just not a good idea to be masking these kids unless there's really utility from it. And since it's okay for the adults to take their masks off, we're much more vulnerable to bad effects of COVID, then let's take them off the kids too. Instead of saying that, it's like, hey, you know what? Let's leave them on the kids because better safe than sorry. After all, there are kids. And that's stupid. Because it's not like the forced masking of children has no cost. It does have a cost. But it's one of these things, it's easier to to continue doing something that's perceived as safer than to stop doing it. So that's the real reason it's happening, that they haven't removed that restriction in a lot of schools. But back to what's going on with the mask mandates and vaccine mandates disappearing. This is all political. It's not because anything new has been discovered. It's not like uh, everyone's just woken up and go, oh, wow, you know what? These mandates aren't actually working. Okay, the science is in, so we're going to change our minds. That's not what happened. Nothing has changed. No new data has arrived saying that it's okay to suddenly not wear masks indoors. What has happened here is that Democrats are looking at their prospects for the November midterm elections, and it looks very, very bad. And they're running out of time. So they need to make changes now to make people happier with them, or otherwise they're going to get a severe beating in November. So when they were doing internal polling, they realized that one of the things that was really upsetting people was that there seemed to be still too many restrictions related to COVID when most people in the U.S. are just kind of over it now. Most people in the U.S. kind of feel like, okay, Omicron is far less deadly, far less dangerous. Yeah, it's more transmissible, but also we feel like we're kind of just going to get it. It's just, it's one of these things that's very hard to avoid. So either you're boosted or you're probably just going to get it, or maybe you're going to get it anyway if you're boosted. But the good news is it's not nearly as bad as the other forms of COVID we had prior to it. So we're just going to have to kind of live with the fact that that's the way it's going to be, but we want to go back to our normal life. That's what most Americans feel. So what they don't like is everything disrupting their lives that has to do with COVID when they feel like they're kind of past it. They're kind of just accepting that they're probably going to get something like Omicron. They'll deal with it, and that's that. So they don't want to wear a mask everywhere. They don't want all kinds of restrictions. They want to feel like life is normal again. And they feel like Republicans are pushing for that, and they feel like Democrats are pushing against that. So when they're asked, why don't you want to vote for a Democrat in November, their answer is, uh, we hate their position on COVID, they're restricting our lives too much, and it's dumb. So the Democrats say, "Uh uh-oh, we better do something about this. So you know that position we've taken all this time that any kind of restrictions that will be perceived to save lives for COVID are a good decision because every life must be saved, no matter what the cost? Uh, Not so much about that anymore. And uh, you know what about masks? We've been using that as political fodder for two years now to shame Republicans, but people are kind of sick of them and it's hurting us in the polls. So let's uh, let's kind of back away from this now. Let's not say don't wear masks, but let's also say you don't have to. 
It's all political. And I've said for a long time, there's a lot, in fact, most of COVID policy and most of COVID opinions are unfortunately political and not science-based. And what's unfortunate is when we do have some science-based opinions that really are backed by the data, that people ignore them because they are strongly on one side or the other on COVID issues because their party or talking heads on social media or the mainstream media or the alternative mainstream media or whatever it might be has told them to feel this way so they feel that they must feel the way they are told or otherwise they are uh, going against the ideology they're supposed to have. So it's not about what's best. It's about what way you're supposed to think. And it was happening on both sides. So the problem is that you convince yourself of thinking one way and then one day you wake up and you see this new information that now you have to think the other way. So you can be saying, oh, mask mandate's so important. Oh, wear a mask indoors. That's the way to keep us all safe. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, hey, guess what, everybody? You don't have to do it anymore. What? Why not? Is there some new study? No, no, no. There's no new study. Um, you just don't have to. Well, why not? Uh, because uh, Omicron cases are declining. Well, is it gone? No, not even close to gone, but it's, it's not as much as it was last month, so let's just not wear masks anymore. Now, the funny thing is I actually agree that the mask mandate should not be there. I'm not making fun of the fact they took that away. I'm making fun of the reason they took it away because it wasn't even so much of a belief at any point that the masks were necessary. It was that the masks were politically necessary. And now they are politically toxic. And so the Democrats want to back away from them. And while the right is correctly doing a victory dance over this, saying, see, we told you so. We shouldn't have had these in the first place. We should have abandoned all this crap a long time ago or not had a lot of this crap a long time ago. The truth is that a large percentage of the unvaccinated was on the right. And they refused to look at the data. And I've talked about this before. How can you look at the data of who's dying and not come away with the belief that the vaccines were working? They weren't working perfectly, but they were definitely working. They were definitely effective overall for the population. You definitely greatly reduced your chances of dying from COVID if you got the vaccine. There are a few unlucky people that died from the vaccine or had other adverse events, but it was pretty rare. But what was not rare was people dying from COVID who were unvaccinated, especially those who were over 45. So if you looked at all this and still chose to get unvaccinated because you, quote, feel healthy or you're, quote, keeping yourself in good shape or you have a, quote, good immune system, then you made a foolish decision that was based on ideology and not the science. And I mean the real science, not the science the left likes to throw in people's faces all the time that isn't really the science. I'm talking about the real science, the real data. So you had the right making these dumb mistakes regarding uh, this weird, we're not taking the vaccine position. But then you had the left with these silly mandates that were never justified by any kind of reliable study and that were just burdensome and often intrusive. 
there should have been a lot more of individual decision making in this whole thing. At the beginning, I understood. At the beginning, we were all in this together. We had to try to prevent the spread. Maybe we could prevent this from becoming a pandemic. But once it became a pandemic, once it became clear that you couldn't keep this genie in the bottle, that COVID was going to get a lot of people and that there was no stopping the spread. It was just going to spread. And then uh, the only thing that was going to really stop it was a vaccine. That became clear a long time ago. At that point, it should have become a a personal uh, decision, especially once the vaccines were available. At least before the vaccines were available, you could make the argument that nobody has a defense against it. So... If people are in public, indoors, with infected people, that they can get it. And that you have to try to prevent that. However, I would argue back that if the masks are not effective in preventing that, just because you feel like you're safe wearing a mask is not going to help you. And now they're finally admitting, oh, yeah, the cloth masks, yeah, they weren't that useful. Yeah, thanks. We've been saying that for two years. Really... It should have just been accepted that this is going to spread and everybody should own, it should assess their personal risk with the whole thing. They should have been very transparent with the true risk to each age group and with any other pre-existing condition that could cause you to have a higher risk. And those people should be extra careful. Everybody else should assess their own risk according to these statistics and it should be made very clear and 25 year olds should not be fearing covid the same way that 65 year olds should and you can't just go by well that 25 year old could get it and then transmit it to a 65 year old so yes he should feel he should fear it that way not necessarily what if the 25 year old lives by himself or with other 25 year olds then maybe he shouldn't fear it so much because you're you're not going to stop covid you're not going to stop it spreading There can be an argument if you live with someone that's older and you're young that you have to be extra careful yourself so you don't bring it home to them. But a lot of people were not in that circumstance. So you can't say that applies to everybody. You should should give guidance. You should say, okay, well, if you're young yourself, but if you live with someone who is vulnerable because they're older, you need to be careful yourself. Like, this info should have been put out there, but they didn't want to put it out there because they didn't want certain people dismissing and say, oh, this isn't a big deal because I'm young and I don't live with anyone who's older. So the whole time there was this oppressive attempt, and there still is in in a lot of other countries, as we're seeing in in Canada and elsewhere, and there's these oppressive attempts of, hey, you know what, we're just going to control the population. We're just going to be overly controlling over everybody for their own good. And people don't like that. And people eventually rebel against it. Or people will pretend to follow what they're being told to do, and then in private, behind closed doors, they're not. That's a big problem with these mandates as well. You're basically pushing people underground, and and they're just going to transmit it uh, where no one's seeing them transmit. So if you make it too unpleasant to go out in public, then people won't. Those will get together in private and, and nobody will wear masks and nobody will be careful and everybody will just transmit it to each other and not care. Like uh, These things have to be considered. And I've talked about this before. So there really just should have been an individual focus where everybody is given the information 
and everybody agrees not to politicize it. Everybody agrees to just get together on this one and advise the best thing to do. And then, for the most part, let people make their own choices. And that's where we are now, right? That's, that's the direction it's going. The mandates are going away. In Vegas, the, the mandate's gone. They took the mandate away in Vegas. Because that's what the people want. That's, that's why they're doing it. That's why the politicians are doing it now. Because they know if they continue requiring masks everywhere, that they're going to lose. So the whole thing of, well, this is the right thing to do, we're doing this for your safety, it was BS. Because if that was true, they wouldn't be pulling away from it now. Because while Omicron is declining, it's not like it's almost gone. There's a lot of Omicron cases still popping up, just not like there was last month. But on an absolute basis, there's a lot. I'll give you some numbers right here. I'm going to look right now at uh, Worldometers. I'll give you some numbers. So yesterday, in the U.S., there was uh, 41,000 reported new cases. It's not like it once was. But it, two days ago, it was uh, 113,000. So I think there was some reporting lag probably from the weekend for the 41,000. But let's, let's take the average of the two. Like, for example, I'll look at the, uh, the last seven days in the U.S. It was 675,000 cases. So yeah, we're looking at about like 90-something something thousand new cases a day in the U.S., which is way less than the peak, which is like 850,000. And that was of the ones that could report. Remember, there was a testing issue back then. So it's very possible we were well over a million maybe even close to 2 million new cases a day at the very worst point with Omicron. So we're way down on that. But it's not gone. It's still like 90,000-something cases a day, 675,000 a week. So while it's, it's declining, it's still there. So we're, we're not ripping off the masks because there's no more Omicron. It's just it's not politically popular. Remember, at one point... It was said that we have to get below 5,000 cases a day to be considered that we don't have to worry about uh, COVID being a big issue. And here we are, like, still like 90,000 a day. <laughs> We're like, oh, yeah, that's great. Okay, well, uh, take off the mask, guys. But it's actually correct because it's now admitted that if you're not wearing a. KN95 or N95 mask, you're not getting very much protection. It's just symbolic protection. So you either have to wear an uncomfortable mask or the, the ones that aren't quite so uncomfortable, they're, they're not really helping you. So, so why are we bothering? Just, just leave it up to everybody here. Leave it up to each individual. Now, let me talk about the fourth shot which some people are already getting in the U.S. It's been four months since I got the booster. And it has already been found that, like the original vaccine, that the booster degrades as well over time. And, and four months is kind of the mark where it's really starting to significantly happen. And then five months even more, and six months even more than that. So... Through about three months, you're in pretty good shape with the booster. But then as, as you get to the four-month mark, the efficacy has gone down a good deal. 
So right now it was found that you have only 66% efficacy after four months and 78% efficacy with keeping you out of the hospital, 66% with getting any symptoms at all. And that's down from 87 and 91 for Omicron if you were boosted uh, a month ago. So that's a pretty big difference. I even saw one study that at the five-month mark, you're down to 42%. So what this is looking like here, and there were, there were some beliefs, oh, there were so many antibodies created by the boosters, it's going to last a lot longer. No, it isn't. It really looks like that four months, you're already seeing a big decline, and five months, you're seeing a major decline in the efficacy of these vaccines. So it really looks like you're either going to be getting a shot every five months and dealing with whatever side effects it brings you, which varies from person to person, or you're just going to quit it and say it's not worth it. Because otherwise, there's going to be periods where you have very little protection. Only 28% of people in the U.S. got a booster. 28%. Not very much, right? And the truth is, if you didn't get that booster, you have very little protection against Omicron. You have some protection against being hospitalized, but as far as being protected of getting it at all, you have very little. And I talked about that on the last show. Actually, no, I didn't. We didn't do that on the last show. We didn't have a COVID segment. But I'm telling you this now. You you don't have very much protection at all if you had two shots, even two recent shots. If you didn't have a third shot, then you don't have much protection. So you're either going to do this every five months or you're going to have periods where you're pretty vulnerable to getting COVID. If you look at the people who got COVID at the World Series... And of course, that was not Omicron, that was Delta. But the people who got Delta at the World Series, they were like, what? How did I get that? I got, but I was fully vaccinated. Well, did you get a booster? No, but uh, you know, I was fully vaccinated. Well, yeah, but you didn't get a booster. They didn't get a booster because uh, the boosters were not available yet for most people based upon their schedule when they got them. And uh, yeah, they weren't giving the booster unless it had been six months since your second shot which I thought was stupid, but they that was a requirement at the time. So the World Series began September 30th. Most people had not gotten their second shot by March 30th, so they couldn't get boosted before the World Series. And also you had to give it a few weeks to take effect. That's why I only played the main event, because I had to wait until I got my booster in mid-October. And then I had to wait for it to work. So by the time I got to the World Series, yeah, I was protected. But that's why I didn't play before. And sure enough, a bunch of people got Delta and I didn't. I was right in the same room with it. I didn't get it. Truthfully, if, if you didn't get the booster, you may think it was a pain in the ass or you're kind of done with these shots or you don't want the side effects. I understand, but I'm just saying you're not very well protected now. But it's a pain in the ass to get a shot every five months, especially if it's going to make you sick. In about a month, it will be five months since I got the booster. Right now it's four months. It's a little more than four months, actually. I'm going to have to make a decision. Do I get this fourth shot or do I say, screw it, it's not worth getting sick? Furthermore, another complicating factor that you should consider, and I'm going to consider, they are actually designing, or they've already designed it, they're testing an Omicron shot. So one that is specifically tailored to fight Omicron better than the original vaccine. 
And there's some talk that this might be approved for release in late March. So if you're thinking of getting a booster in mid-March, like I kind of have been, that's when I'd be eligible, maybe you should wait. But then again, maybe you shouldn't because Omicron is rapidly decreasing. And maybe a month from now, it's going to be replaced by a different variant. A lot of people are wondering what's going to happen when Omicron fades away. Because it's rapidly fading. It hasn't disappeared yet, as I just said, but it's it's rapidly going down. We're, we're seeing about uh, 10% of the new cases compared to what we were at the peak, maybe even less than that. So with so many people hit by Omicron, will we have some form of herd immunity against it? And will this be replaced by another variant? Because something COVID's been doing is it's uh, it's not so much dying off from herd immunity and and new variants popping up. It's actually variants are beating each other. So we've had three major variants here. We've had the original, we've had Delta, and we've had Omicron. And every time one is more contagious than the next, and the more contagious one just completely clobbers the previous one out of existence. And not only does it beat the previous ones, but any new ones that pop up that are, are, are not as contagious can't compete and they just disappear. Remember the Lambda variant everyone was scared of? Well, the Lambda variant wasn't contagious enough. So while it was able to evade vaccines, it just wasn't able to spread because Delta was much better at spreading than it was. So Delta held Lambda down. Then Omicron came and said, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, I'm way more contagious than you are, Delta. You're going to die. And now Delta has died. Delta's gone. It's all Omicron now. So what is going to replace Omicron, if anything? So is Omicron just going to disappear? Will we be past it, like the Spanish flu in 1920? Or is there going to be another variant? And if the next variant replaces Omicron, is it going to be even more contagious? And will it be less severe? Will we have an even less severe COVID? And at what point are we going to just declare the thing a cold and be done? Because remember, a cold is not a specific type of virus. A cold is a collection of symptoms. There's various viruses where people display similar types of symptoms, and they all fit in the category of a cold. That's why we have colds that are rhinoviruses, we have colds that are coronaviruses, and we have colds that are other types of viruses. And these are all different viruses, but... They have very similar symptoms to one another, so they're all considered colds. So are we going to eventually classify COVID as a cold? It's already going in that direction. The symptoms are getting more and more cold-like. So if we eventually classify it as a cold, you're not going to be needing vaccines against it. These are all things to consider. I'm probably not going to get the fourth shot in mid-March, even if eligible for it. I'm probably going to wait and see what happens, number one, with Omicron, and number two, with the Omicron shot. And also, maybe the Omicron shot won't be worth getting if Omicron has died or is about to die. The fact that I get sick from these shots is also a reason that I am waiting, because it's not trivial to get one. I don't know if I want to go through three days of being sick every five months. It just sucks. So... At some point, I may say it's not worth it. 
the more often I have to do it. And the longer I stay sick, the less appealing it is to get these boosters. But at the same time, I feel the booster protected me both from Delta at the World Series and from Omicron from my son. So I I don't know. It'll be a tough decision, but I I think I'm not going to do it when first eligible. I think I'm going to wait, which will be the first time. I got the original vaccine when first eligible, and I got the booster when first eligible. This may be the first one I skip, or at least delay. Anyway, overall, it's good news. Omicron is definitely declining rapidly, and the mandates are disappearing. So that's good. You may be wondering about deaths, which do lag behind cases because deaths usually take a few weeks to happen from COVID. But deaths in the last seven days in the U.S., there were 12,700. So if you divide by seven to look at per day, it's still, you know, kind of on the high side. It's less than 2,000, but that's still a lot of people dying every day. But it's a few factors here. First of all, because Omicron is so contagious, there's going to be a lot of people with it who test positive for it, who die for other reasons. In fact, uh, Bob Saget, I know there's a lot of conspiracy theories about his death, but he definitely didn't die of COVID, and he tested positive for COVID. So I don't know if they classified him as a COVID death, but I know a lot of people, a lot of places would. I don't know about where he died if it was classified that way, but in a lot of areas that would be classified a COVID death, even though it clearly was not one, because he did die with COVID. So I don't know how many of these 12,700 deaths in the past week were people who actually died from COVID or if they just happened to have it when they died from other causes. I also haven't seen this broken down by age, but I have to imagine quite a high percentage of them were old and quite a high percentage of them were probably unvaccinated. I think of those who are not very old and who have at least two shots, there's probably not many deaths from Omicron here. All right, I'm done with this here. Should be back on February 26th, Saturday. Thank you for joining me on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Wonder what the next drama will be on Hustler Casino Live. It's always something. And maybe Tony Big Charles will be on a stream near you playing with Bart Hansen's money. <laughs> I'll probably watch it though if he does, especially since I've put my two cents into this controversy. I'm not going to put an offer in for the Love Ranch, in case you're wondering. It's tempting, but I'm not going to do it. Someone texted me they wanted to hear in the story that I actually did flood the reservation system. 
of that car rental place. And I was like, no, I mean, maybe it would have made a more interesting story, but no, I, I wasn't going to actually do it. It's one of these things that I could have done. It, it was possible to do. It wouldn't have been that hard for me to do. So that's why it was a good thing to say that I would do if they wouldn't take this seriously, because they had stolen my relative's phone and were acting like dicks about it. But I guess it worked, right? Got them to take it seriously. <laughs> the general manager found that, yes, they stole the phone. And will Christopher Mitchell have any money left? I have a feeling soon the answer will be no. And soon he may know he may not have a channel left either. Let's hope. And let's hope I have NFTs left and nobody steals them from me. Well, I'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening. Shalom.